everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the TetraCast. This is RPGSite.net's annual RPG of the Year podcast, where we get the site staff together to deliberate and discuss our favorite video games of 2022. I'm your host, my name is Brian Vitale, and joining me today is a long list of RPG Site staff and contributors here to put our collective heads together to sort through a very long list of RPGs that have released this year. Joining me today, I have Adam Vitale. Hello. Josh Torres. The council has convened once again. James Galizio. A reminder that Endwalker counts as a 2022 RPG. Yep, more on that later. Uh, we have Chow Min Wu. How's it going? We have Jess Reyes. Hey there. And Scott White. I thought this was RPG Studios uh, Game of the Year <laughs> Award podcast. <laughs> Am I at the right place? Square Enix. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, we are RPGSite.net. Uh, the one participant that isn't quite here yet is Alex Donaldson. He is basically the chair and co-founder of the site. Uh, he is wrangling some kiddo duties and is also kind of offset from time zone for the rest of us. We'll hopefully hear from him later. He'll be popping in. But we have the we have the, the ones that matter are here. We have the uh, the eight of us. Hey. Or sorry, the seven of us. <laughs> I can count. <laughs> one that matter. Can I get that in writing? Just that, that, yeah, that, that is that our title on our business each. cards. <laughs> we matter. Well, after a couple of strange years where our lives were collectively upended both within and outside of the gaming sphere, uh, 2022 felt like a little bit of a long-awaited return to a semblance of normalcy in a few ways. We had the return of in-person events like Gamescom, PAX, and Tokyo Game Show, uh, alongside being able to uh, visit some individual publisher exhibitions for new and exciting projects. It finally feels like we're coming out of you know the strange era of 2020 and 2021. Normal doesn't necessarily mean that this year wasn't also exciting and incredibly packed. We all know how many games that Square Enix decided to release this year, uh, for instance, but that isn't the half of it. We saw games like Elden Ring dominate the gaming discourse for months after it released back in February. Uh, the Aquiza series, now under new RGG Studio leadership, officially became like a dragon here in the West. We got a new generation of Pokemon from a couple of games that kind of upended the conventions of what a Pokemon game can be. We saw some interesting smaller scale highlights as well. Uh, we saw Babylon's Fall release and uh, claim to be shut down within a year of its release. We saw the Steam Deck change the way that many of us decide that we realize we can play RPGs. We saw smaller scale titles like Dealfield Chronicle and Astalibra Revision manage to find some time in the spotlight despite the deluge of new releases, both large and small, throughout the entire year. And we even saw... While animated adaptations of video games are nothing new, we saw a lot of RPG properties specifically kind of branch out of the gaming space. For instance, we've got a new Nier anime, a Cold Steel adaptation, even Cyberpunk made waves with Cyberpunk Edge Runners, uh, Legend of Mana, uh, and Dragon Age Absolution. And I'm probably forgetting a couple here, but just seems like an inflection point where a lot of these RPG IPs are becoming like multimedia genres now. And with all that stated, you know, 2022 was a packed year. Any of you that are regular listeners to the podcast probably hear us repeatedly state about how much we have to look into both on a news front, both on covering what, we're, what we've experienced for all the games we play from a week to week basis. It just never lets up. And 2022 has kind of been an exciting year to try to look at all the things that we've been able to experience from January up through now. And like James has stated, for our RPG of the year 2022 discussions... Our window of interest here is from December 2021 
to November 2022. That's just kind of a logistical uh, boundary that we put in place so that we can make sure that we give December releases a very fair look. And we just kind of make sure that we still cover that 12-month period from a year-to-year basis. And with that stated, I'll just kind of open up the floor to the rest of the crew here just to kind of uh, have a general discussion about like what the year meant to us. Uh, maybe I'll just start off here with Josh. Uh, 2022 was kind of an insane year for the site in the RPG space. And just wondering, just now that we sit here in our last recording of the year, uh, how, do, how do we feel about this in general? Yeah, 2022 was a crazy, crazy year. Just not even like from a new game standpoint, but just like even like RPG legacies and mainstays coming back. You had a new uh, new Star Ocean game, HD Star Ocean game yeah. come out of nowhere this year. It's like, holy crap. And like, it was, you know, I, I enjoyed it. You had Tactics Ogre making a return with like the definitive release of the Tactics Ogre Reborn and, you know, a lot, a lot of like praise for that from uh, new time players and veteran players. You finally had the release of Trails from Zero or, uh, come out, you know, officially <laughs> this year, which is mm-hmm. crazy to think about, you know. Uh, it's been, like, there's a lot of great, great new RPGs, but there's also just a ton of, like, ones that, like, we've experienced before, but they've finally either officially come out or, like, just, like, reinvigorated, like, that IP in an interesting way that I, I feel. And I, it, it feels nice. It feels nice. It kind of feels cozy at home with, like, you know, RPG mainstays that I uh, grew up with. And then at the starting of every year, obviously, we have a bunch of games that we're anticipating and looking forward to, some for multiple years. But then we also have surprises. Like you mentioned Star Ocean. I was thinking Soul Hackers, too. At the beginning of this year, we had no idea Soul Hackers, uh, another dormant at the time, was just a single game that we had no idea that was going to be followed up on. I know this isn't the uh, brand new thing because of Persona 4 on PC, was it a couple of years ago? But like... Persona 5 is now basically available on every major platform. Like, that was almost unthinkable when it released. Is uh, it available on Stadia, other... though? No, not Stadia, unfortunately. Oh. You heard what he said, every major platform. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. But yeah, Persona is a multi-genre, uh, sorry, multi-platform series now. Something that was not thinkable about a, a two years ago or so. So to kind of set the boundaries of what this podcast is uh, going to cover, for those that are listening to us, at this moment in time, you guys, anyone listening to this podcast, will have our features up on the website for all of the results of the deliberations that we're holding here now. However, as we speak into the microphone, we do not know what the results are going to be. This recording is basically our deliberations of what we are going to decide is our RPG of the year, and also which game had the best art or the best soundtrack or the best design. Uh, we will even make a top 10 of games that we thought were highlights of the year or runners up, but we don't know. This is basically you being able to listen to how we come to our decisions in uh, in recorded time. And it's going to be based on some of these games all of us have played. Some of these games, maybe one or two of us have played, but we'll make our arguments. We'll look at how we feel and our reception about each of these games individually. And we'll basically have a result that might be expected or might be unexpected. So we'll just kind of know as we go through what we ended up with. What this is going to look like on the site, on rpgsite.net, is that we have basically three companion features that we pair together every year. One of these is the RPG of the Year feature, but we also have two other ones. We have a most anticipated game, 
So what that will be is a vote from our site staff about what we're looking forward to in 2023. And then we're also going to have our reader's choice poll. At the time you guys uh, are listening to this, our poll will have been closed, but we hold that poll throughout the month of December. And then we have our site readers, both on our site and our Twitter and all our social channels, vote for their favorite RPG of 2022, along with their most anticipated RPG of 2023. Just some trivia, because I always think that this is kind of fun to to look back on. Uh, What were last year's results for those deliberations? So last year... Our most our RPG of the year was actually Fantasian from Mistwalker Studios that released on Apple Arcade and iOS. The reader's choice favorite RPG was Shin Megami Tensei V. For us, that was one of our runners up. For our staff, most anticipated for 2020 year, uh, 2022 this year, we had Triangle Strategy. This is also a little bit of trivia. On our most anticipated list for 2022, we also had Final Fantasy 16, Breath of the Wild 2, and Dragon Quest 3 HD 2D Remake. So uh, maybe we were a little bit over-optimistic on some of those games actually releasing this year. So I'm guessing a lot of those will uh, show up on the list again for next year. And then most anticipated RPG from our readers for this year was Elden Ring. So obviously we'll be seeing a lot of those titles in deliberations as we go into uh, the main list later in this podcast. The last thing that I do want to shout out is that we do have, and this is something that is primarily championed by Adam here, our RPGs of 2022 and 2023 list articles. And these are things that are maintained on on a near weekly basis. And it's both useful for us as a site and also for our readers about, as we learn about new console releases or new ports or new releases in general, and as release dates shift or games come out of early access, what exactly is releasing on a month-to-month basis? So we have those kind of Uh, evergreen features up on the site for our RPGs of 2022 and then going into next year, 2023, as we already kind of know how packed January through March or April is for next year. And for some reason, I have a feeling that's not going to slow down. We already know uh, um, the new Zelda um, Tears of the Kingdom is in May. So in June, yeah, so it's swamped with Final Fantasy and Diablo. Yeah, so those are those, a lot of those release dates at the time we record uh, are very, very new to us. So we're already trying to scope out exactly how we're going to cover everything up on the site. Uh, and totally. then also just for our personal. Hmm? Shortly next year is the year for Grand Blue Fantasy Relink. This time, right, guys? No. There's a very real possibility that, that this time next year we're going to have like a no holds barred fight over whether uh, Final Fantasy 16 or Final Fantasy 7 Remake Part 2 deserves a spot in the top five. Or maybe both. So I think that kind of covers it for all of the uh, boundaries and all of the kind of year in review. Uh, I will just, before we go straight, I don't want to dive straight into our uh, category awards segment. Just kind of want to open up the floor here and just say, like, is there anything else that uh, on a site basis or on a personal basis that we uh, as we look back on 2022 that you want to have the opportunity to have the floor to talk about here? I mean, it's it's, it's been a lot this year. I mean, personally, just like as a as something that's like I'm very, very passionate and dear about, like seeing an official mainline like type moon visual novel get officially localized in the West with Witch on the Holy Night. Like, I think that was still like top three most surprising things that happened that got revealed this year and for that to come out and like be you know it's at a, at a pretty good shape from what i've read so far it's like that to me like way back when that's unthinkable and like and, and surely like you know 
when a mainline Super Robot Wars game came out, like, last year officially, like, that was unthinkable, too. It's just, like, it's been weirdly, like, just recently, throughout recent years, it's, like, what I thought would be impossible till the end of time became reality, just like that. I feel like studios so, just randomly remembered that tactical RPGs exist and are a thing. That's a good one. Yeah. And they were like, we should release those. And everyone had the same idea. Uh, you say that, but I feel like it's basically been just Square Enix. And there's there's been other some like Digimon Survive, you know. Yeah, Lost that's Eid- more a visual Lost novel. Lost I mean, that, it does Eidolons. sound strange. Mm-hmm. Nice Eidons. Um, you know. A relay. Yeah. yeah, there's there's been there's been good ones out there, not just Square Enix. The the, one, the ones that people are I focus on the most are Square Enix, so they're the most exposed. But that doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're other like there's still really good tactical RPGs that released outside of Square Enix this year. Well, broadening that discussion a little bit, it is kind of fun to see like, oh, are we ever gonna see a Suikoden in the game again? And yeah, it's not it's a remaster, but that's something where they're like, oh yeah, we have this IP, we should do something or or Armored Core, uh, obviously not directly in our space but we're as we record this we're just a couple days removed from the official announcement of armored core 6 and it's like oh yeah this is an ip that from software used to work on uh, it's kind of fun though to see videos like from the makers of dark souls armored core <laughs> say that that's not fun for me that's like <laughs> oh come on Can I just say how strange of a world we live in that call of duty wins no awards at the game awards and like the second to last trailer shown the one of the biggest trailers at the Game Awards is an Armored Core game. It's like, so bizarre. What is this? It's so weird. <laughs> like it's like so celebrated. It. Like you're you're seeing you're you're showing that trailer to Al Pacino out of all people. It's like right, all like right. Jeff Neely getting like all like really intense and passionate. It's like, dude, you've never freaking played Armored Core. Don't don't, don't bring it. I, Ar- I Ar- Armored Core the- fan excited to play for the first time <laughs> or whatever. I, I appreciate it, but. Get off the stage, Jack. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> to, to be fair, uh, the, the, yeah. To be fair, the the game awards and Keeley in general have always had a like. It almost feels like from software kind of gets like buy in because that, that like Sekiro won Game of the Year at that, uh, and then like that's where Elden Ring was officially announced, right? So it kind of feels like they're they've at least branched out to incorporate from software into their you know their inner circle. But um, yeah, well, obviously, he leaves inner circle of him and Kojima. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, that applause man. when he's mentioned Kojima. <laughs> that that hug between Jeff and Kojima, it's like he, the way that Jeff just like marched up to him. It's like, man, I was almost expecting tongue. Jeez, uh. <laughs> that's that's behind the curtains uh, mm. only. Mm-hmm. So our first segment. For this uh, awards podcast is for our category awards. So each of these seg- uh, categories has anywhere from like five to, to a dozen nominations. And these are just nominations from the staff about any game we feel like could potentially win the categories that they're in. Uh, all these categories are the same as from last year. We don't have any new ones, and I don't believe we've dropped any. And the categories are best writing, best art best music, best design and immersion, best ongoing support, best re-release, and best non-RPG. So as we go into each category, we'll kind of talk a little bit about 
uh, what this category means, what specifically we're looking for, why does this category exist? Uh, though most of them are, I think, are pretty kind of self-evident. Uh, our, our newest category, for instance, as of a couple years ago, was the best re-release because we see those kind of more and more often now. And that'll actually be the one that we'll be discussing first. And we originally didn't have this category. So when we would have remasters or re-releases, we kind of didn't know, like, well, now we're just crowding out new games just to talk about, oh, remember this, uh, we, got a, we got a new remaster for uh, something, I can't remember a specific title, but there, I think it was like Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, where I was like, yeah, this is a great game, but it came out in 2010. So this way, we can still kind of look at games, like, for instance, Chrono Cross Radical Dreamers Edition, or tactics ogre reborn and give them the credit of when a remaster does a stellar job to make a classic well-regarded title available to people to play in 2022 and beyond so uh, without further ado our best remaster or re-release the nominations are chrono cross the radical dreamers edition tactics ogre reborn persona 5 royal as it released on ps5 pc xbox and switch 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim got a Switch release. And the Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster came out this year, I believe, uh, earlier in February. I also so want to... Like, uh, like, before, before we hmm? uh, go into it, I also want to like have the discussion of like why Live Alive isn't on this list. Because technically, Live Alive is an old game that did have a re-release this year under a remake, completely transformed with the HD2D remake. But the technicality we have here is... Live Alive in its original release never released in the West before, so this would count as its quote-unquote first official release in the West. So that's why it's not in this category. And in general, we are a uh, an English-facing site, so any game that we talk about here is specifically for its official Western English release. So in a lot of a lot of publishers now, we have simultaneous or very close window releases. So this isn't as much of a concern as it was potentially, you know, half a decade or a decade ago. But yeah, Live Alive was a game that even when it came out uh, earlier in the year, we're like, how are we going to look at this when we come to the, uh, the end of the year podcast? And the decision was made at the time that we it hasn't had an official English release. So for the purposes of our audience and our site, it's a new release. And that's not written in stone. Uh, so that's something that could be altered, but I don't think that anyone kind of feels strongly the other way. So as of right now, Live Alive is not on the best remaster or re-release list because it is on the main list that we'll get to later. So for our best remaster or re-release, this list of five games that I have read off is probably our shortest list of nominations this year. Uh, but it has a lot of very strong entries. We've already heard a lot about Tactics Ogre Reborn, for instance. And basically, let's just we're just kind of kind of go round robin and discuss which of these games are in contention for being the best remaster of the year, and which of these games potentially uh, were received well but don't quite hit that mark. So I'm going to hand it off, I think, to um, let's see here, Adam. Adam, I know you've played at least a couple games on this list, like potentially the Final Fantasy VI Pixel remaster, but you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. Just kind of. Out of you look at this list, is there anything that really sings to you as a game that really should be in contention or anything that you feel like doesn't quite hit the mark? Um, so if it's like 13 Sentinels, I've never played it, but as far as I understand, it's mostly just a port. I know it has like a small edition, 
So, like, when I compare that to things like Chrono Cross or Tactics Ogre or even Final Fantasy VI, you know, it just, I don't know if it, like, you know, it's a good port, but it, it's not really, like, a remaster. It's not really other than anything more, like, significant or notable about it. So that, that you know, I mean, obviously I'm not saying anything about the quality of the game. I'm just saying in terms of this category, I'm not sure if it, you know, if it should be something to consider as the winner of this category compared to some of the other ones. Uh, Persona 5 is maybe a little bit, is, I know that's also just a port, but as we mentioned earlier in this recording, I think that's, also, I think that's probably a more significant port considering um, it's kind of coming to everything and it's obviously a massive IP now in the, in the RPG space. So that was my immediate thought. Yeah, I was going right. to ask about that actually. Like, um, Is this based on how much it's improved or improvised on the past release or is it just which one was a good game this year? Because th- that's what I was thinking about Persona 5. It's kind of a combination of both. It is, on- it is honestly and kind of deliberately a, a little bit of a vague category. For like a great game that was locked away on a single console that is now available to more people, I think that's worth commending. But also the amount of work that was done into remastering it, for instance, if we if we look at something like the execution of Tactics Ogre Reborn versus the execution of Chrono Cross Radical Dreamers Edition, I think, at least in my opinion, that we should look at this kind of holistically uh, and not not basically punish a game for not adding as much as another if the additions weren't anything that were really significant. But it, it is kind of admittedly a bit loose. So we're just kind of just making sure that we look at each ca- uh, whole game as it released as a someone who's playing it for the first time. If they play Persona 5 Royal on Xbox, the experience that they have, at least that's the way that I'm looking at this. Can I just uh, can I just rip this bandaid off? Uh, it's not going to be Chrono Cross, is it? <laughs> No, that's oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that I'm kind of glad that someone uh, stated that Please. because yeah because yeah. you mentioned uh, you mentioned Xbox and the thing I keep thinking back to is that literally you'll have a better like performing experience emulating Chrono Cross on Xbox and playing the actual Xbox version. Yeah, there's the, the tragic thing about the Chrono Cross uh, remaster re release that came out this year is like you know they didn't have like the a lot to work on when it comes to like. Uh, original like development materials at the time so this released in a pretty dire state it's kind of like in a, in a state where like they can't really improve upon it unfortunately and it's like it's it, it doesn't run well it doesn't it, it's like it almost feels like a straight port in some respects in like not a, in not a good way um you know the the only thing that could make the experience better honestly is with pc mods at this point and then you know everything else is kind of dire about it like chrono cross fantastic game i i i I know Chrono Cross has its uh, haters, Chow, um, but you know it's a uh, it's it's just not. When you think about the other other titles on this list, I don't think it's in contention for for the winning at all. I don't think it has any shot. I think no, so in I Chrono Cross's defense, though, it was the first officially localized release of Radical Dreamers, yes. kind of the side game, and mm-hmm. I would honestly put it above sentinels and persona just because it actually does release something new okay yeah it's also technically the first official release of the game in europe yeah so it's like i it how i view it is 13 sentinels i hear was a fantastic switch port i doesn't add anything but cool it was a good switch port more people got to play it persona 5 my view of this is it's had its due in the sun like i feel like 
for the past four years, you could get a put Persona 5 on a list somewhere. So I would put Chrono Cross above Persona Sentinels just because it actually has, yes, its performance is kind of crappy in aspects, but at least we got, for the first time, an official localization of that Radical Dreamers. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, and by the way, I do want to access Radical Dreamers before this for sure. And I do want to state that we were talking about great Switch ports. A game that I see that was not nominated, but I started thinking about was Nier Automata's Switch port was also really well received. So these nominations, uh, I want to keep the door open for any of these categories that if there is something that somehow just slipped through the cracks and wasn't on the list. I do want to allow for, hey, what about this game that released or whatever? Because if it's something that just so and so didn't realize that it was missing, and like, oh, let's 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 do a late addendum. I just want to say I'm totally okay with that. In this specific case, I don't think the Nier Automata Switch is going to do any better than Persona Five Royal PC, for instance. Uh, but it's just something I just thought about as a as a general um, as a general statement. I, I and then agree as that for Persona Chron- Five, oh, go for it. I was just going to go into my discussion on uh, on Chrono Cross and kind of tie a bow up on on that nomination so yeah chrono cross this was my first time playing the game but this is a bit personal to me but like chrono cross i've had a lot of its music in my spotify playlist for years though i've never played the game because i just think that chrono cross's soundtrack is immaculate i just I, i adore it um and that it's, uh, I feel like that's one of the games that I can genuinely say that because I, I don't have any, I didn't have any nostalgia for the game or, or like I didn't have that memory like, oh yeah, this plays at this sequence or this plays at this sequence. But then when I, so I almost had the reverse where I started playing that, I'm like, oh, that's where this song plays. This is when a kid is, you know, that's sick in the cool. bed that's or, a cool or whatever. Yeah. You can contextualize it. <laughs> so, like, oh, this is where it plays. Yeah. So I had a really good time with Chrono Cross and I'm really glad that I played it and I'm really glad this remaster exists. But I don't disagree with anything that was stated. It didn't run well. The game itself has a few design oddities that are kind of an acquired taste. But I'm glad that it was nominated. I think I have no one that put it on the list, even though I kind of knew even when I was listing it out that it likely wasn't going to win. So I'm glad that we had the chance to at least reflect back on it here. Yeah, I kind of agree agree with uh, Scott's points on Persona 5 Royal and 13 Sentinels. But 13 Sentinels... You know, b- going in before the 13 Sentinels switch port came out, a lot of people were joking like, oh, this, will this light the switch on fire when it runs mm-hmm. during the battle sequences because it goes to single digit frame rates on the PS4 release uh, during the, uh, some of those later battles in it. So they're like, what's, what's it going to do to the switch? So, you know, they cut back on some of the visual effects to uh, uh, actually optimize it. So it actually does run pretty admirably well on the switch it did uh introduce like a, a weirdly a balance patch on it too that was yeah. applied to the ps4 version so some of the tactics like turrets are less effective uh in that part but like other than that it's the same experience that you um you know you'll get at the initial release for the most part it's still again a really 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 fantastic game uh we gave it it's, uh, it's you know it's due praise when it came out in the west in 2020 i believe but you know I, yeah yeah but in the spirit of this category i don't you know it's okay but like I think there are other titles in this list that are more deserving on like in the spirit of this category. Uh same thing with Persona 5 Royal, excellent, excellent game. And the fact that like it actually has like now an officially official 60 FPS release or even higher on PC, like fantastic. It's uh, it's, it's great that Persona is now a multi-platform series and is finally, you know, getting uh, getting out the platforms that we never thought it would. Um 
but in the spirit of this category, like the actual improvements it it uh, brings in comparison to the original game, in the spirit of this category, I think there are uh, more deserving uh, a specific title on this list is more deserving of that to me personally than any of these three that we've mentioned. So to recap where we're standing right now, we have Chrono Cross, the Radical Dreamers Edition, Persona 5 Royal, and 13 Sentinels Aegis Rims Switchport out of contention, leaving the Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster and Tactics Ogre Reborn. So I have played Final Fantasy VI. I have not played the remaster specifically. Tactics Ogre Reborn, unfortunately, I did not get a chance to go through, but I know that several people here have thought highly of both the game and with some specific thoughts on the re-release. I know that Adam has thought very highly of Tactics Ogre and has played the PSP version of the game, the Let Us Cling Together version. And then Josh has put in, probably out of, I assume out of everyone here, the most time into the Reborn version specifically. So I think it's kind of... uh, Tactics Ogre Reborn, I look at this and I see the reception that it's got gotten and I feel like it seems like it might edge out the Pixel Remaster, but I do know that not every change in the Tactics Ogre Reborn we thought highly of. So I kind of see both of these the remaining titles as having kind of caveats to them, despite being both excellent games and excellent remasters. I mean, why fix what's not broken, you know? Yeah, so the, the FF6 Pixel Remaster, like, you know, it it, it is, uh, you know, kind of conforms to the same style as the other recent Pixel Remasters, um, you know, so there there are some changes to the to the sprites and their designs to make it more in line with some other, like, the concept artwork, which is fine. The biggest change with the Pixel Remaster, of course, is the opera scene where they kind of did, like, a kind of HD, it's not, it's not fully HD 2D, but it, like, it's trying to, to go into the spirit of it, and he, even Alex wrote up a feature, it's like, like, did they really need to do this to the opera scene to change it to HD2D? It kind of just feels like yeah. like the, the, style, the style shift to it, like, kind of doesn't fit in, like, the rest of the game. Like, you kind of just, you like, with the HD2D style, it's either you go for it or you don't. It's not, like, something you slot in there and, like, be like, isn't it cool, guys? You know? It's like, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think it takes away from that opera scene, to be honest. You know, when I see the HD2D, like, the, the shift to it, it's like, I, I still prefer the original way they presented that opera scene. I think that was very effective back then. I don't know why you needed to put it into HD2D out of nowhere, to be honest. The nice thing about that opera scene, though, is all the languages they decided to like dub it into. That had a lot of... It, yeah, that, yeah, that was impressive. Things. Yeah. So I remember that during the time of release. Um, but for me, specifically, when I have to... Like, personally, when I have to pick between one or the other, I think Tactics Ogre Reborn, for me, is the... Like it, it easily beats out the rest of these uh, to me because of the spirit of the best remaster re-release category. Because for me, it enhances the, like the original like release and the PSP version by like by just like with quality of life enhancements alone, along with all the other additions that they added to it. Like there were there's some divisiveness about the stat card buffs on the field for sure. Like some people don't like it. I personally like eh, you know like I I learned to like play around it and like it's something that like okay like I'll, I'll deal with it but it's not like a game breaking thing but when you think about like all the all, all the things they've do, they've done to it like the for, formation saving um the the turbo mode um just the way you can like 
just eat like the the swap back to like how um instead of like a job level universal job level they went back to you unit uh unit yeah. by unit uh jobs and how you can easily level them um they just basically took a look at like the past two releases and they're like we'll just basically make the experience so much better on almost every front of that game uh it just goes the extra mile to like really really um put justice into like uh the tactics ogre um you know release it's just impressive all around for me yeah it's have, having reviewed all the pixel remasters and having put in a lot of time into tactics ogre reborn i still like the remix soundtrack i think is the best part of the pixel remasters i think mm-hmm. the special soundtrack hands down excellent but with the removal of kind of the additional features or content that was later added in like the game boy advance versions with the rare exception of probably final fantasy three pixel remaster i don't view any of the pixel remaster games as my definitive version of these games ports Um, yeah the the caveat the two caveats of the pixel remaster were doesn't have the gba content and then the second one kind of specific but truly the english font choice (laughs) for those yeah it's kind of sad to say i still feel like my definitive version is still the super nintendo version for final fantasy 6 i did a whole article about how i felt the uh nes or playstation 1 version of final fantasy 1 is still the best (laughs) yeah and that i guess that's one thing that i didn't might might not make clear i think the final fantasy 6 pixel remaster specifically was the one that released in 2022 which is why it's in contention here uh compared to the whole set like, if people are still debating that they rather still play, like, the older ones over this one, and the, and no one can have a conclusive answer saying this is definitive, I don't think that's that's a good choice as the best remaster port, you know? I mean, you could mm-hmm. argue the same arguments are made with Tactics Ogre. Yeah, like, like, like even put it by review, like, I, for me personally, like, I don't, like, none of the Tactics Ogre releases are the def- definitive one for me. Like, uh, there's the, it's hard to choose. With every, every one of them has big pros and cons. For reborn specifically, like the thing that's working against is like a lot of like the one vision mod from the let us link together. Like it's it kind of edges it out in some ways, but in other ways, the quality of life stuff that reborn brings it, it it's kind of it kind of swings back that way. So yeah, in tactics ogre case, like for me, there's no definitive version, but for a lot of people, reborn is the def- definitive version for for them. So mm-hmm. like it, it's it, it's a, it's a tough thing, but I, but I would still I would still despite all of that, I still think tactics ogre beats it out because i think it's just like what the what they've done to the whole thing is very impressive and the and the, and the script the fully voiced script now for english and japanese in it like both mm-hmm. tracks are like excellent in it and like the the way they del- deliver lines because it's it's very hard to like capture the atmosphere of taki's ogre it's, it's very sh- like the, like how the english dub um does it it's like in a very theatrical play um manner and it works. It works for the most part. Like I really dug like some of the lines that they delivered in that English um, dub. So I think just when I think about the amount of work and how it and how it paid off in the end, like both of these like are not flawless, but I think Tactics Ogre is still the more impressive remaster project. Um, out of all yeah, I, I didn't really think of these as kindred spirits going in, but yeah, it is kind of interesting to see that both of these are excellent games. 
both of these are games where if someone said, yeah, I played Final Fantasy VI for the first time with the Pixel Remaster, or I played Tekken Ogre with the first time with Tekken Ogre Reborn, it's like, yep, I'm glad you're finally playing it because it's excellent. But they're both like not definitive, though the uh, the caveats to specifically why that's true, it sounds like it's on a different scale for each. So it seems like we are on a general consensus that the best remaster or re-release of 2022 for RPG site is Tactics Ogre Reborn with Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster. If we were to if we were to list one of these titles as a runner-up, it would be that. Is that is that are we in agreement? Is this our first uh, decision of the night? I, I agree. I, yeah, I, I don't agree. know if I want to put Radical Dreamers above the Final Fantasy VI Remaster, just because we got the Radical Dreamers content. Hmm. And it's available on more platforms. Pixel remasters only PC still. I still think that like the, the efforts they did with like actually bringing the opera scene to like more international audiences is like, you know, if you were to like compare apples to tomatoes, I still think to, to me personally that's on true. an international level, like that's very effective. Like that, that means that means Good something point. to like to an international audience. It's like, well, I get to hear like this performance about iconic scene and RPGs in my language good point uh, and it performs better I, I forgot to ask is, is romancing saga mistral's song uh, december that's that's song. december release damn if, if you sk- if you yeah. skip to this timestamp in the podcast yeah uh anything that released in december 2022 is not in consideration for either the main list or category though you can still bring it up in chat and be like yeah well i'm looking forward to next year where we're gonna be talking about minstrel song and crisis core that's another one that's like why is that not on the december release so my guess yeah, is that I, next year i made it <laughs> nothing's gonna beat the battle network collection so all other Uh-oh. games should uh just uh throw in the towel now okay mm-hmm <laughs> so again to state it declaratively one final time for our best remaster re-release we've got tactics ogre reborn and unlike yep and this is a game that i'm definitely looking forward to t- diving into over the holiday break now unlike every other category in our deliberations this evening these are games that we will not hear from again because they won't be in the main list because they are remasters or re-releases so Say goodbye to Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster, Chrono Cross, Persona 5 Royal, and 13 Sentinels. All excellent games. You should play all of them on whatever platform is you know suits your needs. And Tactics Ogre Reborn, definitely want to highlight as the best re-release and remaster of 2022. Now we are moving into our second category, and this is the category that last year took the longest to deliberate and probably for very good reasons. And that is the category of best writing or storytelling. So again, this is kind of a a broad category that we want to discuss and look at holistically. When we say writing or storytelling, that's kind of a nebulous concept. This can be anything from the overarching narrative, the story itself, characters, character interactions, themes, anything that we feel strongly about from a writing perspective. And this has a fairly... there's like a big spoiler warning throughout all of these as well because we have to oh yeah that's... talk about the story about these uh, games you know we'll have to talk about yep. the whole game all right so i'm about to read off the list of nominations if you... unfortunately due to the nature of the discussion we're probably going to go back and forth between a few of these games so if you don't want to be spoiled on these games we will do our best to declare that what we're going to be talking about but we will also timestamp if you want to 
avoid this segment. The nominations for Best Writing or Storytelling in an RPG in 2022 are Pentiment, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, The Dio Field Chronicle, Astalibra Revision, Live Alive, Relayer, The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero, Triangle Strategy, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, and Citizen Sleeper. So we've got games both large and small, indie and mainstream. We've got kind of running the whole gamut here of releases. Uh, what I want to do first, I think, is I know that one of these was nominated here by Jess, and that was I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. This is not a game that we've had a chance to talk about on the TetraCast. So I want to make sure we can uh, highlight it first and be like, hey, Jess, when you uh, played this game and nominated it here for best writing or storytelling, kind of tee us up. What is I Was a Teenage Exocolonist and why is it a nomination for best writing or storytelling? Okay, so basically it's about this uh, this protagonist. You can choose if it's a gender neutral boy or girl. Um, and then uh, they are essentially on this new, on this planet they have, like them and this colony have decided to settle here and make a new civilization, basically. And it's about how you're growing up in this new colony, um, gaining all these different kinds of skills to determine um, what you could do as you grow up, plus your eventual occupation and the outcome of the end of the story. Like, you know, you could you could die prematurely. You could like discover a cure to this disease or like discover um, um, all these little different things that can affect what happens at the end and you can keep replaying it so that like after you die you come like you're reborn again and then discover new things and then go back and sometimes act on stuff that you've learned in a past lifetime too um the main reason i am nominating it for one of the best storytelling is because i really i really enjoyed how it's written actually it's like one of those uh, rare games that it sounds like it's out of a book but it doesn't feel out of place either way like it's a very detailed writing like good dialogues and I just felt like it was really enjoyable to play through um like one of the games that I found easy to play into the night and I'm not sure if I would really nominate it over uh Xenoblade 3 but I just thought it was a very good game like I didn't expect that level of storytelling from an indie to be honest well, the way you describe it, not only are you kind of giving testament to the quality of its writing, but you're almost describing it as like a narrative roguelike, where when you're talking about where you can die and replay as, you know, a different character, it reminded me of some a game like Rogue Legacy or something like that, but only with a narrative slant. Do I Am I kind of understanding that correctly in terms of the oh, branching no, narrative always, that ends up recycling? I guess it's like you're always born into the same scenario. It's just that you could take a different path afterwards, depending on what skills you decide to level up. Like you're oh, gotcha. either the, um, you know, you're always the child of these two particular people. Um, you could choose your childhood friend. You could choose who to romance in uh, each lifetime. Like you can become like a, for example, you could really focus on biology and learn about the local fauna, or you could become a soldier. And it's just a, puts you in a different like it like depending on how higher skill levels are for these particular stats it can like you can't like you can't do certain things unless you're like certain bravery stat or certain biology stat so it really determines what you're able to do and discover during your playthrough 
No, that does sound really neat. And I'm looking at, so this is not a game we've had a chance to talk on the podcast before, but I'm looking at the Steam page now and it's got that recent and all overwhelmingly positive reception. So I'm like, oh, all right. And this is now on my radar. Uh, oh, actually, so, it's also, um, it was hmm? also in the Games for Impact category at the Game Awards. Oh, that's neat. So we'll definitely keep this in contention for now. Uh, we will move over. Let's move over to uh, a game like Live Alive. And maybe I'll hand this one off to Chow and be because uh, I know that Chow, I believe, was one of the few of us that had played this game before it came out uh, officially in English on the Switch this year. So, Chow, how do you think about Live Alive's uh, kind of narrative design and execution? I think it's really excellent for its time. Obviously, for today's standard, none of it seems kind of mind blowing nowadays, right? But like how all eight characters connect, I, I say eight characters because obviously there's the secret character that comes at the end when you beat all the scenarios. Um, obviously, I had to go for that because all, all of them, how they all link together uh, and how well they connect, it's it's really mind-blowing for, for its time. But nowadays, people don't see it the same way. And the plot twist that links from Orstrid and the things that he goes through it's like, I don't know, Paige laughs at this twist nowadays. It'll be like, it's like, what the hell? It's like, I could see that coming from miles away. But I also think maybe maybe a lot of the, like modern takes to it maybe makes it a lot easier to find these twists. Because when you see in the Super Nintendo days, seeing the sprites, maybe it's a little harder to pick out like the twist coming. But I don't know. I'm seeing a lot of different takes when they added like the whole voice acting to it. You know, it's like, for example, uh, we can go full on with spoilers, right? Yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the princess that that Orstrid weds. Like, if you were playing based on maybe the Super Nintendo, you just get a little dialogue. You don't know kind of like her relationship with Orstrid. While in the remake with the added voice acting, you can play the you can play in English, you can play in Japanese, and both version. I feel like there's a different take. You know, in the Japanese version, I felt that she betrays Orstrid because he didn't come on time to save her. While in the English dub, it felt more like she she was like she was already in a relationship with the backstabber, and that it's like screw you, you know, kind kind of kind of kind of a whole different take. I don't know. I just find it's it's really interesting for me in general, but I don't know about you guys. For me, uh, so I played Live Alive for the first time this year, obviously with its official English release. And for me, I look at Live Alive and do I think it has the best writing or storytelling of this year compared to this whole list? I'm going to say no. However, the fact I kept putting myself like this was written two decades ago, more than two decades ago. And that's where I think this is like, I kind of, if I was playing this as a teenager or even younger than that, I, when did the Live Alive originally release? It 94. just feels like... 94 so yeah i would have been really young um it i would have been blown away and the fact that it still holds up and is even in contention blows me away today so that's where i think live alive i look at it's kind of it's this is such a unique perspective because like if are we going to treat live alive like an old game or like a new game can we have it both ways it's it's difficult but i look at live alive and i'm like the fact that it still has that impact in 2022 for someone playing it for the first time is a testament to the quality of that game in general. 
So am I going to put it in contention for best writing and storytelling of this year? I'm going to say probably not, but I just do want to shout out that it is really, really good, especially in the context of its release. That's my take on Live Alive. Yeah, I, it's it's kind of the, like you said, the weird thing is like at, at the time, you know, this was a very effective storytelling, uh, just like mechanic, like some you never really saw this in video games at the time it it came out it is it is hugely hugely influential uh to how narrative was told in video games moving forward and how it was presented what the what the possibility of the medium of video games can uh achieve and uh, you know a lot of that was attributed to live alive like kind of like almost a pivotal moment in uh jrpg history you know but we are living in the modern time and you know at the time live alive like it's still amazing but when I think about the other stories and storytelling this list that are pushing the genre forward, Live Alive did it at its time, but we're in 2022 now, and now we have to look at like it under like a modern lens compared mm-hmm. to like, it's more of a legacy. <laughs> it's more of a legacy thing, but... more so than more so than like a modern um, lens. All right, so we got a fair few other titles on this list. Let's look at The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero. I'm just I'm just picking out of a hat. I'm throwing darts. So this is a game that, similar to Live Alive, released officially in English just this year, though isn't quite as old, though the original release was like a decade ago. So still kind of in a similar space. So Trails from Zero, I guess I can start off the discussion here. Uh, similar to Live Alive, I played this uh, in English for the first time within the last year. And obviously this is a game from a long-running franchise with a very very interconnected story however trails from zero i think is one of my favorite entries in that series due to the scope of its story so unlike a lot of the other especially more recent legend of heroes games trails from zero has a much more has a much smaller cast both just in general and playable cast and kind of a much more localized narrative with a much more targeted kind of uh conflict and climax and that's something i kind of found that i really appreciated from trails from zero it's all about uh the dg cult and the the main antagonist from trails from zero ends up being uh gunther Uh, is it gunther i'm trying to remember the name correctly which is kind of something that is i kind of liked how it was self-contained but still compelling it didn't require that it had some long-running tale of you had to play these six other games to really get the the full value out of trails from zero i really like just the the fact that you have your special support section the four main playable characters with lloyd leto and randy i thought that they could really had all they had all a bunch of time to shine they could get they all had a lot of dialogue they were they you didn't have to spread too little butter over too much bread so that's what i thought that trails from zero really did well however similar to live alive it's one of those things where I think it did well, but I can't call it at the top. It's probably my favorite from the series, um, though I don't think it beats out some of the other games on this list. Uh, maybe I'll hand this off to uh, to James, because I'm not sure. James, I assume, played this game a long time ago. What your, what your lasting impact of Trails from Zero as an entry in that franchise is in terms of its writing. So Trails from Zero was the first um, Trails game I actually played in Japanese. Uh, what happened is that I'd been studying Japanese for like two and a half, three years at that point, And I had just finished up uh, Trails in the Sky the Third, which uh, is still one of my favorite games in the series. And that ending left such an impact on me that I was like, okay, 
I've been studying Japanese long enough. I, I can't wait. I need to start playing this game. And even now, Trails from Zero is definitely one of my favorite stories in um, Trails. And I think a big part of it is that Trails as a series is very formulaic. And I think pretty much anyone that's put any significant amount of time into the franchise can tell you that generally the first game in a new arc for the series, whether it's Trails in the Sky, Trails of Cold Steel, or so on and so forth, generally has some issues. Like most of the time there's either pacing issues, a massive cliffhanger, or both. And I think the thing that makes Trails from Zero so strong is that it its pacing is probably the strongest of the first game in any of those arcs. And even though it's obviously has a follow-up in Trails, um, Trails to Azure, which is coming out in English next year, it doesn't have a massive cliffhanger. It feels like a relatively self-contained story, and that's really strong for it. And it makes it easy, even though I would recommend people to play through Trails in the Sky first because of specific recurring characters, it does make it easy to say, hey, if you want to try out the franchise, Trails from Zero is a really good place to start with because you're not missing out too much but it's still a really strong self-contained story the party dynamics good and i especially appreciate how like you basically have your entire party from the word go not many rpgs do that i feel like mm-hmm. no i you totally agree with that <laughs> yeah you don't play too i want to say one right, thing wanna... about um trails from zero before we move on though Shout sure. out to the wonderful translators and fans over at uh, Geofront that did yep. most of the work. And also shout out to the wonderful writing of the Treasure Chest uh, comments. And those yeah, uh, those stayed in the uh, official release, right? Yeah. That's Love sweet. Them. That's really cool that they were able to do that over at uh, East America. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. Uh, uh, rest in uh, peace. Uh... God, I'm going to butcher his last name, Scott Serena, or God, that's not right. But um, yeah, 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 we understand. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. tragic loss for our community, you know, for the gaming community in general this year. I'll, I'll echo, you know, what um, James said. You know, I played this game many years ago now. I didn't get a chance to play the official release yet, but I, I have really fond memories of Trails from Zero. It's like, like, James said, "Like it's 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 one of those games that's uh, like one of the very few games in the trail series where you can just say you can try and give this game a shot, and like you don't have to play another trails game after this if you don't want to. Like it's like a nice story that has like a conclusive ending, and you can just end it there and be like, okay, that was cool. Like it was a nice, just like small scope story about like this uh rag, almost like a ragtag team almost, even though they're part of like a um a special like you know section of the uh, of the police." And you know, it, like it, it, it does such a great uh, job at like character work and making you care about these characters, how they grow into like a family unit almost. Um, it's it's lovely, especially like with how they restored, you know, the environments. At, like for like you know, this was originally a PSP game, and how they restored it, you know, to all other platforms, HD platforms. You know, the the one caveat is one of those versions, like the PlayStation version, not real up to snuff with the PC and um, and the Switch release. But but in terms of just writing and storytelling only, like the, this game's got it all. It has a really strong main narrative, really strong characters. 
and really strong themes that it's like going for uh, in general. Do but uh, like, but when I think about other games on this list compared to them, once again, kind of like Live Alive, it was great for its time. I don't know if it holds up like in a 2022 modern lens compared to like some of these titans of uh, the series. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, I'm just going to say I don't want to just keep picking from this list. Uh, Adam, pick a game on this list and decide whether it is contention for best writing or or not. I'm putting you under the gun. All right, let's see. <laughs> oh, he's going to target me. <laughs> okay, let's do Xenoblade. Um, All right. So I'm going to. This might start off a bit contentious. I think the front to back plot of Xenoblade Three. Is actually not that great. Um, in terms of like half the game is basically we need to get to city, and then it's we need to get to cloud keep, and then we need to get to origin to defeat the amalgamation of uncertainty. That is the plot, um, and I think that part is sort of weak. However, where I think Xenoblade 3's writing is strongest, and why it's on this list, and why it could potentially win this list, is not its front to back plot, which I'm not that you know, high on. It's more the world building, all the side quests, all the character stories, all the heroes, um, and those hero quests and those, and basically how the world is built through the writing of those quests. Um, it's obviously a very unique world in terms of its rules and how things work and function and like the laws of physics in this world, if you will, um, in terms of how these characters are like clones that live for 10 years and kind of breaking away from that and how these different factions um, from Kevez and oh, what's the other, Agnes. what's the other half? Agnes. Sorry? Agnes. Agnes, Agnes. Right? Kind of like you seeing, um, seeing these like colonies and every colony has its own little uh, story. I love the story of Colony Mew, for instance. They're kind of cute with their almost like boy and girl scouts, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, all the different colonies, uh, the, the first colony, uh, I forget, kind of is like they're like a war colony, but they kind of become like an agrarian agriculture. And it's kind of fun um, uh, colony. And I just think Xenoblade 3's strongest writing component is basically like when you tell when someone's playing this game, it's like you want to play these side quests, and because this is really one of the most interesting parts about it is how they how these quests and the writing in these quests and the characters you meet and the interactions they have, how they kind of build this world, and it's compelling. And there's also all the different um, all the different the main cast, all the different uh, uh, side stories that there are uh, are all really well done. And we mentioned earlier that you see that you basically have the whole cast from the get go. You know, just a couple hours in, you have the whole cast. Um, I mentioned on Twitter when the game released, I didn't review it. Josh did, but I think he shares a similar sentiment: is that uh, the character interactions in this game are also very, very good. It's kind of funny in that Xenoblade Three took away the heart-to-heart mechanic, where there are no like labeled heart-to-heart scenes like they don't exist as like a function or as a gameplay mechanic but i think in terms of actual heart-to-heart like dialogue it has the best in the series there's a lot of really good scenes between like uh mio and uni and basically every pairing of the class all has like really heart-to-heart heartfelt 
moments. There's a really nice one between the two main characters, Noah and Mio, at the end at the end of chapter four, for instance. And I think those moments, like the character building in this game, I think it's steps above the previous in the series. Or like I kind of get where these characters are coming from and and why they how they click, what their motivations are, and they all have very distinct personalities that I think feel human. They're not just gimmicky like slap a personality on my forehead all the time. They like actually feel like real believable people. And I think that's you know, that's a highlight. That's a strength of the game. So I'll leave it at that for now. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in on what they think. Well, my, yeah, my takeaway is that it has a very weak main story, but everything else is very good. Mm-hmm. It, it just felt like, it's like Final Fantasy X, where Tita said that he has to get to Xanarkin. And in Xenoblade, it's kind of like the same plot, but I don't feel like there's any like big twists and turns trying to get there. It's just that they just need to get there. You know, That's kind of like my takeaway with it. Go for it, Jess. Oh, I was going to say, the way I see it is that that main plot that you're talking about that's not that strong serves as more of the background to the actual character development and relationships between the characters, which I also felt was the strong point. Like, they spend so much time and, like, pacing it so perfectly, I think, where it's like, you know, in the beginning, you're learning the backstory between, like, oh, like, what are their, how have their lives been living in this world? And then... Uh, when they meet the opposing side, kind of like connecting them and then building on the inter-team relationships throughout the story as they get to know each other and become a real team. And then like, you know, their own personal issues and um, insecurities that they also be- try to work through while, you know, essentially saving the world. So, yeah, Adam and I talked about this a lot when when I was playing it for a review and he was playing it for a guide ver- work. and. Like we like we always think about like when we think about like the strongest character interactions in this game, like there are two scenes for us that always when you think about like how impressive the character work was in this game, we always talk about two particular scenes. Not to say that like these were the only two like there's like from like an ocean of good scenes. Like we talk about the interaction that um Noah and Mio have um uh right when they were like uh cleaning up dishes at at, at a campfire uh, throughout these ruins. And like, there's something that Noah says to Mio that pisses her off because uh, out of the whole group, she's like the the next one to go. Like her time is almost up, and Noah is like Noah. Keep we keep on doing like side things that like aren't like the main primary objective thing to uh, to, to for Mio to like kind of pass on gracefully. Like like Mio wants to hurry it up, and Noah keeps taking his time because he's more of a cautious person, and like she gets really fed up with it. And like you don't have to like put that into words to like see it she doesn't say like i'm i'm fed up because of this like stuff like you can just like see it in her eyes and her emotion and after that scene where she storms off um what was the girl with the big hammer's name i forgot senna senna i love senna yeah senna's great uh senna's like you know um like you know like I've, i've never seen her act that way with me with anyone except you you know like just try to understand, like you know, what she's going through on this. Like she does, she's not, she's not like stomping her feet, like expecting like Noah to like immediately understand what he did wrong. But like, hey, you know, she shows sides of herself that she doesn't show to anyone else, not even me. And like, I want you to think about like you know what that what that means between both of you, you know. And and the very next morning after that, you know, like they they reconciliate Noah and Mio, and they 
they they do it by this is the flute exchange scene yeah, the, yes the flute uh, i was scene. i was going to i was going to say the the flute exchange scene is my favorite i was i, I wanted that one to be clearly called out what a, what a scene yeah and the, this is like look the, like let's reaffirm our bonds let's reaffirm like what we're working towards you know and that's that, that's kind of like that one of the, the climactic moments in that whole entire game where it's like where things click on like there's like the the very beginning of like something that's like even more to these characters, you know. And all the while, uh, the characters are just kind of like looking over, you know, like kind of like doing their own thing and like in, in, interacting with one another, having a good time with one another. Like like uh, Lons and um the 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 glasses, what's his name? Tyon. Lons and Tyon. Oh, yeah, Tyon. You know, like exchanging like that that exchange, like like Lons like uh, high five and Tyon's like, eh, I'm not, I'm still not about that life, dude. <laughs> I'm not gonna give you a high five. <laughs> you know, it's like it's a, it's a, it's like it's so it it captures tone, like cutscene tone so well. Like, like you're never you never feel despair unless the game really, really wants you to feel despair, which is one of like the biggest scenes. Uh, you know, and and one of the chapters, uh, chapter ends in that. But the other, the other scene that I also wanted to call out was there's like this um chapter where you're going up against um like. There was a childhood friend that um, Noah, Uni, and Lons had, and uh, during a chapter, like they're faced with this childhood friend becoming a council, kind of like the like the group of baddies, and like they come to this realization, they're forced to fight him because you know if they didn't do anything, you know their life would be in peril because of his abilities. So after this, after they fend him off, you know Lons is so traumatized by that. He's like, dude, our childhood friend fucking died in front of us, and now he's back here and trying to kill us. What is going on? And that's you Joran, like, just to just to assign yeah. a name, right? Joran, and like Joran, or is it Joran? Yes, I, yes. <laughs> so and, and like and like and like and and you you see this whole side of Lons that you don't ever, you know you've never really seen up until this point. Like Lons is very kind of like arrogant, but kind of like macho, but like you know, but he's there's a soft, tender side to him that like you know he cares about his allies but he's very kind of showy trying to prove himself you know about that he's kind of dorky in that respect but you know but after the scene it's like like i i don't know if i can go on you know like this is this is insane you know what, what are we doing like and it's just and it's one of those things that like him and noah get into an argument over that because noah's still trying to like process it but he does it in a very calm collected way and that pisses lons off Lon storms mm. away, you know, and Uni's like, like, what's up, you know? Yeah, Uni specifically says, hey, I was there too. Yeah. And, like, basically saying, I'm with you here. Like, we're in this together. Yeah. And there's kind of like an understanding between these three. Obviously, they're lifelong friends. And it just, they, it all feels so believable to me in terms of these interactions. Um, like, it feels like they say exactly what they should say in a way. Um, and they all have believable, like res- they have different but believable responses to these events that are they, you know, that are traumatizing. Like in Lonz's case, you know, just yeah, that, like those are like the two scenes that, like, you know, I always think back on. And there's like on top of like, you know, just on top of like all the other side stories. Like each colony has a theme and has like a different way of like how their their citizens in those in those uh, um, colonies how they try to like have an existential threat in their own way of like being free from the clock and how it characterizes like you no know, different um philosophies uh throughout the throughout the game like they kind of they each of them like do not like have the same reaction to it 
like all of them have like different like ways of processing it as like a community and seeing where where that where those stories go is like it's very refreshing and like and like you know like like just said like it's the main story is there as a background as an excuse to like surface those and i think i think it's like it's okay it's like the overall thing but once again the highlights here are the characters and the themes and how well it does that and like the main story is like eh but it is it, it does serve as a way to like give an overall objective of like what the game is striving towards there's also a couple a couple other like character interactions I want to point out just really quickly. Yeah. There's a scene in the forest between Yuni and Mio where that's where you first learn about Miyabi by name anyway. And I think that's really well done. I'll leave it at that. There's also a scene between Lons and Senna where Senna, I, I forget specifically what she says, but she calls Lons brave. And Lons is like, I'm not really brave. I just put on a face. And they have a really nice heart to heart there, Lons and Senna. They're, they perform like almost like a sibling like relationship. Yeah, this is like at and, the prison, right? They're like outside of the yeah. prison, like door. Yeah. And then yeah, they end. They end. It's like they, I forget what they say exactly, and I kind of feel silly for that. But they're like cheers to the uh, to the uh, to the heroes or whatever. They're like kind of making fun of themselves for yeah. like, <laughs> supposedly being like the strong ones of the group when they're both kind of softies inside. They have like a bro fist uh, at the end of it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's so good. So. Yeah. For me, a moment that I think spoke really hit me the hardest was pretty much all of Chapter 5. Like, them being introduced to babies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was in... I hadn't really thought about it up until that point, but with them, in essence, just being reborn in the same bodies, living for 10 years and over and over, it's like they wouldn't know what babies are. They wouldn't know basically a more human way of living. So exploring the city and it, like, I remember, I think it was center or maybe it was Nia when the baby grabbed onto their finger and it's like, it's so warm. It's like that just like that emotion and props to huge props to the um, performers, the voice actors. It, it it was just one of those moments and how it was performed and written just really stuck with me. Um, them learning about this just very natural thing and love and marrying and having a spouse and like children in general and getting old, like all this culture shock and how it was written and performed just it. It stuck with me. Um, the voice acting is immaculate. Yeah, the voice acting is very good. Uh, yeah. A huge jump from two, which I thought was mixed. But um, I also want to point out the main cast is great. But I also want to point out like the expanded cast of the game is all like really good. Like a lot of the heroes that you meet, even some of like the lieutenant characters are kind of fun. Some of them get a little bit more gimmicky. Um, there's also like some of the side kind of antagonist characters. When I when you first learn about or not first learn about, but when you learn about Shania. I did not expect that the game would actually like would would allow me to feel sympathy for Shania in Side Story Senna is when you get that. Mm-hmm. And like the game just does an extremely good job at like building this expanded cast of characters and um the way they interact and the way they fit into the world. And I think Shania was like a really big part of that and like uh that that I think I I should say is more emblematic of just like how the game can make these believable characters even if they're not like good people really um I think it does a really good job 
So it certainly sounds like we're going to be talking about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 in a few different contexts throughout the rest of this uh, discussion. Uh, it seems like it is a clear front runner here. So just in the interest of time, let's just look at some of the other games that are on this list that we still want to kind of give their props and have done really well and are emblematic of some really strong writing or storytelling in RPGs, but might not top the high bar that Xenoblade Chronicles 3, based on the discussion we just had, seems to have set. Um, the next game that I'll look at on here is Triangle Strategy. Obviously, this was our most anticipated game of the year. It is a game that, in general, I feel like the more distance that I have from having played it when it first released on Switch, the more I do appreciate it. The, I like It was a very strong entry and set out to do exactly what it's set to do uh, as a an homage to the grid-based SRPGs of yesteryear. Um, and on terms of a specific writing standpoint, Triangle Strategy's main crux is that it has its branching narrative based on your liberty, morality, utility decisions. And it is the sort of game that maybe, maybe borrowing from some of the uh, kind of themes and framework that a game like Tactics Ogre let us cling together set so long ago, it allows for that branching narrative based on your decisions in a very specific mechanic of the 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 scales of what is it? The scales of conviction, liberation, conviction. conviction. All right, the scales of conviction. So uh, it is a game that I think I appreciate that it does allow for a lot of variability in which which units you recruit i'm trying to i'm trying to keep this specifically tailored to writing which areas you go to um exactly how the game concludes based on the decisions that you make though it is also kind of a thing that we've seen done before it's not something that is wholly unique and novel and on top of that i feel like i would have appreciated it more if the scales mechanic wasn't so overt i kind of wish that triangle strategy allowed you to make the same sorts of decisions and even branch in the same way, but just kind of cut this, the scales of conviction scenes out. I just kind of felt like that wasn't needed. Like the out, the outcome of the decisions were fine, but I didn't need like a narrative, like let's have a vote and decide whether we're going to this country or that country. I, I kind of wish you just made the decision. Just you got an option and you went to one place or the other, or, or the option was predicated on, a, on something you did in a battle or something like that. So if Triangle Strategy, if, I appreciate it a lot, but I don't think it stands up to some of the other titles here. Yeah, I, th- I think I think if we had a character of the year category, like Benedict from Triangle Strategy would be like a clear front runner for me. Like mm-hmm. the incredible mm-hmm. character. One of the best I've seen this year. Crazy. But like in general, like it does a really, really de- like great job at like foreshadowing like future events at like early scenes. But like it, it's kind of, but it's kind of a weird mixed bag because like once you get to like the the, the three routes uh, on like what they actually like tell like the Roland route like the context be, uh, behind that is like crazy it's like oh my god <laughs> like Roland please <laughs> you know when it comes to folding you know his his convictions and then the um you know the the Benedict route is like really crazy too but in terms of in general like it it, it has it has a decent like overall story and like some memorable characters but it doesn't like once again it doesn't stack up to like a, a lot of the the what we have on this list uh, for me i think I, I just i think it has it excels better in other categories future categories to say i don't think writing storytelling 
is one of them, though I appreciate for it for what it is. If they had like a triangle strategy too, that like like you know refines a lot of what it's going for, I think it has a real shot at winning this. But you know that's on a hypothetical sequel that's amazing, more so than what we have right now. I want to point out. Uh, I really liked the character of Svarog. He is basically, if you don't remember, like he's like the uncle to Gustav and kind of like the one sympathetic character of the yeah. Empire. Uh-huh. And he, like the way his character arc turns out is like very different on the different paths. He's even the final boss on one of the paths. And like it's always believable, like whichever, whichever path it is. And I think just like how his sort of story ends is. Um, really well done based on depending on like what you choose to do. And it's almost like the consequences of your actions. So I thought like, I just kind of, when I think about like the different paths, I kind of think about him mostly um, in terms of uh, his basically role in this world and the story that you kind of shape, depending on the, on the decisions you make. The the one unforgettable scene for me, it's story scene in that game for me is like when you pick Frederica's route and like how strongly, uh, um, Benedict opposes it, and you have the showdown between Serenoa and Benedict. Uh, or the, the, show, the showdown between Serenoa and Frederica, if you don't choose a route, is yeah, also, also really good, too. Right? Like, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, the, like the, those scenes in the game are just like fantastic, and I wish it kept that energy throughout more of the game. So there's still about six games on this list, so let's just kind of roll through them. One of the games that's remaining is Pentiment, which this is a game that I think I'm the only one here that's both played Pentiment and Xenoblade Chronicles 3. So it's kind of like it falls to me to uh, decide whether Pentiment deserves to be at or above Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Well, to, to spoil the ending, I was I was I thought this might have been a toss up as we went into this podcast. But now that we've had the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 discussion, I do think it falls a little bit short. So Pentiment, of course, is a narrative RPG that released late in the year that takes place in like the late middle, the late middle ages uh, in what is now modern day Germany. Um, Pentiment is a game that I strongly recommend. It is a game that I think it, it is basic. It's a narrative game. Everything that this game does well is because of the way it handles character and storytelling and narrative uh and it does so many things that we've seen in other games but combines them in a way that i do think is wholly unique so uh it's the whole game is basically one big dialogue tree that is that occurs over like three periods of time there are multiple time skips and where decisions both are overtly and subduedly meaningful in terms of you say a certain thing or you you witness a certain event and it'll carry forward and the game will remember that sometimes the game will explicitly explicitly tell you that you passed a dialogue check or that you you that you triggered a thing and then and sometimes it doesn't where depending on the way you behave as your character and interact with the other townsfolk in this tiny town it takes place in a very rural setting with a very small cast all st- all told where you're like, oh, I didn't realize that being a dick to this character meant that I was going to see this outcome, or being nice to this character uh, meant that I was going to see this outcome. And sometimes it's not in the way that you expect. For instance, I'm going to spoil um, uh, a thing here. So in the second act of the game, you end up having your main character has an apprentice. And I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. Uh, but obviously, when I first played this game, 
it's kind of almost a meme where it's like, whenever I'm going to play an RPG, I'm going to be the asshole. But then you realize, uh, oh, no, I'm just going to be a nice person and be kind to everyone. So I had this uh, apprentice and um, his name is Kaspar. That's what it is. And I was super nice to him. I always like bolstered his ideas and, you know, showed him that I believed in, in him and things like that. And then later in the game, because I was so nice to him, I could not convince him to leave and flee for safety because he's like, no, I'm sticking with you. And because of that, he dies. And then when I play through the game a second time, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a dick to this guy. Like, I'm just like completely out of character for me. But like, you know, you're role playing. And then um, so I was. And when I got to the same moment in the story, you can convince him to leave and he lives. And that's just kind of, I think, the sort of thing where your decisions have consequences in a, in ways that aren't predictable it's not written on its face like oh obviously this is going to lead to this or this is going to lead to this um and then the game is all about gathering information about these murder mysteries and who you do you do you speak to the right people do you spend time in the right places in order to uh push the dialogue and the narrative into the the outcome that you want so it is a game that i think does this so when you're making these choices it sounds like to me like there isn't a choice that is considered the right choice or the wrong choice. They're just different choices. Exactly. Yeah. It's not. So the way the game is framed, you, uh, you have to decide who you think the culprit is. And then the game is very coy about, was that the right choice or the wrong choice? Certainly you had a bunch of evidence. Uh, and the game is not about like, this is the good ending, the bad ending, the Paragon ending, or the alternate ending. You just, the the game has a clearly bespoke written ending. It's just that how you approach it changes the experiences that you have, the characters that you um, uh, spend time with. And then this is something that I don't normally think of as narrative, but I, but I do think it counts here is that different characters will have different manners of speaking. And by speaking, I mean, there's no voice acting, but the way that their dialogue is written uh, for instance, there are some characters who operate a printing press, so all their character comes in as block prints, where the characters in the abbey and the monastery who are more like educated will write in like fancy script. And then there's characters who are less educated where as their script writes, you'll see errors get corrected because it's supposed to like be emblematic of like their their accent or or the fact that they um are just rural country farmers and they don't have a formal education. So that stuff I think uh is what this game is at heart. And I know we have a lot more to talk about, so I'll try to wrap it up there. I think Pentiment is a, it does a lot of good, compelling narrative design in a very small, intimate package. It doesn't reach the highs of Xenoblade Chronicles 3, and not on a scale factor, but just uh, in terms of um, it focuses primarily, it doesn't focus on any character to any extent that the party members in Xenoblade Chronicles 3 has, other than except the, the main protagonist that you play as. Um, but I do think that what it's, it, 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 what it sets out to do, it does at a very high level. So I wanted to at least give Pentiment its time in the sun here. I need to get around to that. Yeah. I need to play it too. Yeah. I really want to play it. (laughs) All right. A few more titles, a few more titles on the list. Here's one. Uh, and this is one that again, because of our December to November window, is in consideration for this year, and that is Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker. So this one is, we have two, as, to my knowledge, we have two big Final Fantasy XIV players here, and that is 
James and Chow. So for Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, I hand the discussion over to you guys to talk about Endwalker as a whole, Endwalker as it stands compared to other expansions in Final Fantasy XIV, uh, why it's on this list, and what it does well from a writing standpoint. I'll hand it off to James first. Okay. So overall, I, I really enjoyed Endwalker's writing. I do think it has some issues. Uh, the major one I think I've seen most people talk about is it kind of like pulls a penultimate villain for the like entire like 14 story arc kind of out of a hat, which it's I mean, some people really didn't like that. I think generally it was fine. The way that the writing was handled was fine. And I do think that the overall conclusion and how you get to it and the the atmosphere of especially the last area, Ultima Thule, is uh, handled really well. Um, the one problem when talking about 14, it's kind of like a similar problem that we had like years ago when we were talking about Charles in the Sky, the third, where it's like, how do you judge just the conclusion of a story when there's all these other aspects of the story beforehand and this is even worse because it's like you've had like a realm reborn heaven's word stormblood Shadowbringers. so it's like the only people that can really talk to uh endwalker's story are people that have put at minimum like 300 400 hours into 14 and that's if they were rushing to just do the story and nothing else so i don't know how do you feel about endwalker's story chow um i felt it was great for the most part but I do agree with the settlement. I do, I do not like Twitter being the last boss. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Wait, what does that mean? What do we mean Twitter being uh, the, the final the boss? Last, the last boss is is a a blue bird who who doom scrolled too hard. Uh, that is literally it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So call it Twitter. It's, okay, I I didn't know. But yeah, um, I I think it, it it's okay. So. Endwalker is having some pacing issues from the beginning. And I think it, it kind of, like, it starts to get really good. Like, when you're about, like, 15 hours in, it takes a very kind of like a slow, kind of like a slow build-up. And when it starts picking it up, it kind of picks up very good. Then it just has, like, a slow moment again. It's a very weird kind of pacing, I would say. Um, like, overall, I think, I don't think we should judge it too harshly. Just because the conclusion is not perfect, I feel like a lot of games don't deliver the perfect conclusion, but it, it's out there on one of the better conclusions out there. And with all the things that have released before it, and it sticks to landing somehow, I, I, I think we should not demerit for that. That's that's my take with Endwalker. Also, it's very much uh, um, Endwalker's conclusion is more about the themes rather than the actual like events. And I feel like it handles it really really well i'm like again ultimate Thule, like everyone that's played and walker like that like especially doing it on like the launch week just getting to ultimate Thule, going through that whole thing uh, especially if you got there before like most people got to the end of the game there's just like the atmosphere and that's not writing but it really adds to the storytelling when you have like both the text and the like aesthetics kind of working together. And I think that's an interesting thing to consider because it's like when you talk about storytelling in games, I feel like it's not just the writing that 
like influences storytelling. It's like everything else about the game. And mm-hmm. I think it's a, a real testament, especially like this is not storytelling. This is not writing, but the way that the music for the final area of uh, Walker slowly builds up as more and more of uh, your party members basically, I guess, spoiler for Walker, sacrifice themselves. Um, and things get added. And as the last one, like, uh, sacrifice themselves, finally the, like, um, vocals come in. And then it's just, like, a heart-wrenching walk up to the final, like, encounter with the uh, Alpha No and Alize. It's just, like, it's it really hits you. And I think that when, when it counts and Walker really knows when to nail those emotional beats. And there was like multiple portions of the expansion where it really nails it. Like in Garlemald with that one duty that a lot of people hated. I loved it. Uh, I love that duty. That duty is one of the best ones because it doesn't really tell you what you need to do, but it, kind of gives you a little hint and we'll be like i need to find this key and i need to find it and that entire like duty itself is a storytelling device because it's just it's really like thinking back on it i just realized that so much of n walker's like defining moments are merging gameplay and storytelling in interesting ways and when i think of like games that stood out to me for their stories i feel like the games that really take advantage of games as a medium in that sense are the ones that just stick out to me the most. I think that at the best of times, Endwalker really does that in some fascinating ways, especially for an MMO. Like, even if you ignore the fact this is an MMO, because let's be honest, a lot of people play 14, it might as well be a single player game. This, like, Endwalker really does some really cool stuff with the storytelling merged with the gameplay. And there's just so many aspects I could talk about and we could be for be here forever. But I think it would be a disservice to kind of ignore the fact that it's like, yes, everyone that's played 14 says, yeah, and Walker's story was pretty good. But I think it's kind of understated just how much the game nails like that gameplay storytelling mix. Yeah, it's one of the things where here we are diluting games into best art, best writing, etc. Though a lot of times you can't have one without the other. We kind of do it for convenience for, you know, applauding these games. But we kind of realize that in some ways it is a bit unfair, though obviously that's not our intent. So trying to distill Endwalker or any of these titles into best writing or storytelling, we have to try to just try to focus our lens on that aspect as best as we can. But I think you you and Chow did a great job of explaining why Endwalker as an MMO, as a long-running game, that people have put a lot of time into how it manages to use the music and the gameplay and the explicit writing to come together at the climax of that story arc and why it has been so well-received ever since its release uh, in December of last year. So definitely seems like it's here as a contender for best writing and storytelling. We have four more titles here. Uh, I've played the, one of the ones that we mentioned very briefly when I was going through the nominations was the Deal Field Chronicle. 
Uh, this game, I'm just going to try to rip the Band-Aid off. I don't think stands up to most of the rest of this list. However, I do appreciate the Deal Field Chronicle for what it is in terms of its storytelling, how it's got a very specific focus. It's got a very like brisk or terse pacing to it where it doesn't, it's not overwrought with exposition. It's very clear and deliberate in where it moves the narrative and you know, character roles and interactions. It's something that I just, I kind of appreciated a game that knew, all right, this is kind of a, we need, we need the narrative to serve the gameplay here. And we're just going to do it in a very efficient, uh, compelling manner without going overboard, without being too overwrought. And I thought that, the Dealfield Chronicle did a great job at knowing where to pay, place how much emphasis and focus on its narrative to serve its gameplay in the best way possible. So I know we've had a few other people yeah. here play uh, Dealfield as well. I, I really like the just the succinctness of it, of the, like just like, hey, there's these story cutscenes, we're just gonna like kind of. It's a very brief cutscene to establish like the context of what you're doing next. I like that like the 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 pacing uh, the the flow of it actually has like gameplay implications. Like one of your party members, she's a psychopath. She's like and she used to see her like descent into insanity gradually to the point that she's like leaves your party and you're like, uh, okay. And then you just see her again, and you're like up against her, and you're like Okay, <laughs> you know, and then another one like Iscarion, like to a certain point, like your your uh, battalion just becomes like so overwrought with like uh, like one of your um, significant party members reveals that like ah he's like the like the rightful bearer to be the next king and like his descent into like tyranny as king. And Iscarion's like, are we the baddies? It's like, yes. It's like, okay, I'm out. And you never see Iscarion again. And, like, I really appreciate that, like, someone in your party that, like, you've been using since the beginning of the game just, like, says, I'm out then. Fuck this. This is not what I signed up for. And, like, you just never see him again. You're like, okay. Well. Yeah, there is no reconciliation. Like, you almost expect when playing a game like this, like, oh, they'll come back. You know, they can't. They're not just going to remove a character for good, right? They're not going to nope, inconvenience the player like good. that. You yeah. are inconvenienced. If you use that character, you no longer have him. And I think that's bold. Yeah, I really liked it. <laughs> it's like it's it's so sick. Like obviously it is not gonna be like it's like like not like the height of like, you know, writing and storytelling this year, but there are elements of Deal Field Chronicle that I wish more games did, you know, that it's just like but it recognizes rightly that like, hey, like there are actual party members that have like their own like convictions that they stick to no matter what. And like you just yeah, you're like, okay, I'm gone then. Fuck yeah, you. I think a lot of a lot of, you know, if we just take generic JRPG, just uh hypothetically here like your characters form a party and then the game will do everything possible to make sure that party is just like always together and they like even if they disagree they're gonna like somehow argue like oh they're gonna travel together anyway because that because it's a game they have to stay together for the sake of the player but in dio field it's like nope this character he disagrees he's out and this character goes insane they're out um there's two parts of deal field specifically i want to point out one i think the title the deal field chronicle is perfect in the sense of the, how the storytelling is is done. It does feel like it's chronicling like a multi-year, basically series of events in the history of this island. And what that means is, is that there are certain events that are like major events. Like there's this part where you're basically like uprooting the monastery or the church. Uh, and it it's like only like a single mission in the game 
but like it's just part of like this part of this chronicle it's just like here's an event that happened in the history of this world and then they moves on very quickly to the next one story presentation almost like a documentary right yeah like it's like we can't spend a whole lot of time on this because a lot of other things happen and you could argue like this game is just not get letting not giving anything any time to like sink in or settle and it's like no but this is a chronicle you have to go through the whole thing of like what happens from the beginning of this war to the end of it and then two almost every rpg western japanese or whatnot is some form of like a hero's journey you know good guy versus evil deal field is not that uh it's it like it's it's the way the game ends specifically if you played it you know like it is it is not a happy ending it is not really a sad ending either it's just an ending like this is what happened here's the result the end of this war this is it and like it kind of it's pretty abrupt and you know i also think this is another way in which the writing is just bold like there is no winner here. I guess there is one winner, but uh, like it's not necessarily good defeating evil. Uh, it's just you know chronicling the events of this of this kingdom on this island. Yeah, like like when you your your main character is Andreas Ronderson, and he is just up like throughout the game, every step of it, he's a morally gray person. He sees things unlike uh, by results. It's like if I go this route, will it actually benefit? Like us in the end like in the grander scheme of things he's not a person that like really weighs like like the morality of like doing something it's more about like the ends justify the means type of character and he does it in the most efficient way possible and i kind of re- respect that out of that like he is a person that do- doesn't like really bend the knee so much as like okay what is the most just efficient way to get about to go th- about this and he's not, he he's doesn't not necessarily gain your sympathy. And I'm not yeah. saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. He just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. The ending of that game, I still remember very clearly. And like the, it's a very and the memorable credits, ending, to be honest. And the yeah. first credit scene is like, holy shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> like, see how, like, if I wonder if, they, if they'll if they ever revisit this again. I'm fine either way, you know, if they decide to. Well, it, it turns out they are sort of revisiting it. We get to yeah. see what happens with Walter Quinn. So, yeah, once again, was, if, we had, if he had a character of the year, along with Benedict, I'd have Walter Quinn on that list as well. It's like, this this person's insane, but you know what? Hell yeah. I know, the way that you make this comparison, it, it kind of reminds me of Romance of the Free Kingdom, how it just suddenly ends, and the guy that you least expect to win, wins, and it just, just abruptly ends, because this is how history turns out. It, it pretty much ends on, like, an assassination that you didn't see out of nowhere, of, like, someone does something, it's like an assassination, and then, boom, credits. It's like, okay. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> All right. Oh man, but yeah, and like I said, it's it 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 has that shock factor. It has like some like nice like gameplay like beats to it that like how it reflect it's reflected in the writing and storytelling. Like it has elements of like games. I like I wish games were more bold like this game in terms of like how it presents its story and like the gameplay ramifications of that. But it doesn't necessarily win this category in the spirit of it. Yeah, I am really glad though that we had the conversation about it because it just it, it is very. I wish there was a better word than interesting. It just does a lot of things that other games aren't 
bold enough to do. They they're too scared to inconvenience the player. They don't want to have a protagonist that is not going to win your sympathy. So it just it's bold. It's a bold, interesting game that I think is worth at least mentioning and commending for that. <laughs> like your 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 faction is like when they hear democracy, they're like, oh, democracy. Yeah. That's disgusting. <laughs> what <laughs> what are you what are you doing? Letting people have free uh, free thought. What the fuck? That's my, my 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 succinct takeaway from this game when I played it, like my tweet review was uh other RPGs are cowards and Dio Field is not. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, you have convinced me to buy this game. It's on sale. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it definitely give it a shot. It's 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 a very interesting game to play through. So we have three more games on this list. I know we were at the minute hour, forty minute mark. Uh, yeah, I'll, I can so get through them very quickly. Like you know, Astley Revision. I you know I, I put it on this list. It's a very very commendable you know, uh, like just game in general. Like the whole the uh, fifteen year development history of it from like largely a solo Japanese indie developer that I did have an interview with on the site. Um, but like the the way that he like he like segments the story like in a, a very episodic vignette type of way. Um, you know, very basic like you know premise of the story just uh, from the get go is. You're you're separated from like a childhood friend uh, due to a demon invasion. You kind of flee for your life to this log cabin in the middle of nowhere, just like a remote log cabin, and you don't really have uh, interact with people for like eight years because you're kind kind of convinced at this point that like you don't know if like what the state of humanity is at this point after that demon invasion. Um, you do uh, meet a crow that can talk, and that is like your companion for the game. You don't know like where this crow has come from. Um, crow doesn't you know do... where he came from. <laughs> yep, exactly. And um, you you kind of travel with this crow, and then eventually at the beginning of the game you do meet other humans, and from then on it becomes like a very episodic uh, tale of like chapter one is like uh, the story about this um, girl's father who went into the mines to try and like uh, find like a, a cure for her sickness or her sister, uh, one of the daughter's sicknesses, and uh, you go there, you find that you you find this uh, guy who's been trying to you know find this cure. Um, you and you come across the, the scales that have like, the power to manipulate time, fish shifting it forward and backward. Um, and then you kind of learn like what the what like the ramifications are of time travel if you decide to mess with the timeline. So you know, chapter two, um, after you kind of like ha- like you meet this character early on that like uh, like you travel him to like to this capital and the title like your base of operations. So like each chapter in this game takes you into like another like region because you're like working for this guild now um like kind of like finding a way to like have like a, a life you know uh after meeting humans um chapter two is about like this uh, story about um you have to go make the supply shipment to this elderly couple because the, they can't um they can't they can't travel outside of that because they need to be by this plant that uh treats like a, a certain like ailment that one of the uh elderly have in them they have like a uh, pet wolf as well and you learn that they lost their son to a demon uh long ago you go through like this like the story of that chapter only to learn like the the spirit of that demon now resides in the wolf um i i played this part of the game i haven't finished it it's, it kind of sounds funny like trying to explain it like it sounds a little bit silly but this is all true and it's you know it, it's actually fairly well written i mean i guess well written i should say it's conceptually kind of neat the writing itself the localization is not very good uh but obviously the, yeah, very, like, is there is definitely there 
Yeah. I, but like, I, like the plight of these like two elderly people and their dog and their, you know, their murdered children and whatnot is like pretty like, like conceptually interesting and kind of small scale enough to feel like personal. But the localization of this game is definitely a weak point. Going to pull it back. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, like I just appreciate like the chat, like the like the vignettes, like they they continually ramp up because chapter three is about like you. Chapter three begins with you uh, seeing this person from the far far future who can like fly, and he's like he's kind of like the guardian of like you shouldn't be tampering with time, and I'm I'm here to make sure that you don't do that. And he flings you back into into a place of like a. a, a, a like the volcano is about to erupt, and you meet these two witches, and you meet the, their backgrounds. They become very significant characters as the game goes on. The game goes on, to like you know, it touches so many things. It's not, it's not like the well, best well put together in terms of in terms of writing and storytelling, but it gives it gives you interesting scenarios that like it like things that like you don't really know what you're in for until you actually like get into it, and you're like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? Because it really actually deals with like time travel in a very specific way of like like the the game like the ramifications of like messing with time travel and like the sacrifices that you have to make along the way. So like this this game ends on a very grim note in the main scenario. I'd like to the point that you've kind of lost everything at this point. And like the postscript um takes it in a different direction, recontextualizes like what is the nature of this world in general because you learn in the main scenario that like your your view of like earth of like where this land uh, like this land that you're on like the people and you like earth just stops at a certain point like at a certain point like the land stops you know and you're like why why does the land stop and why does like this uh, this uh other land called elysium exist you know like at a certain point everything uh north east and south stop like there's just no more land at a certain point, but West has like a certain like passage to this land called Elysium, and what does that indicate? So it's very difficult to like kind of like sum up like what the writing and the storytelling of this the game is. I just appreciate that like this game is very 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 ambitious in what it's trying to tell. It's not like the like I said like the most like cohesive way to go about it, but the scope of it is very admirable. Uh, I uh, I guess this is the be- best way I can like sum it up without like having to like you know like with FF14 Endwalker I can talk hours and hours about like this game of like what it's trying to do and it's very admirable but you know at the end of the day it's like it it, it is at a certain point like very amateurish because of the like there's one sole person working on this so he's like w- working on like gameplay systems and narrative and characters etc so like I-, I tried to show this thing to my friend and he felt like the theme of the game felt very clashing you know you definitely can see it's done by a solo developer right <laughs> with like mm-hmm. ufos and <laughs> let's not get into ufos oh yeah <laughs> it was like yeah but, but yeah it's yeah. It's, it's 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 a lot but i i you know i, I appreciate for it for that um relayer i put up on here because it is a pretty interesting like like you don't see many space opera rpgs uh these days so it's very like kind of novel in that aspect i wouldn't say it's like the most compelling story i mean it it is like it does have a nice narrative hook from the get-go of like uh this girl lost her sister like during this tragic incident uh you do find her at the very beginning of the game and she's kind of like working for the bad guys for some reason you have a lot of questions and it does have like this very deeply personal tale of like 
your main character like ha- like can't recall some part of her, her memory some time ago, but like you you quickly learn like she was a pretty shitty person uh, back then, and there are uh, reasons behind why she was like that, and you quickly learn that, and you quickly learn like you know like um, this whole crew that you're with and like their backgrounds and like it's a pretty interesting tale of like not only just a, like a deeply personal tale of like of these characters that you meet and like how their constellations like are serving to like their bigger uh, the bigger narrative and there's like there's all sorts of like political factions along the way and like how a person like literally becomes like a shar from gundam his descent into like madness and where that where that uh ends up it's a it's a pretty interesting tale and like at the very ending of that game like opens up like a like i'm very interested to see like like a sequel to that game because it pretty much ends up with like your main character dying and like her her sister has to take up her name because like because she's pretty much a war criminal at that point and the only way to like kind of like wipe the slate clean of like she's very much like redeemed by that point but she's still like a war criminal so she takes up her dead sister's name at the end of it um you know and i've I've talked about how like the 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 post uh like post game stuff kind of takes a dis does a disservice to the game because it's like it's like a what if scenario on like what if like all the like the really really tragic shit did it happen and like the characters like decided to like continue exploring the stars um which is like it is a disservice to that writing and storytelling like i i don't think it should even have that content in the game so that's kind of like the big fault of it mm-hmm. um so yeah relayer very very neat narrative and like the way the, the story is trying to tell um, but I don't think it wins this, uh, obviously, because of like the post game stuff and like how it does a disservice to that. Uh, Citizen Sleeper, man, I if it wasn't Xenoblade Three, I would actually fight for this for this game to like win it. Um, Citizen Sleeper, I, I've recently uh, com- uh, fi- uh, started fit- and completed it uh, this past week, and it's like a nice like seven to eight hour RPG uh, experience. That is uh, the the very beginning of it. It's like you're kind of like a robot that wakes up at this space station, and like you have this emulated consciousness, so you're known as a sleeper because your main vessel is in cryo sleep because you sold it off for whatever whatever reason to a corporation. So, but like being a sleeper is technically illegal in this world. So you're like at the very beginning, like you have to like deal with certain things, like a tracers after you, hunters after you, because of like you're not supposed to be here as a sleeper but um as you uh, like that is like your own personal thing and the other things that you're worried about is like trying to find like a life here how do you make a life out of nothing you're basically just like like you wake up in a scrapyard and you're like what the fuck is going on you know and along the way you you uh you meet these uh residents of the space colony like just just different stories of like people living their life like one is like this uh, father and daughter. Um, this fa- father has to like work like crazy hours, um, you know, uh, leaving his like you know daughter, you know, up to a caretaker, you know, for several uh, like many hours at a time. And he's trying to find a way to like kind of get off the space station, try to find a new life, you know. So you kind of uh, un- like learn aspects of this world through their lens. You you learn about this uh, other um, this a person who like repairs the space station and like how they've been uh, scammed multiple times due to like a, like a, an ex that they had and like tried to like, they're trying to find like, a way of a forward. Um, but they keep like running into like these unfortunate situations and like 
So you're trying to help them out with their uh, problem. You have this ex-mercenary that's been, you know, repairing this uh, spaceship that they have. But the one of the they one of the key components to repairing the spaceship is like stolen, and you have to go find that out. And then you learn that like, they have a, a a relationship with this uh, thief that they meet, and like the fallout of that. So you're you're, th- you're like kind of seeing like the the how people are living their lives in this very fucked up world that's like kind of like done them no service and it's a it's very very well written and like the stories and the and the characters and the themes that it's going for amazing it's all just bottled up in this like very brief experience but it's so well done that like i i, I fell in love with it and at any time like this game has multiple endings and at like at some points of the story like you can just like end the game preemptively because like with some of these stories like hey we're getting off of this like space station do you want to come with us and it gives you the option do you want to board that or do you want to stick it out on on the space station and continue to see like what other potential stories it may have but you can just end it right there and be like yeah i'm done with here you know there might be like loose loose threads that i don't want to pursue because like i'm just done here you know i'm exhausted i'm i've had enough or you can keep on pushing through so it's a very, very heartfelt um, story that really, really uh, stuck with me um, as I played through the game. Um, Citizen Sleeper, uh, an amazing, amazing um, RPG experience um, this year. And I just wanted to shout that out. You know, I think Xenoblade 3 still wins this because of the, of the scope of it and like what it's doing. But Citizen Sleeper was just an amazing experience. It seems like a perfect Switch game for me to play uh, over the... Um... The holiday break yeah yeah it, it will lend itself well to that all right so i'm looking at the list for writing and storytelling and we it looks like uh i'm glad that we were able to give some time for games like citizen sleeper and triangle strategy and deal field chronicle because i think a lot of those we're going to see as we discuss the main list why they might be in contention for being in our top 10 of the year but for specifically writing and storytelling it seems like the top three games remaining that are in contention are Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, and then the one that we initially kicked off this conversation with, uh, I Was a Teenage uh, Exocolonist. So to be unfortunate to Jess, she is the only one that can defend I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. And I guess... Yeah, I'm just going to right away and be like, yeah, I don't think it's as good as Xenoblade, so... We also remember we also yeah. need to pick a runner up. So like, <laughs> we need oh, to decide okay. what number two is. Well, well what's the other option? Final Fantasy, right? Yes. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, is I, a strong argument. So, I guess just to just to get there, um, it seems like are we in agreement that Xenoblade Chronicles three is our winner here? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I'd agree with that. But I'm with Jess though. Like, like I feel that with a, with like you know a very similar scenario with Citizen Sleeper. Like we're the only mm-hmm. ones that can really defend like our small indie game stories uh, for you that. Asked but... Beforehand, if there was going to be a sleeper hit that I should have played, that's <laughs> <laughs> the, right, the important so, reality it, of RPGs uh, is that I, there's I, a I lot really of them that take a while. Sorry. I really enjoy Ian Walker's story, and I think there is something to be said about the way fourteen works and how there's like a bunch of smaller stories interspersed throughout that entire expansion through like side quests and whatnot that quite frankly, most people will never even see because there's just so many. And 
a lot of people, the way they play uh, 14 as an MMO is very uh, streamlined. Um, but yeah, I mean... I'd probably my... vote for Endwalker as well. I feel like at the most climatic moment in Xenoblade 3, the game just kind of have you find this ship... Uh, stuff to f- uh, fix the ship so you can get to the last point, which really kind of ruined the pacing after the extremely well done chapter five or chapter five to six, I would say. Yeah, but- the more I think about Xenoblade 3, the more I realize that for me specifically, I felt like the conclusion of that game really kind of like the wheels fell off a bit, like from a pacing standpoint, and also the way they kind of conclude things in general. But at the same token, there are so many really, really good side uh, side quests in Xenoblade 3. And even if it's not the main scenario, some of them, quite frankly, should have been part of the main scenario. And it's really hard to argue against the sheer quantity of really, really strong stories within that game world. And um, I also accept that trying to argue for uh, an MMO that only, as far as I can tell, only two people in this call have actually played through the most recent expansion is a uh, losing Freak, battle. I have to. Oh, you ha- Oh, Oh, so you have, um, can you defend uh, that? <laughs> uh, it would definitely be my number two. All right. Yeah, number two. I wanted yeah. to say that Brian made a compelling argument for Pentiment also, uh, once again, like sitting alone as its defender, but like, he convinced me well, to play I, it. I, yeah, so. I, I, I have played yeah, Pentiment and Xenoblade, <laughs> and I, yeah, luckily I'm in a place where I can say I'm. I played Pentiment and Pentiment and Xenoblade. Pentiment, I don't think, uh, quite reaches. So I'm voting for Xenoblade and Pentiment. I feel like it could be a runner-up, but I'm also okay just calling Endwalker. Again, one of the boundary conditions of this site is that we can't have everyone play everything. That's obviously an impossibility. So there is a little bit of, uh in equilibrium i don't know with the fact that some of these games all of us have played some of these games one of us has played and we try to navigate that as best as we can yeah to to put it into perspective like i had to choose between pentiment and citizen sleeper uh to play this week before game of the year and like if i didn't play citizen sleeper i don't think it would get any representation on this whole podcast if i didn't play it Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the the reality of it and i feel like if that would have been a shame if citizen sleeper didn't get any representation whatsoever on this uh, game of the year podcast we say every year that there's too many rpgs and it has never felt more like accurate than especially the last like four months it's just been impossible like physically impossible for all of us to play everything like notable that's come out did you uh sorry i was gonna ask did you finish uh monochrome uh mobius or whatever. Uh, my review will be up by the time this uh, podcast goes up, so people can see why I haven't brought it up uh, then. Uh. That's uh, that's auspicious. So right now I have listed that Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is the winner. I have marked Endwalker as our runner-up, though uh, I guess here is a chance to see whether Citizen Sleeper or I Was a Teenage Exocolonist should be a runner-up if uh, James, sorry, if Josh or Jess feel that that they are deserving. I mean, it's so hard to argue that because the, yeah. like the, the the FF14 journey is such like a, it, it's a it's a culmination of like so many years of that journey, right? Mm-hmm. Like you cannot take that away from that. Um, so, just like know. um, I don't know. It just seems like there's it's much more massive, and also also I feel like the quality and the cultural appeal it makes sense. 
Well, that's the reason why we record this. uh, Our deliberations is so that we can give, you know, people who listen to this can know that those games were in the running uh, beyond some of the more heavy hitters like Triangle Strategy or others. So give them their their due, even if they might not appear at the uh, top of the list at the end of the day. Before we move on into our third category segment, which is the best art in an RPG of 2022, uh, we do have one more participant joining the cast, and that is Alex Donaldson. So welcome to the party, Alex. We will see how well this works, because uh, I was late anyway, because I've got a small child, and it's sometimes hard, difficult to wrangle, especially on a weekend. And then my internet just fell over, so I've sort of jury-rigged a uh, 4G slash 5G, depending on how it's feeling, set up. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, you sound you sound okay right now, and then obviously you do also have the time zone difference being across the pond from the rest of us. Uh, yeah. So understandable. No, I'm, I'm good to stick around. I'm good to stick around for the duration as long as my uh, as long as the duct tape holds together on this setup. So yeah. Nope, totally understandable. Uh, the only thing you heard us, Alex, decide that Xenoblade Chronicles 3 was our winner for best writing and storytelling uh, in an RPG in 2022. And for the best remaster or re-release, we went with Tactics Ogre Reborn with the Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster being our runner-up. Yeah, I saw I saw on the dock, and I can't. Um, I definitely would have gone with Tactics Ogre on that first one. The, the writing category, I probably would have been another voice talking for Pentiment, but equally, um, I don't know that I would have talked Pentiment up over uh, the uh, same position as Brian. I don't know that I would have talked Pentiment up over Xenoblade because mm-hmm. it's um, that's the yeah that game is is something. So we have a long list of nominations for the best art in uh an rpg in 2022 and this will probably be probably be quicker deliberations because it is there's a little little bit of less um of interpretation here but the nominations for best art in a rpg in 2022 are pentiment triangle strategy live alive horizon forbidden west the deal field chronicle xenoblade chronicles 3 astalibra revision digimon survive elden ring harvestella Soul Hackers 2, Star Ocean The Divine Force, Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, and Citizen Sleeper. So again, that's a long list, but I do feel like being able to parse this list between contenders and pretenders, so to speak, uh, should go a bit quicker. And then for art, this can be anywhere from production values to style to general presentation. It can kind of be anything holistically about the visual appeal of the game in general. So I kind of want to pick a game to start off with that we haven't had the chance to discuss yet. Uh, So I'm looking at the list here and one of the big ones I see is Digimon Survive. And I wish Quinton was on the cast because they were the one that spent a lot of time with Digimon Survive, but I also know that Josh was also able to as well. So uh, I'm going to pick that one. Say that again. I also played it and sank time into it. Oh, gotcha. All right. I'll hand it off to Scott instead then. So, uh, just Digimon Survive. I'm not sure if you nominated this or potentially Quentin did or potentially uh, Josh did, but what are your uh, lingering thoughts about Digimon Survive and its visual presentation? I hope my biggest takeaway in in things with this is I hope we get a second one that is a bit more refined because visually this game is 
like the Digimon anime. Like they nailed the visual aesthetic and kind of hand-drawn sprite work so well with this. Visually, it's really like from the Digimon on screen to the uh, anime characters in the actual like cinematics, like the visual novel aspect. It's very, very pretty to look at in a lot of ways. It just, it's unfortunate that the gameplay isn't there to back it up. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the the visual fidelity. I like, especially like during the visual novel segments of the game, like when they like decide to zoom in on a character from that visual novel. Like when you're like looking at something, when they uh, a character has something to say. Like when uh, it, it it transitions so well. Like it it feels like like this is what you imagine the anime to look like when you're playing in in the game. Like not even just the Digimon, but they also like the the characters they've done a really great job and they're interacting during the visual novel segments when they're like having the their the portraits animate towards one another it's very impressive what they've like uh done especially like the the troubled development of this game throughout the years like you you, you wouldn't expect this kind of like fidelity to like when we think about like troubled video games of development it's like oh man how is this gonna how well is this gonna come together and like you know, it's had it's definitely had problems with like its gameplay and like the story. But when it comes to like visual fidelity, it's very impressive, and I really like that the, the Pokemon themselves are very active participants throughout the story. So, did you realize I, you just said Pokemon? I, oh my god! Did I say Pokemon? Yeah, Digimon? Ah, nice. The graphics mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, no, the the Digimon themselves are very active active participants, like as the buddies, and like you know, like there are some really fucked up relationships with like the Digimon in terms of their, like their trainers. You know, it's like kind of horrifying um, in certain aspects. Like some of them are like abused by their trainers. It's like, ah, you know. But it's it, but it, it's it's a very striking game. I don't know if this wins this overall, but it is a very sh- visually striking game. So all right, so we'll keep Digimon Survive in the contention for now to try to knock down this list a little bit. Uh, get a few of these stragglers off uh, in a in kind of an abbreviated fashion. I'm looking here at Star Ocean: The Divine Force. I'm not sure who nominated this, and if it was someone present, they can go ahead and defend. But right now, I think that this is an easy one to knock off because I'm I'm honestly, I'll just be candid. I'm not sure why this was nominated because it just seems like it's very average in terms of its visual presentation. It's got good 2D art and mediocre 3D art. Uh, Unless someone has a strong case for keeping this, I'm thinking it can knock it, just knock it out. I I will say Akiman's uh, art on the on like the for the character designs like well done i think i think in terms of like environmental uh the environments in this game and like exploring it especially like the capital and like exploring that aspect like i but i think about the art design in star ocean the divine force i don't think about the characters i think about the the environments in this game and how gotcha. fun it was to just explore around like I, I didn't personally nominate it but like art doesn't even have to be about characters and their visual fidelity i think it's you know it can be about environments as well and how fun it was to explore this game especially with the duma backpack and being able to like glide around again one of those aspects where art and gameplay you can't completely divorce from each other yeah so you know that that's my that's my two sets for stars of the divine first obviously i don't think it wins it I, you know it's a very visually rough game outside of that you know um especially when you know when you think about the character designs in, in game in game models you know it, it is it is the best ps2 game you contention for, for the best ps2 game of this year <laughs> i don't know stranger of paradise is right there mm-hmm. yeah that's true, oh, yeah, that's, that's let, true. Let, let's talk about stranger of paradise it's also on the list 
Uh, I think visually it's more impressive uh, than uh, Star Ocean, but also I'm not necessarily sure if I would uh, say that it's um, m- much like a much like a Josh said. I'm not sure if it would be actually in contention to win an award. I think the most striking th- aspect of it, from an art style perspective, is how you see these reimaginings of uh, like iconic locations from other numbered uh, Final Fantasy games in like in each of the different like levels like uh brian like uh for example like one levels is just straight up the uh um, one of the uh main dungeons from final fantasy 11 and it's really interesting seeing it recreated in uh like it's that tower right yep Mm -hmm. i'm blanking on the name of that tower to be honest yeah like some of them are really just unimaginative versions of that right like i just remember being really disappointed by um by the evil forest from final fantasy 9 it was like just a really generic um out of all the yeah and i remember feeling the same about the marco reactor right like i just felt like it wasn't enough out of all the places they could have chose to base the 14 rep on why did it have to be sastasha why did it have to just be a random seaside cave there are so many more interesting like locations you could have used from 14 come on they probably picked that one because of the first dungeon that final fantasy player has seen yeah that that is totally it that they they said this because um at the time me and andrew are obviously doing that um doing an article that was like tracking and predicting what we thought the stages were this was before square had even announced that that's what they were doing um and yeah, they they totally, um, quite deliberately, uh, like said in an interview or something like that when they revealed where that stage was. Oh yeah, we did this because it's a stage that everyone who has played the game has definitely seen. So you know, <laughs> which is boring in its way, right? But you get it. I guess that makes sense for eleven too, because um, that's like one of the dungeons you kind of g- come back to a bunch in the story and especially in the expansions so i didn't completely forget that stranger paradise was doing the kind of the round table of the entries the locations from the different entries but i i almost did like oh yeah it did do that i remember talking about how the song with waterscape or other things were going to show up in that game but it sounds like the execution's a bit mixed so i'm glad we got the chance to kind of give it its shout out here even though it looks like it's uh, not going to be in contention. Uh, another game that's on this list that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet is Horizon Forbidden West. I believe, I know Adam has played this. I'm not sure if other people here have. But when I look at Horizon Forbidden West, I have to imagine that this just has to be for straight up production values. Though, here's your chance to speak to it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And just in terms of like pure fidelity, it's going to be the strongest on this list. You know, like Beautiful. environments and characters it's also very colorful um like all over the place uh there are some really great great locations like you go to basically like las vegas in this world um in the desert that's really nice there's the foresty area all the water looks amazing um you know the art style itself i I I reminded of that beaverse like great water (laughs) no (laughs) the water is fantastic uh like just in terms it's, it's of pure... like the waves, right? Like the, they yeah. did this amazing thing to create realistic forming waves, and I mean that's sort of tech and art at the same time. But the water is bonkers. 
Yeah. Like, it, 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 like if I, I'm, I'm sure that you could trick someone into thinking it's real water if you screenshot it properly. It's very well done. Um, you know, obviously, like I don't know, like some of like the clothing design is more tribal. Uh, that's what these games are like. Um, and the uh, all the different robot designs are all different types of you know dinosaurs and mammoths and other sorts of monsters that are kind of these mechanical type of enemies. Um, but yeah, in terms of like. If you were to say like what is the best looking game on this list, like just in terms of fidelity, it's this one for sure. Um, so I think that needs to be considered. But obviously, you know, the art style. Some people might just prefer the more abstract, you know, non realistic art of like an anime game. But you know, Horizon, no real complaints. I will also say that you know um, one of the criticisms of the original Horizon Zero Dawn was like facial animation wasn't great. Uh, they heard that because they improved that tremendously in the sequel, um, you know, in terms of just like characters animating and things like that. So, you know, in terms of presentation, that's one of Horizon's strong suits, I would say. All right. So it sounds like it's definitely going to be in contention just because it's not just, yeah, it has great production values, but it sounds like it does some specific things in specific ways uh, that are worth championing, and especially considering how they've improved from Zero Dawn, which already was a fantastic-looking game. So we'll keep Horizon Forbidden West in there for now. I hate uh, to there do this for Horizon, uh, especially mm-hmm. since uh, it, it's already had to deal with this enough. Uh, but um, while Elden Ring, from a technical perspective, is not especially impressive i do think there is an argument to be said that the art direction for uh, elden ring is very impressive especially with some of the locations like the first moment that i feel like a lot of players ran into even if you didn't finish the game you find the well you head down and suddenly you're underground but it looks like you're looking up at a starry sky with all the glistening crystals and particles in the air and it's like Oh my god, holy shit. And there's like so many different areas in Elden Ring that just look so drastically different from everywhere else. And like above anything else, like Elden Ring has probably the most varied locations I I can think of from an RPG this year. And the scale of it all, it just I I haven't really thought about it for a while since like Elden Ring was earlier in the year, but like I, I saw it on the list. I've started thinking about it. It's like, no, yeah. Like Elden Ring's like art direction and like all of that is really, really strong. <laughs> like I, think I was thinking from, like, uh, ahead, sorry, from, from the axis of like development to, to art, right. Um, there's a lot of asset reuse in that game in, in the way that there is in almost any open world game but you do not notice it very much in Elden Ring. And every area feels so distinct. Um, and it's like, I think everyone talks about that first moment where you go down the elevator and you discover, uh, you know, the, the the pathways that lead to the eternal cities. But I just think about, there's so many moments like that for me, beyond that really obvious one, whether that is um, the first time you sort of uh, go to, the mountaintop of the giant and see the giant uh see the giant cauldron I, I when you something that a lot of people don't do because it, you have to be so deep in the game but the first time you manage to get up onto the top of that plateau which the altus plateau the, yeah um, which is no no as in the 
another one which is where the where the Rani quest line sort of comes to its climax. Oh yeah, yeah. And, okay. Uh, you look at your map and it's really difficult to reach, but once you're up there, the sky looks completely different. Um, even though it's recognizably the same sky, it's all just so so good. And so when you talk about the art design in this game, you're not really necessarily talking about the graphical fidelity and the impressive technology in the way you are with a horizon or character design in the way you might um with i don't know with a xenoblade um you're really talking about it in terms of this whole cohesive thing and in that sense it's just it's just incredible and i feel like every single location of that game that you know it, it yeah it's it's just it, it, it just keeps surprising you right when you discover the catacombs and Elaine down then you discover the deep root depths and that has such a different um such a different feel to everywhere that came before it there's some places that are that are a little bit rote like you know the lake of rot is pretty yeah it's it's, yeah. it's, it's, high, it's highs and lows right like even even early on when like you're like an early like the early zone you're going to like you know, the, your the, the the typical mine mine 30 and it looks like the same shit as the other mines and you're like okay I guess it's another one. But of it these. is you sort of accept that as part of the open world. Yeah, theme, that, that's right? a thing. Yeah, but but and like, it's like that's, I just that's, love... the only, that's the only pushback I'll give because like like this game really excels at like just a mystical atmosphere. When you first get out of the world, you see like the golden tree, and you're like, okay, that's very like important to like the build up of this world. And you you uh, go against like some of the bosses. Like when you get to like the phase final phase Radon, you see like the get like the sky just darken up, and all you see is a meteor. A single meteor but, but I just love, at you, and you're like, "Holy shit!" I just love things like the first time you go to Kalid, right? It's the art design that sells that place as yes. scary. Yeah. The first time you end up in Crumbling Farum, whether that is uh, either via via trap chest or via uh, you know the, the legitimate story means, it's it's a moment, right? At Volcano Manor, it's a moment. I think the thing, the number one thing I would say in favor of this that I love about this game that I didn't realize until my third playthrough is when you first open those double doors out of the tutorial area onto the first step. If you just stand exactly where it spits you out and rotate the camera, you can basically see all of the key points of the story that you go to. You can see um, Stormvale. You can sort of see a little bit of, Leonia, you can see laying out, and then you can see the um, you can see the, the the cauldron at the top of the mountains up to the giants, and you can see that all from the start of the game. Okay, and yeah, it's yeah, such yeah, a carefully yeah. designed um, landscape in that sense. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The, the game right, so is very I, when... good. Like I, I remember when I when you first like started talking about this game, even on the podcast. Like I remember the, my distinct memory of like my first impressions of this game. Like this game is very good at like making you see something and saying what the fuck is that and you do it again and again and again and again like like there's like i'm just you're when you're just wandering like when you're just wandering around the world there's a lot of times you'll just see what in the world is that and you'll head towards it and you're, this you're, is you're, where you're... art design again touches gameplay but i want to give one more example just because i love it yeah it's when you find the round table hold building in the capital which is oh, in I love itself, that it's amazing what the fuck moment but what i really love about it is it's structured and designed so you approach it from an angle that you never that you never approach it from when you're in round table hold so you 
don't really realise where you are until the moment you step into that ma- main room and then you go, wait a minute, even though you've already been downstairs. It's it's so it's so clever in so many ways yeah. in that sense. God, I want to replay this game. So when I first <laughs> saw this game on the list, I was like, yeah, Elden Ring, it's fine. But now I'm like, oh, shit. No, I, I like I remember the moment where you, I think it's a trap chest that ends up you end up like in a dungeon in Kaelid. I've heard exactly how you teleport there on accident. Uh, but like when you first step out, that's a striking moment for me. Um, but yeah, Elden Ring, I've I've we in our current like live document, I put it at the top of the list for now because these have been some fantastic arguments for that uh, for Elden also, Ring uh, winning this. Also, I just keep thinking back to that one dungeon. I forget the exact name, but with the giant tree, like basically the second failed herb tree. And it's like a lot of players won't run into that because it's like like a huge task to even get access to that area. But like the skill of it all, when you start from the very top of the tree and it's like huge and you see so like the dense, the visual density of everything that's around there. And then as you're heading down and then you see this huge like alternate capital and it's like just so many aspects of the game and especially the legacy dungeons are just striking visually striking and it's impossible to really forget them and i think when i think of art direction like i can like close my eyes and i can visualize pretty much every legacy dungeon in that game without even skipping a beat and i'm not sure if i can say that for every ever like most of the other games on this list for art direction that i played this year there's just something about elden rings like aesthetics and how much it like leaves an impression on you that there's really something to be said for that this actually brings up something i wanted to say about horizon that's actually a detractor and i'm not the first to make this argument there is so much fidelity i know that's a weird way to say it but sometimes it gets in the way where it's hard to tell like what is interactable or what is like a path you can go on or like a cliff you can climb or whatever because there's just so much visual clutter everywhere like it looks nice but i think sometimes it is a little bit like detracting in terms of like you know in terms of game design in terms of like where can you go and like what's something that you can like traverse or go through or where the path is sometimes it actually does get a little bit confusing just because there's so I, much I, I agree with you i can see that where you're coming from it's like it's very visual and noisy it's that's like it's like you your your eyes are trying to focus on something but since everything is popping out at you you don't know where to look mm-hmm. so looking at some of the other titles on this list it seems like elden ring is a front runner for the moment uh two that are kind of uh comrades or kindred spirits are of course triangle strategy and live alive both of these using square enix's recent hd 2d framework for their art uh though i do believe that both of these games are kind of an improvement on the style compared to like when it first appeared with octopath traveler live alive does some interesting things with the different time periods that you visit that i think is clever and i think both of these games are a better implementation implementation of the style uh as it's kind of been refined throughout the years so i am glad that both of these games triangle strategy and live alive have made the list though i do think HG2D is not new anymore. We've seen uh, some drawbacks to it, like the bloom or the depth of field effects that not everyone uh, enjoy. So I feel like they are visually striking, but I almost kind of see that we can kind of fairly easily uh, knock these out of contention for this yeah. uh, category. It, it's really, really cool to see, like, especially if you played the original Live Alive, like Chow and I, when you see it, like, 
how much of an improvement they made, like how they transformed that game into HD 2D and seeing like the different time periods of the different eras in the HD 2D style. Especially like um I forgot his name, the ninja that you're going through, like uh, going around the castle, uh trying to do like a, a deathless run uh through that is like it's just it's enchanting and it's it's lovely. A Boromaru. Yes. And then another game that's on here that we've spoken to a lot that I do think we can kind of knock out, I I think pretty easily, is potentially Xenoblade Chronicles 3. It's its art style is good and fine. But I remember when we were discussing this game on the podcast in our standard episode uh, in the late summer, I believe it was James that talked about how good um, the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 DLC looked just visually. And then I remember watching some cutscenes like, damn, that does look good. And Xenoblade Chronicles 3 isn't, it's just on par with where that series has been ever since the uh, 2 and the definitive edition of 1. So to Xenoblade Chronicles fair, 3, it's technically very proficient. I will say, I think technically the size yeah. of the world, especially when you play bloody Pokemon and, and, and sit them next to each other and go, jeez. But There's a reason Pokemon's not on this list. Otherwise, it is, it is what you said, basically. Yeah. But I think a big part of it is that just the density of the number of, like, units in the environment, like, you see a massive upgrade there because you have a much larger party. You have more enemies on mm-hmm. screen because you need to necessitate it because it's like if you have a much larger party, it's like, well, in order for things to still feel like a challenge, you need just more there. Otherwise, it's kind of comical. Um, it's impressive for a Switch title by by all means. And like even like divorced of it being a Switch title, it's like it's very clear that uh, Monosoft are very proficient at what they do. It's just, yeah, it's like it's kind of expected at this point. Yeah, it's got, like, yeah like, you know, it, it's it's fantastic, you know, but like uh, the, the thing that like it works against it, too, on a technical level is like the adaptive resolution sometimes really, really screws up with the image of that game. To, to the point, like during like busy battles, I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. It's like a blur. I have no idea, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's like I get it. It's on a technical level, but it it is a, it is something against it. Um, I, I you know I know this will meet me. It will probably piss off some Xenoblade fans, but for my money, I still prefer the way Xenoblade X looks over Xenoblade Two and Three. I feel like Xenoblade Cross, um, especially if you give it like the best possible like situation if like if you like play it on semu and like put out the lod to massive levels and bump up the internal resolution that's still the best looking xenoblade game that's also kind of cheating because that's not how like the majority of people will have experienced yeah. that yeah but even even, even on even on the video like, has gotten the creepy doll look uh look yeah they, they, they've got they, that sorted out they've gotten that sorted out where yeah. uh X is very creepy doll. Very, very much so. But the very environment creepy. of Xenoblade Cross, though, oh my god. The, nothing still quite tops that. All right. Uh, I will hand the discussion back over to a game that was on both list, this list and the previous list. And that was I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. So I'll hand this off back to Jess, because I believe, ostensibly, Jess nominated this for art. So talk to us about why I was a teenage exocolonist was nominated here for best artwork. I originally just thought about putting it because I think it's a, has a very colorful art style with very distinct character designs. And um, it 
really goes into depth about like the different environments that it creates and like takes care to make the characters very distinct from each other. But when I think about it more uh, objectively, I'm like, ah, well, like the exploration bits, they're definitely, because, you know, it's kind of like, um, even though you kind of do build your character in RPG kind of style, a lot of it is visual novel-esque where it's, um, you know, lots of it are still pictures and the actual exploration parts, they're kind of, um, I think they're more primitive compared to these higher, these, uh, I guess, like more popular contenders. So I think I'm okay bumping it out of the running. Just but I like as you age for this, uh, it has a nice. I'm doing the same thing. Lots of, like lots of like purples and reds and pink and blue. You know, oh, yeah, I like very that. colorful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah. As Jess was good, discussing this. Like... <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh yeah, but I was just going to reiterate. Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought it was good because of the, um, you know, the character designs, the color scheme, um, the backgrounds that they they care to um to draw in these, uh, in the background, like, just, you know, it's like still pictures, the backgrounds are very nice, but yeah, I think if you compare it to some of these other games, it's like, it's just, um, I guess it's nice, but not like as a, what do you call it? Like not as groundbreaking, you know? Yeah, it is very striking though. And I also think uh, I was doing the exact same thing Adam was and pulling up the steam page to click through this as you discussed it. I also think, uh, you talked about the 2D artwork. Adam talked about the color palette. I also think that the UI of this game is very fitting. Like I look at Live Alive and I look at that UI and it's almost like it's from a different game or from like some sort of catalog of UI that just kind of got transplanted on there. I don't see that with uh, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. It just looks like it's very diegetic in a way where the UI really fits both the character art and the background art. So I'm glad that we got a oh, chance I- to discuss this game uh, in this context with the artwork specifically. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, actually, now that I think about it, the UI is very good. I never felt confused for a second. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I'm okay with knocking it out. Mm-hmm. Another game that I remember us discussing, we don't talk about UI a lot in terms of a what does it look like perspective. But I remember another game that we kind of gave credit to its UI and its artwork in general is the Diofield Chronicle. So we talked about how this is obviously a, a strategy game, a real-time one, that has a very unique art style i remember i described it kind of as like the the pocket edition of final fantasy 15 only done better where it's not trying to be it's not really an anime art style nor is it trying to be like photorealistic art style but it's trying to do something that is deliberately more low poly uh, and more stylized but it does it in an effective way and then as a strategy game having a very clear and concise and colorful UI for doing the gear or the the movement or the skill trees or menus is really strong with the Diofield Chronicle. Similar to I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, I don't think it's groundbreaking enough to really give props greater than that. But it is something that I do th- that I do think it's worth nominating, and I'm glad it did make this list. Yeah, Diofield has great art, both the character art by Taiki. And also, there's a lot of uh, like environment art and like scene art from uh, Isamu uh, Kami Kokoro, who has done a lot of like other Final Fantasy concept art and things. And those are all like amazing. But and the UI is good too. But you can tell it is a lower budget game when you actually like look at like the actual character models themselves. Yeah. And it's just like mm, you know, you still don't even have ray tracing is working on that game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the ray tracing doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, uh, we all we all turned it off because we're just like it looks better without it. <laughs> 
it's uh yeah the the i think like the, the coolest thing about the game is like when you find like your certain skill setup in that game and seeing like all the flashy effects go off once you find like your uh, skill setup to like wipe the enemy like that's mm-hmm. really striking about its art it's like it's very pleasant when you find like you get your groove in it there are two other remaining games on this list that i am thinking that i will contend to knock off together unless there's significant pushback and that is soul hackers 2 and harvestella i think both of these games are proficient and they're both kind of a style that has been in a way like perfected by their various publishers harvestella has a color palette that is very fitting for it being a the farming sim rpg hybrid the foray from square enix as a publisher for that and soul hackers 2 has an art style that is in line with what atlas has been doing for a while now so i both think they're good and fine but they just i don't think they do enough different or stand out compared to like for instance you with the discussion that we had on elden ring digimon and horizon i think these two games are both clearly a step below that yeah, I mean, they they do some striking stuff on their own. So things like when I think about like Harvestella, I always think about like the screenshot about the, the quietness and like seeing how the muted colors and uh, what they decide to mute out and what color they decide to like, shine through during the quietest season. And like that's very striking. But you know, it's it, it's it's tough. It's tough. But mm-hmm. gotta gotta make the cuts. Another tough cut, I think. Uh, this is the one that me and Alex will be able to speak to is Pentiment. Wait, hold on. No way. I, I thought Pentiment, I thought Pentiment was like near gonna win this. When it going, I was like, Pentiment's art style is like someone immaculate. That's, as someone that's not played Pentiment, I'm thinking about this tweet I saw a few days ago about how like obviously like all the characters are drawn in a very specific art style, and then there is like an African character that's drawn in a similar art style that is more like geographically appropriate. And I thought that was really cool. I just wanted to say that. I, th- I thought that if not, if not winner, at least runner up. That's what I thought Pentiment was going to be, to be honest. The whole game is full of the stuff like you just described, I want to say. The whole game is full of like um, lots of care in terms of how everything is presented and lots of thought about how it interlaces with how a person of a, of a certain background or a certain um, career or whatever would have been presented let me jump in real quick here. I saw that they like for like an Italian character, they actually brought on like a consultant to like how an Italian person would hand gesture. Yeah. Like, I think that's really cool. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. And I didn't quite catch this, but apparently there was also some care given. I already talked about the font that people write with based on their occupation or education, but apparently like there is, I didn't quite catch this and I'm not sure I'm convinced, but the different generations of characters, like obviously you, there's a few time skips. So characters that you initially meet as young children, you'll meet again as adults. And based on the generation, they might be, the art is slightly different. Uh, then there's the locations uh, that are all hand-drawn in the style that evokes the art style of the time. And to kind of answer Josh's question, when I first look at this list, I thought that Pentiment, maybe not a shoe in, but like that's going to be hard to beat. But I'll just say, as someone who's played both Pentiment and Elden Ring, after the discussion with Elden Ring, I'm like, yeah, Elden Ring has so much going for it in terms of variety, in terms of spectacle, in terms of just the whole package where Pentiment does its one thing really well with a ton of care and a ton of attention to detail, things that are so subtle that you might 
not consciously observe it or notice it. Yeah, like the, the things I've that are doing, I feel, feel very novel. It's like something you do not see in video games, period. There's a very early section in Pentiment where the main character and one of the Abbey sisters is going through a book. And they the way that the game presents it is that it opens up this book as if you were reading it, the reader. And then the characters are like superimposed onto it to kind of talk about what the book means, why, why a certain character likes it, why a certain character different like, doesn't like it. And it's hard to really describe in words because, again, this is one of those things where the art and the gameplay, it's hard to divorce from each other as you're just clicking through dialogue, but they're going through the, the way that the, the text and the artwork of the book and then the artwork of the game outside of that book all meshed together for that one gameplay moment. It only lasts for about eight minutes or so, but it's, it's a highlight of that game. And it's, it takes place within like the first couple hours and the, the game just does a lot of little clever things like that. But I will say that Pentiment, I'm okay. I'm going to fight for this to be runner up. Like I'm saying, like I can see Elden Ring beating it out, but I'm going to say Pentiment. You're so ready to cut it hard... too earlier. For me, for me, for me, for me, it's Elden Ring and Pentiment in this category, personally. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't going to cut it. I was just going to say I don't see it oh. winning, but I see it runner-up. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, if the two people that have played both Elden Ring and Pentiment agree that it should go in that order, I'm I'm not one to disagree. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll just uh, say the last two here, like you know, that I put them up, but I knew they were going to win. But I don't want to speak about them. As Libra Revision, obviously, like when people see it, they see it as like, oh, what if Falcom kept on making games? In their in their style back then, that's is very you know uh, reminiscent of like Wanderers of East, you know, and th- th- like all, all, even like just beyond like the character, like you know the UI of that game is very very created of a time that I really appreciated. Um, th- do you want to say anything, a chow about Asalibra's art style? I'll say yeah. something. Um, okay, th- this game. How do I put this? It feels like a retro game. In like a good way, mm-hmm. and like this is kind of like what you said. If only like if Falcom kept making these sort of like retro like RPG side scrollers. Like I remember when I when I first saw this announced, or it wasn't like full first announced here, but when it was shown at Indie Live Expo, and I saw like it animating, I thought it actually looked kind of bad because I'm like, man, the animations are kind of like stiff, um, and like they're not very fluid. But I was kind of thinking at it with like a modern perspective of like 2D animation in games. Like once you kind of get like dive into the game and kind of like get adjusted to like its menu style, the UI style, animation style, the character portraits and text boxes and things like that, it almost feels like a game you could have played 15 years ago. Um, in a good way, <laughs> yeah, in a good way. Like it's so like Chow loves retro games. You know he'll fully admit that. So I'm not kind of I'm not surprised that he like latched onto this game because it feels like so, so it feels like a Chow game. Um, and that all the art style, when we're talking about the art category here, kind of all contributes to that. Obviously, it's a budget thing, too, yeah. but I think it works. So, you know, I appreciate the shout out for sure. Yeah. Uh, Citizen Sleeper also, like, um, very, 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 like, pretty artwork, like, for, for all the characters. They all look very distinct, very, they all have, like, their own unique traits uh, to them. I really appreciated that. But also, like, it also has a very effective like HUD to you. Like the HUD actually enhances like the, the gameplay experience and the narrative, which actually I think contributes to the art of the game. Like a, like a lot of the game is all about like talking through text and how the HUD reacts to it. When something like hits you, uh like due to events, like the, the borders of the screen, the top, top and bottom borders have like a subtle like red bar, like a thump, like something uh, like hit you and it's like ah like ow that that hurt. Or something like um when you when you decided to like um 
you know, undertake something that like um, a significant event happens, like those those thumps uh, like turn white, like something significant happened, and just the way that like text is like presented to you in the game, it's like it kind of flows in with like what like what the events are like unfolding. It's kind of hard to explain without actually getting like seeing it in front of you. But I just really really appreciated that like it, the the creators really thought about like not just like how you play the game but like how it's presented to you it's like very important to that game so uh obviously you know it's a a hard category but you know i just wanted to give a quick shout out to those so with that we've gone through the entire list for best art and our winner for best artwork in a 2022 rpg goes to elden ring and the runner-up goes to pentiment and that's yeah. something that I probably wasn't expecting that order coming into this, but after the discussion, I have I kind of have no doubts that that's correct with the with the discussion that we had for Elden Ring and with yeah, uh, it's Pentiment. objectively correct. Yeah, it's yeah, it is. Don't yeah, know. don't don't argue this. There's there's no opinions here. This is fact. <laughs> nope. But uh, so Elden Ring best artwork and Pentiment runner up. Now this section uh, is going to be one that is uh, we have a long list here again. And that is the best music in an RPG in 2022. So how this is going to work is we have a list of nominated games. And then underneath each game, we have a list of different tracks uh, that we will be able to listen to as we discuss the soundtrack of each game. Now, there are a lot here. And I'm just going to say this outright at the beginning. We, we might listen to half of these. We don't have the time, unfortunately, to listen to all of the nominations. Of course, soundtrack is something that people and gamers in general feel very strongly about when they think about their favorite games and you know the things that stick with them. They'll put it on their Spotify playlists or uh, on their YouTube favorites or things like that. But we have a long list here and a lot of titles with a lot of examples under each. Uh, the game titles themselves for best music is Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Tactics Ogre Reborn, Triangle Strategy, Goddess of Victory Nikkei, Astalibra Revision, Elden Ring, Harvestella, Live Alive, Soul Hackers 2, The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, Citizen Sleeper, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, and Pokemon Legends Arceus. All right, so this is a long list, and I'm not 100% sure. I guess where do we want to start? I don't know. Okay, so I, I don't know who put up Tactics Ogre Reborn. I don't know if this like it qualifies because that one best best remaster and re-release. I don't know if that's that that, that makes it like disqualified because it's technically a remaster re-release. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That's so, a good point. I don't know. Does it have a remix right. soundtrack or no? It, it they did reorchestrate the, the the soundtrack, so it's like it's like new. Like I don't know. If it's, I don't know if it's new arrangements, but it's having so, new instrumentals. So the soundtrack itself was remastered, but it's not yeah. exactly new. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm not. I don't know how. It's a, it's a, it's a great soundtrack, but I, I, also I don't think it wins this either way. Yeah, it's it's great. I love it. Like I, I think I think the one thing that's worth mentioning is like they actually gave like li- like lighter notes in the game for each track that you uh, uh, unlock in the game. Like you actually get lighter notes from the compo- composer and or arranger of each of these tracks, each individual track in the game. Like the, kind of like a brief like description of like what their intent was with uh like remastering the track, which is fucking fantastic. Yeah, I th- I remember last year with uh, it wasn't an RPG, but uh, Great Ace Attorney Chronicles did a similar thing, and it's like 
more games do that, please. Uh, more credits to uh, composers and letting them actually talk about what goes into their work and some of the soundtracks that are like iconic to us is always good. Um, there are certain RPG companies that could definitely learn a thing or two about that. Another one I, I would personally cut, I, I don't know if I'm going to get resistance to this, is Live Alive. I really, really love Live Alive, and especially it's, uh, like I really like its remake as well. But like when I think about the music in the game, like I think of Megalomania. I think about that, especially the new, the new Gigalomania with the, the, the new final boss. And but like th- there are there are other things about the game that I like. But it's like it's like I like those tunes because of like I've already heard them before and like seeing them, hearing them like you know remastered is great. Like the fighting selection screen when you're um with the with the fighter dude uh, going through the the boss battles. But like I don't. It's because I already liked those tracks from from the beginning. Anyway, it's not like anything new to me personally. Maybe so I'm going to play, but uh, Live Alive was a SquareSoft uh, SNES uh, JRPG. It, it what a big shock! The soundtrack is uh, absolutely iconic. <laughs> so I'm going to play Megalomania from Live Alive here, just because I feel like it's almost an obligation at this point. This is probably the one reason this game is on the list, even though I know the song isn't new, but it was remixed for. Um, the uh, for the Switch remaster. Just I don't know. This this just goes hard, and at the end of every single um time that we uh, at the end of every single story beat where this plays with the final ultimate fight against Odo or Odio, just I don't know, head banging. Just it's so energetic and yeah, it, it's it's, like, it's timeless. You know the the, the whole like think about like where Undertale and like its inspirations. <laughs> We're in live alive. Well, yeah, I'm just gonna let I mean, this play out uh, for a bit. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's uh, I, I think I, I, I would cut live alive personally. <laughs> it hurts, but I have to. All right, all right. Another game. I'll go ahead and do the uh, the next cut, or I, I, I say a cut, but I guess there are more people have played this game. Uh, but when I saw this on the list. I was looking at triangle strategy and I was thinking that I, when I first thought of this game, the only sound uh, song that I could actually bring to mind was the, uh, the opening lyrical theme (laughs) that that, that kind of very, very cheekily and sillily. I I, I have an issue of you cutting it right away. To be honest, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of memorable tracks for me in uh, triangle strategy. Like you see some of my selections there if you want to go to them. Uh, but like all, all of the all the ones I put up, like uh, Idor, Domira, no matter the cost, especially no matter the cost, Benedict's battle, which uh, uh, does play during that argument between Cerno and Benedict. Uh, when you go, all right, let me go one. to let me go to that one then. Yeah. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to uh, the, the name of the the name of it is no matter the cost. Yeah. No matter all right. The, I need to get. I need. I need to get to a um a timestamp here. So give me a moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it, but it. What's up? No, I was just gonna say. While you're doing that question, since hmm. Liva lives on here, would that not also allow the rearranged soundtrack of the Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster on this best soundtrack? I mean, that's I mean, a good point. I, I, I mean, one, we're cutting live alive, and then two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, I guess we can. Like, we also disqualified Tactics Ogre because of the technicality on that. So if 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 we're if we're putting Final Fantasy VI pixel remaster, then you have to put back Tactics Ogre. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, because we had Tactics Ogre cut, but we had Live a Live on here, which was also a remaster. Like a yeah, re- remember what we said about the best re-release though? Like uh, that's why that's why I had to like mention when we we're talking about uh, best re-release. Like the reason Live Alive isn't on this list is because it's technically a new release in the West because it never got localized in the original release. Well, that's why it's technically here. Good, it's good such point. a weird situation. I agree. I agree with you. Like it's such a weird situation. But the, sound, the backing sound right here is the uh, the Benedict theme that I was pointed to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is such like when this theme kicks on during that argument, it's like it it, got, it gets your blood pumping. Like the the performances during that scene, um, it's because because Ben like you have to understand Benedict at all costs. He just wants to be like the perfect like like attendant to you. He will wants to to make you king no matter what to fulfill his duty to like Sarah Noah's father. Like he ha- he is he has such a strong personality that he's willing to do whatever it takes. He, he is not like much like um um the the protagonist of uh, Dio Field. Like he he has like he exists in this great morality where like he's willing to do whatever it takes to make Saranoa like the the ruler of this land, whether Saranoa likes it or not. To be honest, because that's because he feels a more like an obligation to his father to do that. So it's just and- it's a. Uh, it's I don't know Triangle Strategy is such a like a good OST to be honest. All right, I, I do want to play one more song from Triangle Strategy, and this is the theme Destiny. And I I had kind of forgotten this when I was thinking about this, but then uh, I think it was Josh that pointed me like, oh yeah, this is another great one for uh for this game being in the running. Yeah, Destiny. I think it's like one of the final bosses, but I think it plays at another uh, like significant encounter. But this is like when tensions are just fucking high all, all over the place. It's like a, a lot of stakes on the line. Like Destiny is like the theme I think of. Like when I think of Triangle Strategies OST. Like, I, and, and I I don't want it to be dismissed so easily to be honest. But I I can understand if people are like, eh. But I'm just like, man, this this was a really good one this year. No, I'm I'm completely on board with keeping this in contention. It's like I said earlier with Triangle Strategy. The more distance. Let me turn this down a little. The more distance I get from Triangle Strategy, the more I think I appreciate it. I mean, what just a solid game all around. Soundtrack included in the specific context here. Well, if it's any help at all. Like, when I was listening to the first track, it kind of did make me tune in. Like, I was kind of zoning out, and I was like, I tuned in. I was like, oh, okay, I actually do like that. So it did catch my attention. I think that's worth it. Mm-hmm. I love this. This is great. Yeah, yeah, this is fantastic. I, I, um, I have control over the backing music here, so like, you, you, got, you guys just have to deal with this. I'm listening to. I, I'm kidding. I'll stop here. I know we have um, more to get to. Yeah, if I if I were to cut another one, I would probably cut Soul Hackers too. To be honest. Yeah, so Soul like Hackers, Hackers too. I'm glad too. is on the list because it has kind of the backing uh, fact that it, this is from. A the soundtrack has been done primarily by Monaka and not by Shoji Meguro, so it's kind of has a different feel to it compared to a lot of Atlas's more contemporary games. Uh, let me let me just put up the uh, the Soul Hackers like opening main theme here. Yeah, the opening main call. theme is fantastic. But but I think about like the OST of this game, right? Like there, there's not a lot that really sticks out to me in my opinion. Like the battle, the main, the main battle theme is okay. You hear a lot of like you hear a lot of like very ambient noise because half of the game is literally like in a like in a dungeon, like uh, 
like the character dungeons. I forgot what they were called, Adam. I forget it too. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like oh, this very like, memorable. This... Then. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's not the. It's... I forgot what they were called. It's just like this really like dull dungeon that that you're going through for like half the game. That like you, you kind of needed to like upgrade your character's skills as well. Um, there was like certain side content uh, with that, and like you just hear a, a lot of that uh, BGM throughout the game, and it's like not really that engaging either. So when I think about like the integration of like the music in the game, like it doesn't really do it for me. There's one track I wanted to point out. I added yeah. it to the end of the list. I hope I did it right. It's the Compsmith. Oh track. yeah, oh, that's yeah. my favorite. Right. If you could, I'll go play it. Good point. It's like uh, it's got like three different parts to it, and this is the track that plays when you're at the uh, the shop girl who basically upgrades your weapon, and. Uh, you know, you're spending a lot of time on this menu, like, you know, you're turning in items to basically upgrade parts of your of your weapon in terms of, like, which skills you have available to you. So you're spending a lot of time on this menu. So it, it's practically literally just a menu, but I think the music behind it is just, like, so chill and relaxing that you just yeah. kind of want to stick around. That's and I clear. guess... I, I, I kind of dig, like, certain tracks in Slacker Suit. I just don't think, like, overall it's, like, that memorable to me. And I guess for that Compsmith song, the fact that it has multiple parts, unfortunately, we obviously can't listen to every song in their entirety, yeah. but the, the like having something that doesn't repeat every 40 seconds or something is probably good if you're going to be spending time in a menu. So having something that's got a little bit of an extended playtime to it with some variety is good from a gameplay pers- perspective as well. So one game that's on here that I will cut because I th- think it has a really strong soundtrack but doesn't stand up in terms of the variety of some of these other titles is uh, Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero. Of course, uh, the Falcom Sound team gets a lot of praise for being basically some of the best in the biz for for decades now. And I know, as we've talked about on our podcast for some recent titles, there's at least between Chow, James, and myself, and I'm not sure if Josh feels the same way, like... It seems like they they're some of their more recent entries with like Cold Steel maybe three and on. They still have their bangers, sure, but maybe not as quite as good as you know maybe we're a bunch of boomers like back in the day where they just couldn't miss. And maybe okay. Zero Nokaseki. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't want to mis- so, misinterpret your so, uh, opinion. Go ahead. So the one question I have for Josh and Chow because I legitimately don't know the answer to this is there anyone from the sound team when from when uh, trails from zero was done that's still on the sound team you know, at this point yeah that's a really good question i'm trying to think I, was it was it were, were no, they there Unisuga, was right? no like didn't unisuga let leave oh yeah, he but left. he still did something at least before he left right but if you left, then uh, I guess nobody died. Know maybe, that. maybe Jindo, maybe, maybe I don't I know. Think... It's, it's it, that's a good question. Fuck, I wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it does uh, doesn't take away from the fact that like this might be the first time that the West is officially getting Trails from Zero. But I think, especially as far as Trails goes, it's probably one of the strongest overall soundtracks the series has and yeah that's i from agree a series that generally has like really damn good soundtracks so this song that's playing right now is 
a, probably a, a fan favorite from the list. And it actually has an arranged version from, I guess, the Evo release that's slightly different that has been on my playlist for years. Um, I'm surprised and I, I remember... that nobody put down uh, or uh, Trolls from Zero. I'm surprised nobody put down... Let me check. I, I was already doing a lot nobody... of other titles. I just assumed people were going to fill it in. <laughs> I, I already did put, a lot. Yeah, Nobody put down Getting Over the Barrier Roaring version, which is probably the most iconic song yeah. from the soundtrack. All right, let me get, let me get it. But it, uh, if if I can get it easily, it's 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 kind of it's kind of weird, right? Because like I've I don't know like this where is I feel not I'm a like, new soundtrack exactly on this podcast. But at the same time, it's like for it's anyone new for the last, and it's like I would go as far as to say that for me, Trills from Zero is like definitely maybe not top five, but definitely like top ten like JRPG soundtracks of all time. It's really high up there. Really good, yeah. So I don't know, like, uh, about it getting cut immediately, but I don't know what else you do. But I, I don't know if it wins it either. So maybe just punt for now, because it's one of those things. Like, it's not new. <laughs> I, I totally <laughs> forgot it because it's not recent. It's like yeah. it's old. I mean, you know, this is a case. You know, maybe if if the Chrono Cross was out for the first time in English. It'll be like, oh, I put my best boat for Chrono Cross. Well, Chrono Cross OST was was eligible here, then it would be no contest, right? So, oh. I also, forgot. I I see that the Final Dungeon uh, soundtrack was actually put on the list too, and like that's still my favorite, like uh, Trill's Final Dungeon. Track. Okay, okay, l- 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 okay. L- let me okay. play it. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we cut Trills from Zero yet. I want to, I want to hear the case for Elden Ring, to be honest, because I don't think Elden Ring. I have a question regarding Trails from Zero, though. Yeah. I know this is an English, like, um, English games only, games released in English, but Trails of Zero was released on the English Steam Store in Japanese. Zero no Kaseki is available on the Steam Store in the U.S. I don't think that counts. It has to be an official release. Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't an official yeah, release. Yeah, but an official release in English. Okay. If we're using that argument, then you could very well say that Kurono Kiseki should be on this list this year because it got a release that people could buy on the English Steam. Yeah, store, that, get, that, gets, that gets really messy. Like we have to do yeah. official releases. We have to cut yeah, it there. Yeah, official well, releases with English text. Okay. No, it's good discussion to have. So just yeah. and it kind of just reiterates for the listeners what the conditions are. So. All right, so I agree with uh, with Josh. We keep uh, Trails from Zero on here, then. I, I, I don't think Elden Ring hangs, to be honest. Oh, I think. Be- see, I think this. I mean, I know I'm getting all ham for Elden Ring in general on this, but but I think um, I think it's a great score. I think it's it's. I think all the Souls scores have been good, but I think the thing that the Elden Ring one is better at, generally speaking, um, is the sort of having just much more memorable individual themes for individual uh, bosses and individual encounters. So, like, some of those themes, like, um, it's not on the list, unfortunately, because I was so busy, uh, I didn't really get time to submit uh, anything for the music list, but, um, like, the Godskin duo music, it just, like, lives rent-free in my head. Um, And there's some really nice musical motif there with... uh, phrases and things that are used across multiple uh, bosses and multiple classes of encounter where they're used in that way deliberately to sort of indicate 
um, that they're connected. You know what I mean? That they're when thematically. The, when the first phase of the final boss uh, had like the demon souls like lay motif in the uh, like actual song, I clapped. And in fact, I think you can hear that right here. Well, this is the uh, this is the main theme from the uh, from the title menu. The main theme is excellent, and of course, I mean spoilers. But the main theme sort of um, it sort of is <laughs> the final boss. Final boss theme. Theme. Yeah. It's a favorite thing of mine when a game does that. Um, but I just think in general it's really good. But also, I think the the underlooked. Whenever we talk about this category, it's easy to get caught up quite specifically in um, in the big stuff. So you get caught up in um, you get caught up more specifically in sort of uh, the the big the big ticket songs uh, that are the big boss battle themes and the memorable stuff and things like that. But also, I would say the sound design and the ambience of when you're just sort of tooling around and sort of there's that discordant early in the game. There's that discordant um, sound that sort of creeps in and out as you're going around uh, as you're going around Limgrave and it's sort of uh, it, it, it's sort of uh, violins and a low rumbling of something uh, I don't know what instrument it would be but probably probably also strings um, it's not a sound I'm going to do an impression of but I can hear it <laughs> in my brain um, and again it comes it comes down to it's a similar conversation as the art I think the way the music functions um, when you're just sort of tooling around and the way the music sort of holds the world together is really, really good. Um, I do think to some degree it comes down to how much you enjoy those big ticket moments as well, though I don't I don't deny that. And there's probably some games on this list that are, that are, that are stronger in that sense. Um, but I do love this score and it's one that I've listened to on YouTube quite a lot over and on Spotify quite a lot over the last year. So, yeah. I do think it's kind of a good argument to say that, like, Elden Ring soundtrack, you can't completely divorce it from the the way the game is structured, which is kind of a, a discussion that we had when we were talking about the art. So it basically, the art and the music elevate each other, and then we, we kind of give the art its props in the last segment, but then the music here, we have to give a shout out as an accompanying the, component the to thing, that. The one thing that really impresses me about this game, I will say, is that aside from a couple of boss themes... Um, the game doesn't use that trick and there's nothing wrong with using this trick Final Fantasy 7 Remake for instance which won this category on a previous year used this trick to tremendous effect but it doesn't really use that trick of like having multiple phase boss themes it mm -hmm. just sort of most bosses just have one theme and yet those themes are composed in such a way maybe maybe not but it feels like to me that they sat there and worked out roughly when someone is doing this encounter right, how long it takes um, to see a phase or encounter. A... And the song yeah. is written in such a way where it's ramping up at the right times and stuff like that. And like I say, I adore it. Uh, but um, it does have, you know, it does have some some phase based boss music though. Like there are the, the big the big like six bosses have phases, but a lot of the mm -hmm. other um, ones that you encounter are just one piece and i think it's astonishingly good the way they've done it 
No, I'm, gl- I'm really glad that you were here to speak to it because the second song that I listened to was the Godskin Apostle music. And then here is uh, Melania, who, of course, I've heard the song a lot, as I assume many people did as they died over and over <laughs> to this one. Uh, but I'm very glad that we got a chance to, uh, to listen to these because it, it is kind of a different vibe. And uh, what, what this soundtrack is trying to accomplish versus something that we'll get into later, like with Xenoblade, which are a lot more kind of boisterous and center stage where this is a little bit more an accompanying piece to what's going on in the game and the gameplay. Can I use this as like a, like a, a springboard to talk about Pokemon Legends Arceus? Cause I feel like sure. the way that game soundtrack is structured is kind of similar to what uh, Alex is talking about with Elden Ring. Though the most immediate obvious, uh, well, comparison would be uh, Breath of the Wild and how most of its music, it's kind of hard to segment into specific tracks because a lot of it is more like uh, like ambient and whatnot. But uh, I remembered when I was playing through uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus earlier in the year that like some specific like songs from the soundtrack really stood out to me. And it was actually really hard for me to th- just think of specific ones to put down as like examples to point to. And it's especially interesting because they're using the original, like, Diamond, Pearl, and Platinum, like, songs as a basis and, like, reimagining them, like, entirely for, like, a completely different experience, pretty much. And I think it works really well for what it's going for. Yeah, it's been too long for me since I've played Diamond, Pearl, Platinum to call out the specific motifs, but it does, just, just the instrumentation reminds me of that era, which I think is an accomplishment on its own. And yeah, it does have a little bit of that Breath of the Wild vibe where, again, it's like backing music with a little bit more character to it. So I know the Breath of the I'm Wild not... soundtrack is good. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure this won't win, mostly because like it's always a stacked year for like uh, video mm-hmm. game, well, RPG soundtracks. And I feel like this year especially like has been incredibly stacked. So it's like I, I just wanted to give it a shout because um it was very early in the year. It was January, and I feel like people maybe forgot just how good the soundtrack was if they played mm-hmm. it. I will say that if there was a category for best credits theme, I would fight tooth and nail for this game because they chose the perfect remix to uh, accompany the uh, credits roll. Arceus? Yeah. All right. Let me let me see if I can find it here and get it playing. I have to get to a timestamp. It should be about here. This is what you're thinking of. Yep. Sweet. Because like Route 209 is just like, especially for like Gen 4, is like one of the most iconic uh, themes, and it's like they could have put it anywhere else in like the field themes in the game, but they knew that like the people that played and really had like remember generation four that was like a standout track and so they thought let's have it be the credits theme which is really cool uh do we have to rip off the band-aid and be honest with ourselves okay yes look i really really like asta libra revisions ost but but it is licensed free music that's been out in the internet for decades yeah, I thought it's a lot of freeware OST. Like it's used effectively in the game. It's very um, go 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 to enter enter velocity and uh, all right. Let me grab it for and, you real quick. And, yeah, enter velocity. It's a long list. Like, Let me. <laughs> yeah, is the first BGM you kind of uh, like hear 
uh, in the game because it's like the like the starting forest. That it you, sounds like Falcom. Yeah, it, it's yeah, but it, it's, it's from like you know a collection of Japanese indie musicians that uh, put up their, their stuff as freeware for the most part. There's like there's like more, like a, a few songs from like I think like DL for something that is actually licensed, but it just it, it strikes you like like wow why why is this music so freaking like exciting and like it's just the starting the zone you know it's uh there, there's a lot of that like this song emotional catharsis especially is like uh, like one of the standouts like in just japanese indie music in general um but you know it it, it but it technically you know is not uh, yeah, it, i don't think it should be qualified uh, in third but uh it's a good OST. It's, it's a damn good OST. <laughs> it's just not, it's uh, not legitimate. I, I would say that's how I would look at it. Well, hey, look yeah. at that re-prologue theme. That has like 1.3 million views, and it was never like used in like any kind of medium. It's just, it's just like a, what's it? I think it's composed by the dude that did Crystar. Oh really? Yeah. Sure. At oh. Boss Theme, it's one of my favorite hearing in Ashley, but the re-prologue theme. Mm-hmm. It does sound like Falcom. At least the two tracks that we're demoing here. Yeah, they're, they're listening to Emotional Catharsis right now. Yeah. All right, so here's one that I will uh, try to knock off the list. Well, I say that, but I've been not as successful every time I thought. Uh, but it's a soundtrack that I think surprised me, and that is Harvestella. Because I had no idea what sort of soundtrack would accompany a farming sim RPG hybrid from Square Enix. No idea. But uh, we have the opening theme here, and then we have kind of uh, a medley of different songs on the soundtrack that I can also queue up. Unfortunately for Harvestella, it's kind of difficult to find this on YouTube or SoundCloud or Spotify or Deezer or any of them. Just I'm, I'm they're just, really trying to push you towards the, the to the OST I, purchase. <laughs> uh, except you cannot buy it if you uh, live outside of Japan. I'm just oh, going I didn't to use that. this as a platform really quick to say, Square, if you're going to like send these takedown notices for YouTube uploads of your soundtrack, make sure it's accessible in some official form for the West. Because it's gotten to the point where people in the subreddit are just sharing like Google Drive links because there's no way to access the OST officially and the links keep getting pulled down. People want to give you money to buy the soundtrack. You're not letting them. And this is an amazing soundtrack. That I think if we could actually share more of it with, with the people here, it wouldn't be getting axed right now. I don't Fix know. I, don't know. I, 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 I feel conflicted about this because, like, I, I wish I wish I could hear more because, like, this could very well be a winner of this, of this fucking category, in my opinion. Fuck. I don't know. That's tough. But it's a really cozy soundtrack. It has really energetic battle themes, themes as yeah. well. And like and I remember, the dungeon I think... themes are very, very good. Like um, with their ambiance and whatnot. It's like that's why I'm like actually upset because it's like we should be able to like showcase more of it. It's just impossible to do so. Harvestella, best OSC, trust us. But no, really good. Uh, hopefully, we'll have more opportunities to share it and talk about it. But like right now, what I'm, what I'm on is this is a a kind of an advertisement for the soundtrack. 
So it's just doing a big clip of, of different parts of it. It, like, it, it does it a disservice, to be honest, because mm-hmm. like we're going to think about best music, and then like this one's getting passed so dismissed so easily. However, one thing I will say, I'm speaking to someone who has not really found the time to play this game. This sounds like a really lovely soundtrack. However, thematically, it sounds like a lot of other JRPGs of this size and scope, is what I would say. There's a signature sound, and this feels like it is 1000% that signature sound to a T. For better or for worse, right? Um, but I think there's some things on this list that sort of um, play with expectation in interesting ways. You're so trust it? us. Yeah, trust us. Harvest Hill <laughs> is good. Well, I, it's it's not that I'm like cutting it, but I'm looking. I don't see a top one or two. There's so no it's, way it's, we're it's, going to be able to make the argument with the tools at our disposal, which is entirely on Square Enix is what I'm going to say. So it, I would say on this list, it's probably in the top half. But just looking at like Elden Ring, Triangle Strategy, games we haven't talked about yet, like Xenoblade, even if we had access to this whole soundtrack, I think it would be an argument to try to make it runner up. But that's hard to say because I'm trying to, this is like a hypothetical situation, assuming we had access to it. But Harvestella, really good game. Glad we were able to kind of highlight. This is our first time really highlighting it at, in any capacity on this podcast. Uh, and we'll maybe be discussing it further when we get to the main list. Soundtrack is exemplary, but we kind of just have to leave it at that just due to the boundary conditions of what we have available. All right, so another game on this list. And again, we will loop in Jess here, and that is I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. So a lot of these other titles and sounds I've been able to preview, but this one I haven't. So I'm interested in seeing what I've got here. So Jess, I am going to go to um, this, the first link link that you've got here, the Pollen by Pong Ball, unless you think there's another one I should start with. Um, well, the Shell in the Pit, like the Exo Colonist theme could also work. The Pollen one's just the one that I really like because it's kind of more of like a, it's the tune that plays during the springtime, during your younger years, and I just find it really uplifting. All right, I'm playing it. Also, I like the, um, the animation for the soundtrack playlist. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of the vibe that we get with the uh, with the game? Like yeah, the this one's a little bit more of a happier tune, but the rest is like you know, it's this kind of like um, softer sounding music. There is one track with a voice, and that's like the epilogue theme. That's the last one I linked. And that one's also pretty okay. popular. This kind of reminds me of the OST of a Korean MMO I used to play. But yeah, like a lot of piano bass kind of sounds. This is the child you were. when I listed it it was just that um, I think the other tunes they also kind of gave me like a like even the less upbeat or like the less chill ones it gave me the proper like it really set the atmosphere for the text I was reading I think part of the reason that it's more softer music also 
blends well with the fact that it's like lots of the descriptions are text-based so it's not like a lot of things are moving around at once not very action like that but um yeah i'm okay with it, dropping this one for one of the other ones i just uh, enjoyed the music and want to see where it racked up next to the rest of them i really like this ost actually the tracks that we've heard so far it's it's very cozy it sounds like the okay, sort of well, one but... where if you really want to be productive at work, you back this up. You, like you get this on your oh, headphones yeah. to, to knock out a report or whatever you do. It reminds me like, really like a sunset, like, like staring out a window during sunset. That's a, that's the imagery I get. Yeah, there's some like kind of stargazy kind of music too for some of the soundtracks, or like very like I'm sitting like at, alone at night in my bed kind of soundtrack. No, I'm glad we got a chance to listen to that because out of everything on this list, that was the one where I had no idea what we're going to get going in. All right, uh, we have. Let's go to uh, let's go to Endwalker. So we've got a few tracks here from Endwalker, of course, as a release for this year for December. Uh, which which one of these tracks should I play first, James or Chow? Um, so I tried to get a medley of uh, tracks from both the base game release as well as the updates. Uh, the first one I posted is from the final dungeon of the expansion of Countless Stars, which I think is probably my favorite song from the soundtrack. Yeah, me too. I, I always search it up until people keep taking it down, but now it seems like it's not taken down anymore. <laughs> Like, it, it just fits the atmosphere really well because the song, when it plays, the last bus is basically telling you, hey, this is what happened to the world when it gets killed by diseases. Here. This is what happens when the world gets nuked. Here. It's like, it just keeps, like, blowing your mind. It's like, this is the end of you. You know, it's kind yeah. of cool. Yeah, like, the dungeon itself is called the Dead Ends, and literally you're being shown visions of the end of, like, all these different civilizations from like countless stars and so it's like it's not really an incredibly triumphant music but it's like it's it really fits the tone that the uh finale of the game is going for and it's like it just yeah there's, it, yeah, there's sort of like a desperation like tone to it that i, I kind of like it's like it's like subtle yeah it's it's really really good but I mean, Water is Wet, the Final Fantasy XIV soundtrack is an all timer. Yeah, what else is new? <laughs> I'm going to go to the Island Paradise theme just because I'm really curious what this one sounds like. Because we've talked about the Island Paradise gameplay mechanic on the podcast. Because of Pokemon Song. It's a Pokemon Song, is that everything? The uh, reason I chose this one is it feels pretty distinct as far as like 14 soundtrack goes. And this is the uh, the gameplay mechanic where you have for is it basically Century, a farm? Yeah. Uh, it's basically a mix between well yeah it's like a farm but you have like a giant island that you can explore get materials craft stuff build up a base and like capture like uh like animals you can bring back to the said farm no definitely very fitting and also one that i could see 
listening to like while at work trying to turn out a bunch of reports or or just getting into productive mode it's really kind of zen and, and loose and cheery all right here is one that i guess similar to um the i was a teenager's exocolonist we've got one here that josh put in here uh, i hope i'm pronouncing this right got us a victory nikkei is it Nikkei? Uh, so you have to like drop all your biases. Yes, there's a a, a gotcha mobile game, but fuck, dude, it ha- it soundtrack blew me away. Go go, go play. Um, I mean, you can just flow. <laughs> yeah, you just rising from play that I'll one. Never for- I'll never forget you. I know. You, you can play the first one, or you can play I Rising from Ash. Like pretty pretty much fucking any track. Like it just fucking slaps. It 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 has such a mixture of genres to it. Like this one sounds like something from Mick Gordon. You know. But um, it, it it can do jazz. It actually has like a blend of, like EDM. That like I I typically do not like EDM, but like the game the the way that this game presents its tracks to you, it's very like blood pumping in a very like a very encouraging sort of way, like in a very captivating sort of way. Like it's just it's like an impress like it's such an impressive soundtrack like with all the variety that it has, and it like it scores like pretty well what they're doing and like any point in the game like yeah. I, I, was tr- I was i was trying to find the rising from ash yeah uh just because that was one that you both mentioned i believe it should be here yeah mick like gordon's a good call i was gonna say like what's up child I was gonna say, like, just because it come, came from a gacha game doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, I heard some very bangers from mobile games, so. Yeah. Not to like mention, it, uh, Romancing Saga Reuniverse exists. That's a I, I, game. I, I, I guess we're cutting it. Brian preemptively cut it. That's the end of that conversation to, to Brian. Even Genshin. <laughs> I totally forgot about Genshin for last year. I would have voted one not as, like, the best OST for last year. Okay. Ominous Cross is also one that's really, really good. That's a for, for a late game fight, and that's like a really, really fucking tough fight. And like the the Ominous Cross is just such a such a fitting. So I mean, I mean, if you want to cut it, just to, just to move on to the conversation, that's fine. I mean, but I, I, but it's I think all those things where soundtrack. A... There's so we have a long list here. I don't know how many games it was like sixteen, and we have to pick a winner and a runner up. So then, it, then like... we should start cutting things like like uh, like you know the. You know, just here and there. Then I guess. <laughs> I mean, well, I've been trying, but you know, soundtracks are just difficult because entries three, four, five, and six are also bangers. And it's, it's these are these are the probably the toughest cuts we'll have to make today. <laughs> oh, it's like, I mean, like it's just like like if you, I don't know. It's it's one of those things that like. What do you want? What do you want me to say? Look, you know, can anyone make a case for anything? Pretty much in this category, right? Like, uh, I'll say something's good. Well, that's something's good too. Well, that's why. I mean, that's why we're trying to do the uh, actually have the backing soundtrack, so we don't just say like, "Oh yeah, remember how great this was?" No, we can actually listen to it. Uh, so one another another one. I'll keep Nikkei on there then because I wasn't know I didn't know what to expect from those soundtracks, but those two tracks that we heard, I can definitely see the a much different sort of track that we've heard compared to the the more low-key backing vocals of something like exocolonist and final fantasy 14 or the the more dramatic tracks of elden ring so that's definitely the kind of the quickest and loudest that we've listened to so that's far about Zeta Blade three you know all right um, yep that's kind I'll of 
So here, kind of here's the thing about, the, about Xenoblade 3, okay? I really, really, really love its soundtrack. I think its tracks are fantastic. The way it distinguishes the day from night in that game. I think that a lot of the unique battle themes are great. I think a lot, like, the weight of life, like, for some of the key pivotal moments in that game. Like, one of the best songs I've heard this year. The thing that really irritates me on Xenoblade 3's OST, its scoring is actually terrible on that game. In the terms of, like, how it's implemented and the way that, like, it kind of, it, it does its music a disservice because of the way that it interrupts it so much. When you're chain thinking about... Music? Yeah, that, like, I, mean, I, I didn't even know why Chain Attack is, is here in the first place because Chain Attack on its own is a good song, but it interrupts so much of the good music in that game. Like, I just want to hear, like, the fucking Mobius battle theme. You press Chain Attack, that fucking theme is gone. Final battle music, that theme is gone because Chain Attack is there. You know, like yeah, I want to hear like the, I want to hear the battle music, but Chain Attack keeps fucking interrupting it, and it's like it's annoying as fuck to me. It, like it it irritates me. Like I had to like I had to like I had to deliberately sandbag battles just to hear the music in this game. I I think what they should have done is that Chain Attack should only overwrite like field battle music, but if you're like bosses, story bosses, it should not be a case. Yeah, like, it's not I, like, that important. Like, I can hear this theme all the time. Like, uh, like I said, you'll, you'll hear you'll hear the first like forty five seconds of the song, and then you have chain attack, and you never hear the theme again. You know, it's it's so irritating to me. <laughs> yeah, the, I, 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 I love the quality of the tracks. I just think the way that the, that most of them are integrated is a fucking shame. The night tracks you'll barely hear because when you fast travel, you usually have it on. It usually, because how they do night travel in this game, you can distinguish between day and night now when you fast travel. So you usually just it'll also default to day, so you'll only hear the day thing, and you have to go out of your way to hear the night theme in this game, unless you're like just wandering around the field. When it comes to field tracks, like you won't really get a consistent like tune out of them because. You have to activate the uh, go to the main menu theme often, so it'll be just interrupted by the main menu theme every time because there's no uh, there's nothing to like disable the override of that of those themes. Even though they're so great and pleasant, like I love this soundtrack to death. I do not like the way it's integrated in this game. I mean, that, those are all points that I completely agree with. I'm just wondering t- to what extent do we weigh those? Because like, I think it is genuine. The fact that you know what the one of some of my favorite songs from Xenoblade Two are like the Lefterian Archipelago at night, but I don't know mm-hmm. like what those Colony Four at night sound like, sort of thing because I probably yeah, never well, heard it. Like for like personally for my money, like I prefer the way that Hyrule Strategy integrates OST more so than Xenoblade Three. IMO. Mm-hmm. Now Triangle Strategy, like... I think, is a contender here. Go ahead, Adam. Forget about the battle themes and the cutscene themes. I really like a lot of the area themes in Xenoblade. I feel like they're a little bit understated. Yeah. I think we have two in the list. Uh, someone put a lace highway, I did. and at the very yeah. end of the list, I put uh, Aegis or Aegis Wilderness. Um, mm-hmm. Like I just really like I'll go, those I'll themes. Go ahead and play that. and since these are like area themes, they're pretty long. <laughs> yeah, you might want to skip. Like, around. Just jump in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Okay. But yeah. Yeah, there we go. But like, I just like this music when you're exploring. It does get interrupted whenever you battle or whatever. Or yeah. A menu. Like when you're just like wandering around and don't have to like worry about anything, like managing your characters, and you're just like wandering around the world without any interruption. Like it's great. It's fantastic. It it works. Because that like each each song has like a proper ramp up into like the into the melody. 
But it just it just kills me, man. The way they like they integrated into the game. Oh my god. So that's what I have to say about Xenoblade Three. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil. So I think the only game we haven't talked about yet on the list is uh, Citizen Sleeper. So let me go yeah, ahead. and I mean, grab a it's, track it, that. it's yeah. I mean. I put a lot of the tracks on here. It's all very atmospheric and very into the tune of like this um, kind of dreary game, honestly, uh, from the get go. Like the moment you hit new game, it's just like you're you're in a really weird fucked situation. You're like at the bottom of the fucking social ladder. Uh, people barely want to fucking associate with you because you're like uh, like half amnesiac robot and like and your existence is kind of illegal in the first place. Um, so it's a, it's a very like kind of it, it's I don't know how else to better describe it. it's like a kind of like dreary kind of like almost borderline despair but it, it's it's very effective at like kind of make you, making you feel like you you have to find a way out of this somehow like finding a way forward especially when you like um, make a decision Especially like I, I I forgot the name of the two and I couldn't find it like because I was in a rush, but like whenever you make a decision to like not like board a, like a, an aircraft or uh, to to leave the station and get like a, another one of those endings, every time like you decide to like decide no I'm not gonna board with you, like they, it has like specific like piano key tune that like plays that's like you made a really big decision but in a very subtle way and like it, it kind of represents that kind of like bitter like on the on the spot heartbreak that you did it's like you could have you maybe you could have found a better life if you decided to board that craft but you decided not to because you have to tie up loose ends so i I, i'm really a big fan of this uh ost but i don't you know i don't think it'll win this uh, compared to like other things on this list unfortunately but i like i like this one that i just tabbed to which is prismatic lens yeah So I, I I love it, but I, I understand that like you know we will have to make cuts. No, and the way you were describing how it does kind of sound bleak when we were listening to the opening theme called Destiny, like I heard it as you were describing it, which definitely yeah, evokes those, those, those yeah. feelings. But yeah, that's. Okay, so. I think this is kind of a long list, but I believe we've been able to touch on everything on the list. We are able to cut through some of them, some cuts more painful than others. The ones that are still in the running are Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Triangle Strategy, Goddess of Victory Nikkei, Elden Ring, The Legend of Heroes, Trails from Zero, and Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker. So that's six. So we've got six. We need to pick a winner and a runner-up. And that this is going to be tough. I kind of want to promote triangle strategy into the top two. I don't know winner or runner up, but I'm looking at the list and tri- triangle strategy oh, I mean, oh, for, yeah, for, for whatever strategy. reason is singing to me. Yeah. Okay. Like, so triangle strategy, there are two tracks. They're both combat tracks. Combat tracks in these games are a little different than like typical JRPG battles. I think in terms of, because they have to be a little bit more elongated. Um, I think the way that we have to find them, they're on that YouTube link with the with the uh, timestamps. Um, it's combat resistance and combat decisive battle, which is kind of like the like most 
of it's like the it's like the battle theme of the game in terms of like using the motifs of the of the main themes and whatnot. So I don't know if you're able to find those. It's like number sixty three and sixty seven. Yeah, I'll do combat resistance. Does that work? Sure. Right. This one feels like very classic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But like this is the sort of battle theme that wouldn't work in like a normal, like traditional JRPG battle system, but for a strategy game, it's, it's got that punchiness to it, like that kind of fits, I guess, the tactical stylings of moving your characters along a map on the grid and whatnot. So, but yeah, this this feels like I don't know something you could hear out of, you know, a classic uh, strategy game, tactical RPG, to me. Oh, that's so good. The violins are so good at this spot. And I get—I kind of agree with what you mean, Adam. With this couldn't work in a traditional JRPG because it's the pacing is a bit different, but it works for the turn-based, grid-based nature of of what this is going for. I am willing to cut Nikkei if the means triangle strategy gets to live. I'm putting my money on triangle strategy just because the chain attack has ruined a lot of tracks since we played. I'm sorry, guys. I agree with you. I fucking agree with you all the way. Yeah, it doesn't matter what how good your individual songs are if the way that they're actually utilized in game it's it's fucking garbage. So, yeah, I I can I can third that. I was thinking triangle, sorry. Uh I was thinking that Xenoblade was a shoe in here, but you've made a compelling argument. But now I feel like we have to listen to this. Enjoy, guys. There you go. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> no, no. Forget oh, it over 150 hours long. You hear this song more than 60 hours of your life. I've definitely heard more hours of this one song in Xenoblade 3 than the size of most of the games I've actually beat this year. Damn, that is gross. But yeah, you can you can cut Nikkei for Tristrat to move on up. Nikkei, very, very surprising uh, soundtrack. Probably the most surprising soundtrack to me this year. For me, I'm fine with moving Triangle Strategy up because I also enjoyed what I've heard so far. I still like the Xenoblade Chronicles 3 soundtrack just because I'm like, uh, well, it's true that I guess it's not well implemented when you put it that way. But I think the quality of the tracks themselves I like, so I'm still putting it up there. Yeah, there's something to say for that. But no, I I agree with you that Xenoblade 3 is still in the running, though there is a compelling argument for not just immediately... Slotting at number one and calling it a day. All right, that's enough chain attack. Okay, so uh, Final Fantasy fourteen Endwalker. Do Chow or James? Is this? Are you guys compelled enough to get this in the top two? I like a lot of Endwalker songs, and at the peak, it's definitely like some of the strongest uh, music in the game. But I think overall, it's a bit uneven. And I think the thing that really cinches it for me is the first raid tier. The soundtrack for that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah. And by by a little bit disappointing, I mean, usually um, the soundtrack for a raid tier you'll have for the penultimate fight, you'll have for the first phase, you'll have one theme, and then you'll have an entirely different new theme that's exclusive to the Savage like raid fight. And um, it's maybe it's petty, but the first uh, raid tier for Endwalker just didn't have that. 
and then there's other aspects of some of the like the raid battle themes that there's some really good ones like um from the alliance raids uh series but uh overall i think that is definitely a weak point especially compared to like shadowbringers where that expansion soundtrack was just like nothing but bangers as far as i'm as far as i'm concerned except for the battle theme i do not like the battle theme of shadowbringers that sound like some that is Sound like just, some deformed child from SMT games that was given to Shia. <laughs> it sounds like a deformed child from SMT games. Jesus Christ. Also, you, also, child, you're saying that, but you also are well aware that that is a very hot take. A lot of people love the Shadowbringers battle theme. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we're not here to discuss Shadowbringers, but it's Endwalker. Again, all, all the things that we're cutting now are fantastic soundtracks. Just yeah. because we're cutting it and it's not in the top two doesn't mean that we don't think highly of Endwalker or Harvestella. Or here's another one that I think is going to get cut just because the, the, just the discussion that we had just a bit ago, Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero. Up, obviously a, a banger a banger soundtrack but just compared to the other ones does it does it stand up to i'm not gonna triangle strategy from zero because well first off like yeah it's fantastic yes it's technically new but the thing for me that kind of makes me not want to go to bat for it is that it's already bad enough that the way that falcom like actually um doesn't properly credit their musicians now and it feels wrong to kind of give the like the current falcom even more credit for that soundtrack that pretty much everyone that worked on that is no longer at the company mostly because the way they treat their musicians is terrible like one of the main musicians behind trails in the sky the company i remember like literally just told their family oh no like even though um they're dead and that you want to say in like their obituary that they worked on this game soundtrack no it's the company at the soundtrack you're not allowed to say that and i don't know it's that's unfortunate but that that's not the crux of our decision but it is uh, a footnote that is you know relevant just because even with the discussion that we had about the soundtrack, you know, of, of 20 minutes ago or so, it just sounds like it was in the top half of the list, just didn't quite stand up to the top two. And then just that extra note just kind of I do feel like almost on principle, though, if you can't uh, if you can't credit properly, you don't deserve to win. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, no, yeah, that's what I kind of want. That's what I was talking around. <laughs> it's yeah. not uh, it's not, you know, that's how that's how that shit used to be in the the the. Famicom and the Super Famicom era to still be acting like where they would, you know, force people to have pseudonyms like Yokoshima or was 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 referred to as something else in the Street Fighter credits because they weren't allowed to have their names. Um, but you know, we're twenty five years hence now. Like, come on, yeah. So the remaining three that we have are Elden Ring, Triangle Strategy, and Xenoblade Chronicles Three. So basically, at this point. It feels like we got to pick, quote unquote, a loser, even though it's top three of a long list. So none of these games are losers. Yeah, I I, I would cut Elden Ring in IMO. I do think that um, Alex was able to speak to this game's soundtrack in a way to put it here in the top three, in a way that I don't think we would have if he didn't take the opportunity to do that. So uh, a very strong soundtrack that we were able to listen to a few tracks from it that explain why it is still here. 
but just compared to the absolute, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, masterpieces of the other two, it falls just short, I think, because we talked about how the Elden Ring soundtrack works in concert with its gameplay, with its art, with the game design in a way that the other two maybe don't quite do. But well, that's why we'll be discussing that again when we talk about Elden Ring in the in the main list. So I guess here is our last chance to keep Elden Ring in the top two or call it just a very near miss third place. All right. Forever hold your peace. Elden Ring is knocked out for best soundtrack, which leaves us with Triangle Strategy and Xenoblade. And unless people are going to try to swing it the other way at the last moment here, it sounds like we're kind of on board with calling this for Triangle Strategy with Xenoblade 3 in a very near runner-up position. So I don't want to be presumptuous. Is that how we feel? Put on Resolute Heart for Triangle Strategy. i go for that just because of the chain attack frame. Ruined everything. <laughs> Resolute, All right, heart, that... uh, Resolute Heart plays like uh, during the, the fight against Frederica's siblings on the bridge when they surround you. It is one of the best fucking tracks in that game. It is such a powerful right, I'm trying game. To, I'm trying to get it. Uh, yeah, I forgot the names of the siblings, but the, the, throughout the game, you just like, I, I wish they would eat shit already. <laughs> One second. I am getting Resolute yeah. Heart. It is... 31. Right... Here. This is like a really tough battle as well, by the way, because this is like something you're ill prepared for that you don't know what's going to happen, and like they surround you on both sides of that bridge, so you're you're. There's actually three different battles you can have fighting these guys depending on which route you take. Yeah, but one is on a boat. It's uh oh, this one. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like I ca- I cannot think of a like. Of a bad placement of a track in this game, like the, uh, like it's always like the right track of like yeah, this is, this feels good, like you, there there sure there are qualms about like its pacing, its storytelling, sure its characters, but you cannot say shit about its music. To be honest, it it is the it is the most it is this it is the highlight of this game. And I'm glad that I mean I know you did this very deliberately, but yeah. Triangle strategy. Oops, I'm trying to sound a bit. Just the not only is the soundtrack itself immaculate, but the way that the game is designed, it plays every song exactly where it means to. So, congrats to Triangle Strategy for winning best best soundtrack, best music for RPGs in 2022, with Xenoblade Chronicles 3 being our runner-up. Okay, so we have a few more categories left here, uh, and just as a uh, performance note, uh, Scott White did have to step out for a little bit, so we won't have his contributions for uh, for the time being, though he does have an opportunity to stop back in potentially later as we get into the main list. We'll go into best. This category is a little bit more particular than the previous ones, and that is best design and immersion. So this category is admittedly up to some interpretation. This is kind of like us trying to be a little bit more specific than best gameplay. I know some people absolutely hate the word gameplay. What this is, is a game that has a component that is worth recognizing 
a game that makes you feel a part of it, a specific in design intent, something about the atmosphere of the game, something that immerses you into it as you play it. So these are games that have a very particular aspect that we're trying to commend here in this category. So we have a handful of nominations here as well. I will go through them. I will list the game and then specifically why it was nominated in a quick little bite. We have Live Alive, telling a story across multiple scenarios. Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, with a significant change to the tried and true Pokemon formula. The same is true for Pokemon Legends Arceus. We have Elden Ring for all of its open world designs while still maintaining its identity as a Souls-like game. We have Astalibra Revision for being kind of a modern take on a very classic style of game that not a lot of publishers are making these days. We have the Digimon Survive. Say the immense journey of a man and a crow. <laughs> yes, it's, that's accurate. That's we have Digimon, Digimon Survive is an unconventionally dark Digimon game that blends strategy RPG with visual novels. We have Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes, which is effectively it being a much better realized Museo game in the Fire Emblem you know, trappings compared to the initial Fire Emblem Warriors. We have Harvestella basically being Square Enix's hand at the tried and true um, farming sim RPG hybrid. We have Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin for being effectively a bizarre retelling of Garland's origin story. Uh, Star Ocean, the Divine Force, for being basically a classic PS2 JRPG in a modern wrapper. The Dio Field Chronicle, for some of the reasons that we talked about for its storytelling, for the way it delivers its narrative in a very straightforward, concise manner. We have Made in Abyss, Binary Star, Falling into Darkness, specifically for how it implements the narrative of that IP into a survival video game. We have Citizen Sleeper for some of its tabletop-esque mechanics blended into an RPG-esque system. And then we have the I Was a Teenage Exocolonist for the reasons that just stated earlier for the way that it has narrative replay replayability and storytelling uh, for in any game based on its design, about how you distribute your stats, how you uh, meet certain characters and the outcome of each decision that you make. Uh, also listed on this list is Babylon's Fall. Uh, who put this here? Let's go! <laughs> That, that was me. I'm the only game of the year, off. guys. Battle of Fall. Yeah, it's treating real life. It falls. Uh, don't do call me out, but I'm crossing it off. Do you mean? Do you mean uh, a game you can only play this year? Exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's uh, get, 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 get to it. Immediately crossed off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Babylon's Fall. Unfortunate that Platinum Games is newest foray did not work out. But yeah, I, I believe it's shutting off in February. Uh, but yeah, the feeling of playing a service game that was doomed from the outset. You know, I I'm going to add a hard out to the uh, uh, Babylon's Fall player. I'm sure he's heartbroken. I'm, I'm adding last minute here, Vampire Survivors to design an immersion because this ha this game has simply had to made its own subgenre in the span of just this year of like already Vampire Survivor clones. It's like it's not even like incredibly low effort either, right? There's like a there's something about Vampire Survivors that everything clicks about it. It it is effectively an RPG. You do go run around and level up for each level up. You do gain like these items that you can uh, add onto your arsenal or, or uh, have different effects on you. And sometimes these uh, like getting a certain combination of weapons will turn into a new weapon. So it is it is a it is effectively if you would consider it an RPG. But there is something to be said about its design and immersion that like games who have tried to copy it just this year, um, like 
have already like kind of failed at like it's not like vampire survivors it's like <laughs> you know it's it's already exposing like things like vampire survivors gets right that like it's imitators get wrong <laughs> basically it's not a fluke yeah vampire survivors is fucking sick so i don't know i don't know if you want to count it here but i think it it deserves to be designed and immersion all right so for this list i can see a few that i've played that i can uh you can you know you can approach this two ways which do you want to promote or which do you want to knock off and sometimes it's easier to find the lower hanging fruit and knock them off for one i will i think i'm going to unless people push back on this star ocean the divine force i will say that it was almost refreshingly nostalgic in a way to play a game that plays like a ps2 jrpg here in 2022 because a lot of games have shifted away from that a lot of games are trying to be more um uh less less quirky they're trying to be you know tell really compelling narrative and to put a really strong focus and presentation values and voice acting and stars and divine force has some of that but definitely feels like a game out of time in a way where it feels like it belongs on a ps2 or an early ps3 so I am glad that it was kind of called out here for kind of being able to land that without feeling awkward. Though I just don't think that compared to some with some of the things that are accomplished from the other games on this list that Stars in the Divine Force uh, stands out. I, you can cut off Made in Abyss uh, from here. I just wanted to call out like it's very difficult sometimes to like design a game around and being truthful to the source material. And this game... Like I, th- I think I would make a better case for it if they didn't like have to like unfortunately cut out uh, like a lot of survival mechanic systems because like even in the earliest screenshot this had like a lot of meters for certain survival mechanics that I think may have worked in its benefit if they kept that in. But I, I just think it's really cool that like because Made in Abyss is, has this whole thing like if you if you're descending down an abyss if you try to go up there'll be like bad symptoms happening to you uh, for trying to ascend vertically in that and this game tries to emulate that like anytime you go up a slope like there's like this kind of like meter that dictates like hey you're about to like, enter a state where like you might just like start throwing up you might start bleeding out of your skin you know and all that sort of good stuff so you know shout outs to trying you know it wasn't like the best landing but i thought it was pretty interesting so what do we think about fire emblem three hopes has anyone here played it I did a little. I got like I, I didn't get the to, to, to finish it, but I, I just I just like like you know the design flourishes of like the, the game. Like when you go to the when you go to the pause menu, it shows like the classic like Fire Emblem map icons. Um, and try to like navigate around the battlefield in order like who where to, like position your troops. Like go here, attack here, and stuff like that. I I, I think it's just much better realized than obviously the first Fire Emblem Warriors. Um, but uh, you know I that that's all I can really give it. The main reason I haven't played it yet is I saw the performance for Hyrule Warriors. Um, I forget the the exact subtitle for the second Age one. of Calamity. Age of Calamity. I saw the performance there, and I saw Fire a new Fire Emblem Warriors, and I was like, I'll wait for the eventual Switch 2 or Switch Pro before I play this, and then promptly forgot this game even released this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can, you can cut that out, but you know, it, the, like the, the like um, Omega Force continues to like refine its formula gradually. You know, uh, I will say also cut Stranger Paradise, uh, Final Fantasy Origin. Um, I'm just gonna say this: uh, the way the DLCs have been designed for this game is, if anything, like it's made me like the game as a whole less because those DLCs are really 
really bad and pretty much everyone i know that's tried to play them agrees it's like what's the point of giving the base game like accessibility in the form of having a bunch of different difficulty options and then the dlc is just like okay if you want to try this new content you have to play on new game plus 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 that's incredibly difficult and we just keep making it harder and harder so you buy a season pass and the way we've advertised it makes it sound like oh the difficulties are in addition to new content because anyone that played neo 2 would ex- would assume that would be how it would work because that's how previous like it, it just i i could go all day about how disappointing like uh the dlc specifically was for that game and oh my god i feel is this how zach felt <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. realized. Yeah, he's the criticisms were kind of more selfish, I think, where he made like a broken build based on like an exploitable technique, and yeah. then they like patched it out and they like balanced it. He's like, "How dare you balance this?" Yeah, <laughs> but, well, you know, more, but more on that later. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, for Stranger Paradise. It, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting because like if if they didn't release any post launch support for Stranger Paradise, I'd actually be in a better position than it is right now. Um, you know, I have I, I stopped fond feelings that game because I never touched the DLC of it. Like I saw, like I had a great time with it, you know. <laughs> but that's me not touching any of the DLC. And I was like, oh man, like the action felt great, like the job changing felt great in that game. But yeah. after hearing how the DLC went, it's like, man, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, the game is still great, and I legitimately think that like the overall package, not counting the DLC, uh, I, I'm gonna make an argument for it for in the top ten. But uh, it. <sighs> DLC is at least a sour note. Oh yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. Interesting. So I will go ahead since it seems like we're at a pretty brisk pace, just knocking things off of our design list. Uh, Live Alive, Live Alive did impress me a lot, um, and I do think that its kind of understated story that culminates in its final scenario is pretty striking. But it's something that we've also seen done since. It's kind of weird, like when I say since, like between 1994 and 2022. <laughs> Like it's really like, like 1994. Yeah, it's, it's done in if, 1994, but now we got like bigger twists, like yeah. from Bioshock, for example. With it's like, would you kindly, well, huh? Not, yeah. Well, it's not it's not just about the twist, but just the, yeah. the fact where you realize, like, oh yeah, every single antagonist that I fought through across these scenarios is named Odo or Odia or Odon or yeah. whatever, things like that, where it's mm-hmm. kind of one of those things where you're like, you realize it recontextualizes some of those things. And we've seen that, of course, in like Yoko Taro's games and things like that to done to much better strength. So Live Alive, really, really compelling. It holds up uh, in 2022 to a pretty good extent, but does, does doesn't top the list quite. But if we were podcasting in 1994, though, different yeah, story. Yeah, then it would win. Yeah. Type out these lists on a typewriter and distribute them. I, I think that time it will be it will still lose. Final Fantasy VI was out around that time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Fuck. All right, All what right. do we think about these two Pokemon games? Because they're both on here for kind of the same reason. So, uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus came out in January, and basically, what played very differently from every other Pokemon game before then. And then we kind of saw how a lot of those design changes and tweaks were then incorporated into Pokemon Scarlet and Violet from being an open world game for changing the uh, the way that the, the gym challenge worked for giving multiple different narratives for the, the different story routes that you can. Sorry, I just want to say straight off the bat, I still think that uh, Legends Arceus is the more interesting 
of these two games from uh, agreed these three games from a design and immersion perspective. I think Scarlet and Violet's really interesting, um, but Legends like it's just got an interesting loop. Um, it's the it's the speed and the snappiness of that catching and shiny hunting and all that sort of stuff. Um, in Legends Arceus, it just and I think the the world traversal also um, is more interesting in that game. It's a funny one. It's almost like the perfect example of how sometimes an open zone game can be more interesting than an open world game. Uh, because yeah. by having five, I think it was five, right, distinct biomes that were not all connected, um, I think each of those biomes stands out more than any one given area of Scarlet or Violet. I'll agree with that. I, like, despite giving Scarlet and Violet a six out of ten, uh, I do believe that those are like fundamentally great games. It's just the presentation and performance is inexcusable. Uh, but Legends Arceus, um, I think the best way to describe it is, is that I basically licked the plate clean with, uh, like doing everything that game has to offer. Like I just went ham on guides. And even then, like sitting back after like literally exhausting every piece of content in that game, I think, man, I kind of want to replay it. And that's, (laughs) that's always a good sign. Yeah. That's a sign of a really good game. Like I'm just going to say it right here. Um, I'm going to argue for this thing in the top five and the overall design and immersion is honestly the biggest reason for that. <laughs> All right. So we, we keep, choose. we keep yeah, Arceus. I would, I would agree with you. It's actually like the first Pokemon game that I have actually been genuinely interested in, in so many years. I just fell off the formula because they've been too samey or it's not really engaging because, you know, they're trying to cater to kids, you know, and, and there's finally some kind of formula that shakes things up, you know? So that's kind of like my take on it. So we keep RCS, we drop Scarlet and Violet in our design and immersion category. Um, how do we feel about Astalibra revision here for the three here that have played it in terms of how it feels kind of like a modern classic? I think it stays, to be honest, because it, okay. the way you play that game is you have these... Um, blue crystals that act as like your stat points and you're they're freely freely respectable in the game so there's actually like a bit of like like a uh, planning out your adventure aspect to it like when you enter like a new town in a chapter and you're thinking like i want to i want to grind out and like level out uh level up get my stats in tune and and there's like a whole aspect of the game where there's like a a really massive skill tree system no, not skill tree, stat tree system, and it like plays out like like, like almost like um, like Pretty much a, a sphere grid. Yeah, it's like a sphere grid, almost like a but you traverse it like almost like a dungeon crawler almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as you're beating up enemies, you get like these uh different colored crystals that feed into these like uh, nodes on it, and sometimes you have to some some paths are locked by doors, so you have to find keys in that uh like sphere grid s system to like un- unlock those doors and pursue those paths. So. Like one of the one of the key things that like people do to like kind of gear up for their adventure is they like respect like everything into luck because luck gets gives you more uh, experience points. So they like deliberately like kind of like hamstring themselves in the beginning to accelerate their level ups and so forth. And this is also combined with like every weapon in the game. Like not only do you have to expend gold for, but you have to find mats for as well. 
and like yeah, there, there's a certain aspect of like crafting weapons, crafting armor, crafting shields, and like you, you just get, you kind of get like that whole experience of like feeling like something from like from a zero to hero almost of like you just don't you don't have shit at the beginning except an oversized tree tree branch, and then as you as more and more systems unlock, you're like feeling you feel that growth in your in your character power, and I think that's like something really special about that game of like being able to feel that uh, step every step of the way and not having like some sort of like cinematic moment or cutscene give you that like power bump like you feel like you're you're in control every step of the way on that I agree with that so we keep Asta Libra for now uh, yes. let's keep going down the list uh, yeah I'm, I'm just working my way top to bottom I think Elden Ring uh, we'll discuss it more in detail later but I think it clearly stays for a lot of the reasons that we talked about in the art section just the, the the way that that game constantly just upends your expectations and surprises you uh, with the, the the world design and how it interacts with the gameplay and art. Uh, the next one is Digimon Survive. Yeah, Digimon Survive. It I think that's an easy cut. Like I think it's it's something very not like I said very novel in that. It's in, not in even games. well for Go Digimon, for but like even the developers themselves said, yeah, we basically saw Utuaruma and it was like we can do something like this. Yeah, it's not new. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, 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 yeah, the gameplay movement stuff is not new, but like in the Digimon sphere, like it's it's pretty it's pretty new in that aspect. I think there, there's a lot of flaw flaws to it. So like they kind of you know it, it's not as good as it can be, but like. I, I respect that for trying. I respect them for trying. Mm-hmm. The next remaining on this list for design and immersion is Harvestella. I also think that this is a pretty easy cut. I think Harvestella does what it sets out to do in a genre that is very well-worn and is it's a good game in that genre, the farming sim RPG hybrid. And it does twist it a little bit by being a little bit more slanted towards the RPG aspect rather than the, yeah. the farming aspect in that game is more kind of like how you get your income and what some of the quests are based around. But the the meat and potatoes of that game is kind of like the dungeon crawling and the, and the combat and the, like progressing your character through the different jobs. But I will it's say, not as novel. Go ahead, James. I will say shout outs to farming being uh, eventually just becoming a vehicle for me getting ingredients to make different dishes I can give to inns to get a shitload of cash. Just like real mm-hmm. life. So yeah, I think I think the execution is great in Harvestella. It just loses because it's a bit well worn on a game on in a genre that games are releasing every month from big publishers to smaller publishers to indies. Uh, Diofield Chronicle. We've talked about this game in a few different contexts, and the reason why it is on the design and immersion list. Uh, it's not an easy cut. But comparing to so let me them for for those that don't have the podcast doc right in front of them, we have Pokemon Legends RCS, Elden Ring, and Astalibra Revision kind of duking it out in the contenders list of this category. When I look at Dealfield Chronicle next to those three, I think Dealfield Chronicle is good. I'm glad it's made it to like the back half of this list, but I just don't see it contending. Uh, and again, we put it on the design list for just being something that is it has a very specific scope that is clearly targeted and built with a lot of those like efficiencies in mind in terms of its concise, straightforward delivery and really snappy gameplay element that is bite-sized and easy to like play in small chunks. So I'm glad that it's here, but I just, I just don't think it contends. With no pushback, I guess I'll take it off. I don't want to be arbiter, but here's your chance to, to declare that it belo- that it deserves to stay. 
No, I think there's uh, hard like there's tougher competition. Mm. Uh, the next one on the list that we haven't formally knocked out yet is Citizen Sleeper. It's, I guess it, I shouldn't it's I shouldn't frame it like that. <laughs> I mean, it's unfortunate, right? That this is this is like the kind of the fate of Citizen Sleeper. And uh, you know, to be frank, uh, I was a teenage XL Collins as well. It, it sucks, but like those are the two titles this year that are like both seemingly like very consistently excellent, but they only have one, a single individual backing them, which, you know, it's, it's a big shame, you know, cause I thought, I'm sure, I'm sure I, w- I was a teenage. I saw colonists as like a fantastic game. Like I do not doubt that for a single second, you know, but it, it's, it's going to be a tough one. Like how do how do we push for them over, you know, bigger titles? It's, it's kind of the nature of the game, unfortunately. I feel like out of them so far, I'm kind of like, well, obvious, like obviously, I'm not going to put it above Elden Ring, but I feel like it really does a good job of putting, making you feel like you're this, like, you know, growing up from a skit. Well, I don't know for for teenage Excel colonists at least. I'm not sure about Citizen Sleeper. Yeah, I mean, like Citizen Sleeper is like it's it's kind of it's so hard to describe in words. To be honest, like like just seeing a gameplay video like makes it easier to like uh, like understand what it is, but the basic the basic premise is like it's combining a tabletop mechanics with an RPG experience. So like a, a, an in-game day is known as a cycle in that game. So when you wake up uh, in a new cycle, you can have up to five dice that die that are pre-rolled on that, and that is determined by how much health you have at the start of that cycle. So you can have a maximum of five, um, and each of these uh, pre-rolled actions on a uh, you know uh, on a six-sided uh, die. Um, obviously, the higher the number, the more light, the, the more in favor you are of achieving an action. So, let's say you want to go steal some food to get energy. Um, it'll like if you have if you have a higher number, if you slot that die into that action to uh, do that thing, the the die that you slot in, depending on the number of that, has a, a probability. The higher it is, the more likely you are to not only achieve the actions but not suffer any repercussions. So, let's say like. Uh, if you slot in a six, it's a hundred percent positive, uh, guaranteed outcome. If you do like five, it's like it's like a fifty percent positive, fifty percent neutral. So you, you still won't suffer any like kickback to it, but um, you won't you, you might not get like a higher the, the maximum yield from that action. So like say instead of always getting three energy out of stealing that food, you might just get one or two instead because that's like a neutral thing. Like and then like for other ones, like there might be um. Uh, a positive, neutral, and negative outcome to it, and negative ones that, like, depending on, like, you know, just due to sheer probability, like, you might suffer, like, you know, you might uh, instead make yourself more hungry, or you might suffer health from it. And, like, these, these like, kind of, like, tabletop stat checks almost, but in, in the form of, like, a, in the form of die instead. And how there's not, like, a traditional level-up system in this game, per se. Yeah, like, you only get skill points by um a successfully achieving like completing side quests and there are many side quests in this game that you can fail depending on like the decisions that you make along the way in those side quests and what sort of narratives how the narrative plays out um so it's it's very possible that like you might just like be be very like uh not be able to like utilize your skills as mu- as 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 much as you could because you kind of failed these side quest lines you know, and that's all kind of like part of the simulation of like trying to like rise up from being nothing. And I think that's something really special about it because 
Like, like you'll feel overwhelmed like in the first like maybe half of the game because there's so many side quest lines that you have to do. So a lot of it is like about time management and deciding like what am I willing to like wait for another cycle on to like progress the side quest line and what do I prioritize now because this is something that's like I feel like it's time sensitive because of the ongoing plot line on it. And I think that's really really freaking cool. But also when they look at the competition for this it's like man i wish i could really i wish at least one more person played this game to help me back me up on this yes that's and that's something that we run into every year uh and it came out a little too late josh so i know i mean yeah june too late (laughs) well well, there's a few games that i know and this is me maybe being a little selfish there's a few games that i know that i was the only one that played this year but i thought they were all like mid (laughs) so i didn't put them on like i think i'm the only place in that person that played weird west but i didn't Mm. think highly of it so i didn't put it anywhere i think i'm the only person that played elex 2 but i didn't think highly of it so i didn't put it anywhere so like man i made the wrong choices next time i'm just gonna ask josh what do you think I should play? Outbound <laughs> ghosts, guys. Outbound ghosts. Let's go. Oh, yeah, up on ghosts. Yeah, I, also, I, I, not I played. Game. I played games like Monarch, Batora, and Astera Ghost, but I don't think any of them should go anywhere. Monarch, the Monarch, Monochrome Mobius. I was enjoying way more for the first ten hours, and then everything grinds to a halt for the next forty. What a disappointment this year. Oh my god. Well, when back on the topic at hand, when. Josh was talking about the mechanics specifically of Citizen Sleeper, the game that I've played that seems like it borrows from that, that we might have a chance to discuss next year is uh, obviously a higher profile game. And that's Baldur's Gate three does a lot of the same thing where like explicitly, at least when it first came out in early access, I haven't touched it since it has its several revisions and updates since then would have like a dice rolling mechanic where it actually like visually represented the D 20 and what you got and how it affects your outcome. So the, the way that Josh was describing Citizen Sleeper as a tabletop uh, inspired gameplay mechanic within the, within the narrative there, we might see that in a, in a higher profile game in some aspect with Baldur's Gate. But talking about Citizen Sleeper, we'll keep it on the list for now. Though, as we have alluded to, it's, it'll be difficult for it to win in the top two spots with, unfortunately, only one person being able to back it. And then the same is going to be true for I Was a Teenage Exocolonist. Uh, and then, of course, this is the one being backed by Jess talking about the replayability of this game, the storytelling and the branching paths based on the decisions you make. Uh, so, Jess, any, I know we've talked about Teenage Exocolonist in a few different contexts with its narrative and with its soundtrack, but here's another chance to talk oh, yeah. to it specifically how it's designed from a gameplay perspective. Okay, this time I'm, I mean, the other two categories, I was like, nah, okay, that's like, it's okay, and it's okay in comparison to the other competitors but in this case i feel i do feel a little bit strongly about more strongly about it being an immersive experience because it is you play from the you know like you play from the viewpoint of a child growing up and if i feel like it does a great job of like you know use a second person it's like it uh, makes you feel like oh this is how i'm reacting to like my birthday my new my friends and um i feel like it really tries to even though it is technically you, it kind of still conveys the, um, it successfully portrays a, like a real character. Like almost it's like, um, you know, like a, if you're scared or um, brave enough to take on a monster, it, depending on your stats, it's like, a, I don't know. I feel like it really 
puts you in the shoes of a character and like makes you feel like you're really um you know like a that you're making the decisions while at the same time kind of a, what do you call it maneuvering the emotions that you're supposed to feel in the moment well that's the first time that you've explicitly stated that it's in a second person perspective which is based on the way you've described it so far i'm like you know what that seems like it makes a lot of sense based on the way that this game is designed that it would use that perspective yeah like i think it's very close second perspective too like it's kind of like um you know it elaborates on some details that kind of seem like they would be more third person because like you know like i said it's something that it's almost like something you would read out of a book but it's in a game and somehow that doesn't feel out of place So we will keep that on the list for now uh, as well with Citizen Sleeper. It, un- it's unfortunate that we pair those up as kind of kindred spirits in this sense, but that's just kind of how the cookie crumbled for our recording this year. And then kind of in yeah. a similar spot, I presume, is going to be the last one on this list, Vampire Survivors. I know that Josh has played this. Is this another one that Josh is coming to bat? Uh, I mean, standalone? When, you're, yeah, when you're thinking about other titles on this list i i guess it, it probably won't hang like that's fine you know like i i'm i'm like the, i'm like the bat harder for asta libra than vampire survivors in this case mm-hmm. um, but you know vampire survivors it is a game that like once you start playing you cannot stop all right so we've got the three that i mentioned at the start of the section pokemon legends rcs elden ring asta libra revision and then we've got the Citizen Sleeper and then Teenage Exocolonist pairing uh, also still hanging out in contention. Again, at the moment where we're at kind of tough cuts at this point. I mean, do we do we see a, like, like, like I, I feel like you, you should just cut Citizen Sleeper and I was a Teenage Exocolonist. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. That's something that like. We need more people there to yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no way Jess and I can like push for those against the the other thing you got. Because I believe the bat harder for Asta Libra than Citizen Sleeper. You know, I'm not really sure about that one yet. I'm like, oh, well, I think for me, if I'm going to pick between these last three, like, you know, if Teenage X Collins is not in it, it's like, okay, well, I'm willing to go with Elden Ring. I don't really know um, Astra Libra. So I guess my second go- vote would need to go to Pokemon Legends. If I if I if we're out to me, I think Astalibur wins this, and I I like for me Elden is runner up, but that's because like I've just I, I played Pokemon Legends and I just wasn't interested in it. That's just a me thing. Oh well, well like, that's that's the I that's the other thing that you get when multiple people play something is that you well, can also vote against. Top, well, I played the top three over there, and my top three would be basically. Well, I would probably go with Astalibur or Elden Ring. It's either the debate of those two. I. Elden Ring is in an interesting space for me because it's like, this is going to sound weird, but it comes down to a diff- the difference between what's genuinely new and, and um, how something was executed. Because I don't think necessarily what Elden Ring is doing is new. Like, people were even making jokes about it when it came out, Death of the Wild. It's like very clearly mm-hmm. the way the open world structure is... Not obviously not the same, not even close, but it's similar enough to what Breath of the Wild was doing. That's again the ex- the execution. Like everyone that's played it, it there's a reason why. Like it, it just won Game of the Year at the Game Awards, and so many people love it, it for good reason. Um, but what 
Pokemon Legends Arceus does genuinely felt like the first time in over a decade that that series was being pushed forward. And not in the sense where it was like catching up with the rest of the industry, but rather actually doing something fresh and new for RPGs as a whole. And I really, really appreciated um, um, what I played there with uh, when I, when I went through it. And I, and I think that I'm not going to stop people from saying that Elden Ring wins this, but I think that there's definitely an argument that uh, the most innovative um, RPG this year was probably Pokemon Legends. I kind of agree with that. Like Elden Ring is definitely going to be in contention for the main list. And we've already talked about how it does things so well with its soundtrack and its art. And even with the design section, the fact that it's still in contention here. But I think it's more of the sum of its parts rather than being exemplary in this one specific aspect. Does Elden Ring have great design and immersion in the way that it is like an open world Souls-like and incorporates the the art styles and the, the Souls-like combat and the fact that it does so much that constantly surprises you? I think yes, but I can kind of see it just in a specific category being just out. Because it's more of a cohesive, holistic, great product than being specifically, unlike Pokemon Legends Arceus, which I would state is a worse game, it's more exemplary specifically in this category. I don't know if other people agree with that, but based on the discussion right now, that's kind of where I'm sitting. Uh, I've, I've, I guess I've, I guess I'm thinking of it, like the the way discussions are going. I think I think the 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 at least the top two is sounding like Astalibra and Pokemon, and oh. that, that, that's that's from that's what I get from the from the discussions. Not to say that that's that's set in stone. To be honest. Okay, so mm-hmm. wait a second. Um, I see we didn't. I'm looking at the page right now. It's moving around. Did we not take out oh, Exocolorist or? I haven't yet. Okay, because I was thinking. I mean, I would, I would pick that over Pokemon, but I. It mm-hmm. sounds like lots of people have played Astra Libra and Elden Ring. I wasn't sure if that's like where this is going. Well, we've had a lot of people play Elden Ring, but it seems like it has not quite as much fervor as any of the other three here, specifically for this category. Uh, that's the that's my interpretation. Yeah, Elden, Elden Ring is a weird thing because like even even you put it in this weird open world souls like because yeah, ultimately that's that's what it is. It, it it puts like the souls formula in an open world format. They do it very well, very very well. But at the same time, you know we know how souls goes. Hmm. You know. It, yeah, so definitely something where in the context of Game of the Year, Elden Ring, we wouldn't dismiss it at all. Not even close, but specifically for this, it's not as novel as the other ones. It's 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 it's, it's, good. it's an obvious, category. Like, and obviously, chime in if anyone disagrees with that. Right. No, it does not really shake up the formula, really. It's just putting souls in the open world, so... Yeah. Which, saying it that way makes it sound very reductive because keep in mind again again the execution of like taking the souls formula and making it an open world and making it feel so well natural, natural. and it, it that's like that can't be understated like but we'll we'll, we'll talk about that later when <laughs> we get to the main list so it sounds like based on the discussion we kind of got Astalibra with the most general support behind it. 
let me tell you about Astalibra. There's a scale system in Astalibra where you every single item in the game has a certain weight to it and attributes to it. With the scale system, you have to find like the proper mixture of like items to get the most benefits out of them. Because if the scales go too far one way or too far the other way, you get minimal benefits. You want them at as close to total equilibrium as possible. And this is for every single uh, uh, item and like equipment you get in the game, pretty much. And that's how you get that's how you get additional boons to your character on top of all the other systems. On top of every single armor, shield, and weapon in the game has a unique sprite that's uh, conveyed into your character, like 2D. It just sounds like... First, uh, I've only played the first two chapters of Astalibra, so first of all, to be honest, I'm not as high on it as Chow or Josh, but I also, admittedly, have only played two chapters. I think the game um, clicks around... Once you get like chapter three-ish, I think it starts to click around there then you kind of discover the gameplay loop and you'll be like damn this is very fun to i do think a lot of the mechanics are really solid like in terms of it's got um it's got a weapon kind of like skill learning system that's sort of like final fantasy 9 uh it's not quite but it's sort of close enough to it it's got that skill system that's or that stat system that's similar to the sphere grid in a dungeon crawler that we mentioned before the scale system this sounds awkward but it, it, but it's there, and literally how it works, I'm trying to say this as clear as possible, you open a menu, you go to your scales, and you can put any item that you've picked up on the scales. And depending on the items you put on it and how well-balanced they are on the scales, which is just in a menu, you get some bonuses. It's This might sound weird because like I can't think of another game that's done this. I don't know if this is necessarily like groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting mechanic, but it is a mechanic I've never seen before. Uh you know, I think mechanically, if we're talking Astro Libra, it's a solid game. But I, I will say I'm not as high on it yet, question mark, uh, as Josh and Chow. So we got we got three here, and we're having difficulty picking a one or a two. All right, so I guess Pokemon Legends Arceus. We have some that feel pretty highly on it, uh, like me and James. And then we've got others like jess and josh that didn't weren't feeling it at all so and that's unfortunately kind of where we're at we're with a few of these it sounds like rcs is definitely below astalibra but is i was a teenage exocolonist does it have enough support to, to sneak in above it i wish i, I wish i could support it if i played it <laughs> I was I genuinely feeling. like if we knock it out because i'm the only one that plays it that's understandable but i personally i think it's better than pokemon i will, I will play it for you just like I, you got my, me interested in it i, I, I i'm impressed I, I'm, I'm impressed by pokemon but what i will say is an interesting sort of an interesting smaller independent game that is described with such passion i'm sort of like well you know Pokemon Legend Arceus could have gone further in many ways, I think. I think the thing that was exciting about that for me is, like, here's a game that potentially um, they could... I, I finished that game, and I know James said he'd think about replaying it. I didn't have much desire to replay it, but I was thinking, man, I can think of, like, eight other settings I'd love to see a Legends game in. I can think of all the ways I'd, I'd like them to expand that concept, which is really good, right? Um but yeah, I, I I like what I hear for what it's worth. Uh, this is not fair because it's like almost borderline collusion with interview info that I put up. But like 
think about like the origin of Asta Libra revision. Like this game was made because like someone in Japan was like, they're not really making action RPGs the way I want them anymore. So I'm gonna go learn to develop video games from scratch to make an action game that I want to play. And I'm and, 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 and <laughs> goddamn I will take whatever however long it takes, I will make this game. Kazel yeah. basically pulled a Thanos where it says I'll do it myself. <laughs> oh, it's just like I I know it's unfair because it's part of the interview that we did with Kazo and that's like outside knowledge, but I'm just saying that's fucking crazy. In some I way, I kind of like I feel like um sorry. This is a I feel bad saying this. I really didn't like Pokemon Legends Arceus at all, but I almost don't even want to say that cuz I just sort of accepted it's not for me. You know, I yeah, almost don't want to so it's just like for me, it's just like I could care less. I don't want it. I'm not supporting it for for this spot, but I sort of understand why it's here. I just it's well, just like not a me game. I kind of like the fact that we have smaller titles like Astolibra and I was a teenage exocolonist here in the running in this category specifically for design and immersion because it's the whole adage of indies are bolder at doing things that the big publishers will not. Pokemon Legends Arceus takes a lot of steps in the right direction, it seems like, for obviously one of the biggest franchises ever. But it sounds like there's plenty of people who... We've had Adam, Josh, and Jess all explain that they weren't as high on Arceus, which I think is enough to knock it out of the top two here. Because we've had three people... (laughs) So, right now, if I'm looking at our podcast doc, we've got... Asta Libra winning the category for best design and emergen with I was a teenage exo colonist running up due to a passionate argument from we've heard this game show up in multiple categories here. I'm looking at this and I'm kind of nodding my head. I think I'm okay with this. And here's your chance to say otherwise. Anyone else on the cast? I think that sounds fair to me. We can highlight two different indie games that, you know, push, you know, I know design is a vague word here, but they can they can push it in ways that we haven't usually seen. So, I'm fine with that. Yeah, that sounds really good, to be mm-hmm. honest. I, I, when, when, at the, when I mentioned at the top of this podcast that we don't know where we're going to end up with some of these, uh, this is that in you know in a microcosm. I we, I don't think anyone here was expecting this, but we we've, we've had our discussions, and this is what we arrive at. So for best design and immersion, we have a surprise outcome here that none of us expected. We got Astolibra Revision winning this category, and I was a teenage exocolonist landing as the runner-up. So congrats to uh, these two smaller titles for being the shout-outs for this category. Holy crap. (laughs) I think Gales got killed by default. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. But we did have Pokemon Legends Arceus and Elden Ring holding out for uh, the more recognizable entries of this category, but just not quite landing. All right. Our second to last category here is a pretty straightforward one. This is the category for best ongoing support. Of course, now we live in an era where games are either designed as service games and continually get updated or they receive post-launch support in the form of expansions or DLC that keep people coming back to them, even if they're single-player games that aren't designed as service games. So for that reason, whether it's DLC or live updates, the nominations for Best Ongoing Support in an RPG in 2020, sorry, 2022, are Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, 
SD Gundam Battle Alliance, World of Warcraft Dragonflight expansion, The Lost Judgment, The Kaito Files, Soul Hackers 2, Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin, Vampire Survivor, and Genshin Impact. So looking Vampire at this Survivor? list. Yeah, hmm? it's getting ongoing support. What are you talking about? It, the, uh, it, like, even though it just got officially released in early access, it's been getting very, very, very re- uh, frequent updates throughout the year. So, yes, Vampire All Survivor right. does uh, count. Really quick, so, is anyone going to stop me from crossing out Stranger of Paradise? No, you've, no. you've just talked to this in the, uh, in the <laughs> art section, uh, or in the guitar, in the design section. So, go ahead. <laughs> where's, the, where's the strike through option? God. Uh, you have to go to format strike through yeah. format text strike through so, I, love how, I love how it's like god how do I get rid of it we get rid of <laughs> yeah, soul please. hackers too alright alright um, Josh yeah, I'm still laughing about are, are, are we, uh, Josh are we on the same wavelength here um, Kaido files that, that's getting an axe right oh dude I like no, Kaido no, files what? do you like is it, is it $30 like though Man, are we really going to so, put so, uh, prices into account here? Well, I think I- I'll say this. So I played Kaido Files when Lost Judgment released on PC not too long ago. And the Kaido Files is good, but it's also very standard. Very it, it feels similar. like cookie cutter. Like, well, I say cookie cutter. I mean, in terms of its framework, it's like, here's an additional five hour story where you play as a character. You don't get to play as in the main game in a standalone little side story it's fine it's good i'm glad i played it but you see more background on kaito kaito's fucking cool and he sniffs and you don't like kaito sniffing yeah kaito files is is good and it's a dlc that i recommend playing for those that play the lost judgment uh play lost judgment but it's 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 good it's it's eight out of ten it's fine that's that's kind of where i'm at for kaito files you know what i'll just i'll just ask this to chow since you still play Genshin, right? Yes, I do. Okay, so you're the only one here that can answer this question. Because as just, far as I... As, Genshin, I think, right? Just, no, no, I, I also still play. I, I put it go. on yeah, there. Well, Jess, do you play 14? Oh, no, I don't. I only play okay. Genshin. I don't play both. Okay, Chow, you're the you're the man that can answer this question. Endwalker <laughs> uh, or Genshin Impact? Who are we going to argue about uh, what, oh, what winning this, you, you, this? You're putting you on the spot, so that means that it's either one or the other now. That's fucked up. As good as Sunbreak's DLC's been, uh, that's only been half the year. And Walker, as far as I'm concerned, has been like, it, it, that's the bar to beat. It that's is the bar to beat. Bar to beat. Uh, the Genshin updates recently are really good, like story wise and the content they've been bringing out is very good. But yeah, like Final Fantasy fourteen and Walker is just like six, like six point one and six point two. Not to mention like N Walker's launch itself have just been a one two three punch of like fantastic updates. Six point one alone was like it got us DSR the most like well received ultimate. In the entire game, which was an event, we've had the fir- the start of what has been a already beloved Alliance Raid series. We got a new PvP mode in 14 that was a complete revamp that people actually like and are still continuing to play. 
Then we That's, had 6.2. It, it, like, there's just no competition. I, uh, it's like, sorry, Genshin, you're good, but you're not. I was just wondering, like, I'm okay. it sounds like people are really passionate about Final Fantasy 14, which I was which I was prepared for. But I was like, does that mean Genshin is second or like what else deserves to compete against? What what else is competing against it? Is this category like pre- predetermined already? Are we fighting for runner up to Endwalker? I guess is the is the main question now, right? Yeah, there's like as far as I can tell, as someone that's been living and breathing 14 for basically this entire year, like it has been no contest. Like we have been well fed. They have been like it's not just like steady content updates. It's the fact that there's been so much new shit, like Island Sanctuary. And the fact that we just got these, um, these, uh, fuck, what's the exact name? The Criterion the Dungeons? Dungeons? Yeah, the very oh, yeah, Criterion Dungeons, which everyone loves. And the fact that, like, it's not out yet, but we already know that this train is keeping on going with the next patch. It's just like, with some break, it's like, okay, yeah, it's been decent updates, but it's, there was like that entire dry period before, before some break came out. Where it was like, nothing. as someone who's, as someone who's played Sunbreak but not Final Fantasy but had been in the conversation, it sounds like having listened to Chow and James talk about Final Fantasy, we've heard him talk about the Island Sanctuary and the variant dungeons. And it sounds like Sunbreak has a lot of post-launch support that was almost kind of like expected. It's variants of monsters we've seen. It keeps tearing up the master rank. It's challenges that might twist things a little bit, but it's kind of like par for the course. We saw a lot of similar updates with Iceborne. Where Final Fantasy, it just sounds like the updates are a bit more novel, a bit more different. Here's a PvP mode no one expected that ends up surprise it's good. So even as someone that doesn't play Final Fantasy fourteen, I can see why it would be selected over Sunbreak. I think the thing that really cinches it for me is that if we're talking about ongoing support, I think you can't ignore the fact that like fourteen has had major upgrades to its infrastructure this year. We've got the the uh, the uh, creation of the uh, Oceania data, data center. We've got the massive improvements to the availability for player housing, uh, the entire opening of the Ishgard housing, and all of these different, like, just improvements to the just baseline experience. And as, and as like, bad as the launch week was for getting into the game, once you were logged in, there was no issue staying logged in. Like, for considering the situation they were in, it's honestly impressive that, like, the launch for Endwalker turned out nearly as well as it did. So, like, between the content, the stability, the consistency of the updates, like, it's just, it's no contest. Like, Endwalker has just been, there There really is, like, only nitpicks. And even then, it just it's just like, yeah, it's almost it's like almost perfect. There's only like one or two things that I can kind of point to, but I kind of also don't want to because like pretty unanimously people are like, yeah, so far this is the best expansion like we've ever had just in terms of what we already have, not counting the fact that next patch is going to have another ultimate. Uh, it's going to have another fucking deep dungeon, another variant dungeon and a bunch of other content. For people that play Chow, 14, do you agree with this? I, I do agree with this. I am not right. holding James back. Uh, my <laughs> opinion with Ann Walker is basically this now that kind of like everything has been normalized, content is now like coming like, like, like really, 
and they're very extreme fast pace that I, I can't seem to clear these raid faster than the content's coming out now. You know? So it sounds That's like Josh kind of has the correct way of things where it sounds like Final Fantasy fourteen is the title to beat here for ongoing support. And now it's up to us to determine who gets to occupy the same space in position number two for now. Uh, we haven't that decision is not final final, but it's definitely leaning that way. Uh, so right now we've got Endwalker sitting earmarked at the top of the list. Genshin Impact and Sunbreak have had a lot of good support, but it sounds like Genshin Impact is edging it out a, a bit. So I, I've talked about Sunbreak a little bit. We heard a little bit about Genshin Impact from Chow and Jess. Uh, a few other titles that are on the list here to make sure that we're not discounting any of those. Uh, we talked about Kaido Files. Again, good, but it's a single package. That's my ta- thought on it. Is that it's good, yeah. but kind of contemporary. Uh, 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 all right, I guess. All right, no, no fans of Kaido sniffing. I get it. Too okay. expensive. <laughs> you know, he, he he can smell the clues out of the environment. Okay. All right, Slackers. Slackers Two is on the list. It, I know it did get that one update that was like a few extra demons and some quality of life, which is good to see and appreciated. But um, I don't know if it really stands out. It added dashing, Adam. Let's go. Is that really uh, ongoing support? It's just no. <laughs> I mean, it's just like one of those. Like, they added something that probably should have been in the game at, at launch. All right, and then, uh, then, uh, World of Warcraft Dragonflight from has had good word of mouth, but I just think that this is a game that's in a position where none none of us here can really speak to it from a I personal heard standpoint. Of good things about it. It's just none of us played it, so we can't defend it. That's a problem. So at least it was able to get a look in here, but. Just we just like a lot, you know, we've we've seen this kind of creep up in a few different contexts. We don't have the personal experience to defend it. So we got it mentioned here as something that has had a lot of good uh reception, but in the terms of the RPG site, uh yeah, somehow. In terms of the RPG site awards, our staff cannot speak to it, so we just we have to cut it. Just tool the trade. All right, SD Gundam Battle Alliance. Um, I know. That, Gundam, I know when this. Go ahead. I'll let you take the take the microphone yeah, on this. Yeah, I mean, like SD Gundam Battle Lights is like a, is more, like more so on the DLC season pass roadmap that they had that they all released all in 2022, just like just like a month or so from uh, each other. Um, you know, it's not going to beat out the Titans here. Um, it was just like a nice thing that they did. I think I think a lot of the post launch support, as well as trying to like fix some of like the like the already flaws in the game, like like yeah, uh, in-game currency, because trying to upgrade your mech in the game was way too expensive, so they had to, like, you know, eventually, like, you know, kind of rectify some of that. Um, you know, it, it's kind of cool to see, like, less featured Gundams than any other uh, product, like, be featured in this game, like the Moon Gundam and the Exia Repair 4. Like, dude, those are just suits that you, like, you do not fucking see in any other Gundam game, really, especially the Exia Repair 4, which is from a stage play of Gundam Double O, that's the only time you ever hear mention of it. Which is like that's fucking weird, but that's cool. Um, but you know, other than that, you can access it. it. It's a it's a fun game, very very, very fun cooperative uh, game with uh, like minded folks like Gundam. So it definitely does good in the ongoing support, specifically for its target audience, which I still think yeah. is worth commending. And then the last game on the list that's not alongside the three titans that we've gone through is Vampire Survivors. I mean, Vampire Survivors is your typical like early access when a game is early access, right? Of course, it's going to get like uh, continual updates throughout its life uh, up until the 1.0 release. And now 
you know, Vampire Survivors is getting its first DLC fairly soon as well. So yeah. it's just like it's it, it was it had a really 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 great early access period that like you know takes the, takes certain parts of the internet by storm still. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it it it's your typical early access uh, active early access um, support cycle for the, uh, for the context of this year. So what I think that means is Vampire Survivors. We've given it a few different com- commendations here. Uh, maybe exit for this year, but depending on how its first official DLC is received, and if it gets support past that, we might be seeing it again next year. Is maybe. kind yeah. of what I'm what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm going to get that DLC. I love Vampire Survivors. <laughs> All right, so uh, that list kind of took care of itself for a lot of the, the stragglers there, but we have three remaining titles, and that is Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, Genshin Impact, and Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak. And based on the direction of the conversation, it sounds like the ostensible winner here is Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker. That's not decided yet, but here's our last chance to see if we want to push either of the other two titles ahead of it or decide between the other two for a runner-up. I know Some... there's no, I know there's no one. Well, there isn't no one, but I know that there's, there's not a huge amount of support here for the game in general because I feel like a lot of people have fallen off it. But I will say, I feel like the the level of support Genshin has got, um, with all of that content being free, ostensibly free, obviously there's there's the gacha and stuff, but still, um, it's tremendously impressive. And also, I do think after you get about twelve months in, usually with a game like this, there's usually quite a heavy um, drop-off in the quality of the content. They begin to phone it in, and that has not happened with Genshin. And I think that is impressive and worthy of some commendation, I feel. Yeah, because I would say the Sumeru content is actually better than the Unozuma content by far. So That's, that's the oh, yeah, 3.0 gonna... stuff? Oh yeah, I was going to add yeah. in, like they added a whole new continent and a whole new element, which is like not an easy thing to do. It didn't like a you know most of the time when people add like a whole nother you know an element to any kind of battle system, it's like it screws it up somehow. But like in this case, I feel like it actually fixed some of the problems that were in the game before, and it also ties in really well with the new continent they introduced. And then like the animations, they just keep get better and better, and they're resolving character arcs for characters that have been introduced since the beginning of the game now. So it's like this year's content was really good. Uh, so Jess, you, you haven't been on the really good. and you Jess, you haven't been on the podcast as frequently as Chow, but Chow, if I am interpreting your reception correctly, during the chapter two era of Genshin, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, you were it seemed like you were a little bit more lukewarm on the game, but it, it feels like there's a lot more energy now with the more recent updates from 3.0 on. Uh, a is that a true uh, summary of your reception? I think, yes, there's also just like, there's a lot of things that they did with the new continent that they didn't do in the past ones. Like there's articles about the exploration and things like that, too, that have to do with the world itself. So um, it's more than just one thing. And this is the thing I'm going to say to play devil's advocate with the with the 14 people, right, is that um, one thing I, I mean, and I'm doing this as, as, as a relative outsider because I'm like... Uh, two expansion packs behind on 14 and unlikely to ever go back to that game now. I think um, I did my time. I was a, I was one of those people who had a thousand plus hours in 11 and 
my life is just not in a place to support an MMO anymore. And Genshin, I still dabble in, but it's it's hard for me to find the time. Um, but what I will say is sort of, I know obviously there's the incremental updates and stuff um, in 14, and there's the, there's the high-end sort of raid content and all that sort of stuff. Um, however, the, the core crux of the 14 support is always more or less... We're advancing the story a little bit and, you know, each expansion you get a job or two and a new landmass and stuff like that. The thing that's been interesting about watching Genshin as a relative outsider and then also hopping in a little bit myself is um, there's quite a lot changing and quite a lot new. Now, don't get me wrong, they're incentivized to do that because, you know, they they are obviously in a position where they want to encourage people to pump money into the gacha system. but it's interesting and it's it's a cadence of update like the, the the frequency and how and and the the depth of what's changing that is relatively unmatched and it reminds me i think there was a, a few years ago in this category i talked a bit about um outer scrolls online which yeah. about how it's every time they do an update it's really accessible and not in a bullshitty we're going to give you a a skip to get you up to level way in a you can start this content with the new expansion if that's what you want to do. And, you know, things will scale right and the story will shift in certain ways if you're a new adventurer versus an experienced hero and all that sort of stuff. And Genshin's got a lot of that same, same similar sort of energy about it. And I really um, think it's quite impressive, especially, like I say, because they're not charging people because... I know I'm repeating what I said, but I really, really do feel quite strongly that usually with these free-to-play gacha games, once they've got their core audience sort of locked in, they usually begin to phone it in, get lazy, and the content gets worse, and they just sort of pump those whales. Genshin has not really done that in the same cynical way. The whales are still getting pumped, but that's just the way the system works. But the content is good, high-quality content that is growing the game. And, and like you guys said, it's, it's better than the, than the, the first round, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I will say that, that James did, well, I won't speak for James, but it does sound like that. He says specifically, and Walker was adding content that was unexpected, like the variant dungeons and the Island sanctuary as well. Yeah. It's like, if it was any other, like, like if you were talking about like, say Shadowbringers, which to be fair was heavily impacted by COVID. And that definitely had, like a, a knock-on effect for the types of content they could develop for the uh, the game, uh, N Walkers. Th- like the the crux of my argument is that the changes that they've done with N Walker have been like fresh because there has been a formula for fourteen updates, and while there still is like some certain like obligations that you can expect. Okay, so on even number patches, you'll get a new raid tier, and on an odd number patches, you'll get an ultimate and uh, an alliance raid. That's still there, but the types of content that are being that's being added with the updates with Endwalker specifically is both foundational in terms of like improving like the baseline gameplay experience for everyone playing 14, like stuff like the adventurer portraits or the adding more servers, adding an entirely new data center, stuff like that. And then there's additional content that people just didn't expect, like a PvP mode that act, people actively want to play that is actually good. Uh, the fact that we get variant dungeons, criterion dungeons, which isn't high-end content, 
part of it is if you want to, but like variant dungeons themselves is something that from a baseline perspective, anyone can play, anyone should play. And it's very easy to get into it. And and then you have stuff like Island Sanctuary where it's like, that's like, yeah, you can go hard on it, but it's casual content. Like, and they're feeding everyone on the totem pole. Like there's going to be two like ultimates with this expansion. We've already got DSR, which has been the most well-received and from a, like I could I could make an entire like argument about how DSR is probably some of the most influent like DSR alone would make the argument just because of the things it does the way it was an event for everyone that was playing the game because because it was like story focus even if you had no interest in doing high end rating the entire community was watching it and interested in what was happening because it was a retelling of heaven's word like an expansion that everyone loved from a story standpoint and stuff like that it's like the reason i'm arguing for endwalker and why it's been just like a shoo-in for me and i think for chow like you had to go but it's because it hasn't just been static and it's been noticeable by the entire player base that endwalker has been a noticeable step up in terms of the quality and quantity of uh, the updates that they're giving us I think the argument's been made that it's clearly Final Fantasy and Genshin. Uh, Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, I, we haven't talked about it in a bit here, but it sounds like, uh, I know me and James are the ones that can probably speak to this the best, potentially Josh as well. Good, steady updates, but it's kind of the direction that we expect Monster Hunter updates to be. And that's where it, that's where it ends up falling just into like a very tight third place. Good, just not quite as, uh, a little bit more formulaic than the other two. So, all right, with that stated, it sounds like the commendation, the award for best ongoing support in an RPG in 2022 is Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker as our winner, again, because it released in the December timeframe, so it falls into our window for the year. And then Genshin Impact as the runner-up because of a very strong set of updates, starting with the uh, the Chapter 3 or the 3.0 updates from both of our Genshin Impact experts here saying that it has improved dramatically in the second round of updates for that game. Uh, we have one more category here, and this one is kind of a it's, a, it's a cheeky category. It's our one chance during this podcast to talk about games that don't explicitly fall into the RPG genre. So our site, as we talk to frequently on our podcast, does deliberately cast a wide net for RPG, anything that is RPG or RPG adjacent, we tend to include in the genre. And these are games that we want to call out, but we explicitly say are non-RPGs. So here's our chance to look at the best non-RPG of 2022. And uh, so one one just clerical note here, uh, Vampire Survivors is listed on this list, but I think I'm going to go ahead and put that into the RPG list if people are okay with that. I think I already put it there too because we didn't know if we were going to count this as an RPG walking in. All right, so we we will call Vampire Survivors in the RPG list, leaving the nominations for best non-RPG as the Centennial Case, a Shijima story, AI, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative. Is is it not AI or is it AI? It's AI. AI. That's fine. Okay, whatever you want. All right, I, I, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative, Ultra Kaiju, Monster Rancher, Drainus. Eurokill, The Calumination Games, Sonic Frontiers, Bayonetta 3, Immortality, and Marvel Snap. 
So for this one, I wonder if for this category, instead of trying to knock out games that we don't believe belong and then seeing which survives as the winner, I wonder if we should approach it the other way. Is there any game here that clearly has had a better reception amongst the RPG site cast as best in this um, category? I, I don't know how contentious this is going to be, I guess. <laughs> Basically, I if I had to put down two votes, I'd do Bayonetta and Idesomnium Files with Idesomnium Files prioritized. I would okay. agree with uh, I, the Somnium Files. I have issues with Bayonetta 3. Uh, my okay. two votes would be I and uh, Drainus. Hmm. Hmm. For the I record, I have played none of these. There you go. I just wrote down two, game, two games that both I've played a, a, a shitload of. I wish I got around to Immortality. That's the thing. That like, that's I feel... I, I played it, so the reason... Oh. Go ahead, Alex. So the reason I wrote down immortality is is because obviously we sort of bend the rules and we cover a lot of visual novels and all of Sam Barlow's games, um, her story telling lies and now this are all basically in the vein of visual novels, but you know, with an FMV related twist. But I think immortality is the one that feels most like a visual novel. It's like a um, long lost Sega CD game. It's, it's it's sort of like so if 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 you literally know nothing about it because I think it's important to to sort of just briefly summarize the game. Um, it's basically uh, you're trying to solve a mystery, and the mystery is tied to uh, a movie star, and what you have is clips from free movies that were filmed by this movie star at different points in her life and basically you're looking at these clips and trying to piece together uh, the answer of what happened to her and these movies there's a glorious sort of thing because they're all from different eras so 60s 70s stuff like that so they have different looks to them and different feels to them they are shot really impressively in the sense that they really do evoke movies of the time the 70s movie totally looks like a real 70s movie and behind the scenes footage from a real 70s movie but the the element of it that's, that's interesting i think is compared to her story um and telling lies is you're searching through the archive footage and actually the way you're moving around is by clicking on things within the movies like objects items of interest things like that um and that's actually transporting you from clip to clip and there's a algorithm like an AI director, you know, to use like the Left for Dead uh, term. There's like an AI director that is sort of looking at what you know and what you've seen and always quietly trying to make sure that when you are clicking in a place that might advance you to a new clip, it will go right. Based on what they've clicked on, there's like maybe there's 10 or 12 clips that could be relevant to link from here what is the clip that is either most interesting or relevant to where you're currently at, or it's going to give you a new clue, or maybe it's going to take you back to an old clip where it's sort of giving you a little nudge to go, there's something you've missed in this clip. Um, and it's really interesting. And it means that, um, which makes it, it means that, and this is quite unique to most of our visual novels we talk about on this site it means that every person's journey through the game is going to be 
in some cases a little bit different, but in many cases quite a lot different. And I just really, really like it. I think if you're one of those people who um, really enjoys like visual novels and story-driven games for the role-playing aspect of really immersing yourself in that story, it's excellent. And so that's why I wanted to to put it on the list. And then I'll do the other one really quickly. I don't think this wins by any means. Immortality, I feel quite strongly, is like a contender. Uh, but Marvel Snap, it's a great game. Like Collectible card games have that sort of RPG edge in terms of building decks and building strategies and 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 i feel like this is actually a little bit more rpg than a lot of these sorts of games um it's from a lot of the devs who developed it were a lot of the people who were behind hearthstone and then left blizzard so if you played hearthstone you probably have a rough idea of what to expect um but it's just excellent and so if you're into that sort of thing it's got sort of that progression bug because you're gaining XP and, every, you know, as you level up, you're earning new cards and stuff. But the real thing is if you're someone who loves to spend time in menus thinking about combat systems and thinking about how things interact and trying to min-max and get the most out of stuff, uh, the range of cards and all their abilities and stuff like that is on a level where an RPG person could really lose themselves in it. And that's the way I've been playing it Um yeah, and it's really good. But I don't think it wins, but I, I do want to, I did want to mention, because I think um, card games is an area where I do think there is an overlap for the RPG audience, but they're never really something we really talk about, apart from when you actually get a card-based RPG like Midnight Suns or Chain of Memories or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to interrupt you, but uh, I've also actually played Immortality, and everything you were describing... On paper, it sounds great, but my own experiences with it, it felt very clunky to progress because there would be moments where it's like, yeah, I want to see more about this. But yes, you can click certain things. And since it's kind of randomized with maybe an AI nudging you in any given direction, sometimes you'll be, at least in my experience, I've seen other people that have had a similar uh, issue with it. It's like, you'll know kind of what path you want to go on. And the game is just kind of, it feels like it's, grinding against you and there's like no clear path forward and i think it the... definitely depends how your brain like and, and this isn't a like i think depending on how your brain is wired you will enjoy this more or less basically i also wanted to um, say that the actual controls for like trying to get the specific like hidden like spoiler alert hidden like clips within certain scenes it's really finicky to time it right because you have to basically like go reverse at a specific like at a specific speed on a specific clip at a specific portion and you'll get to the point where it's like you'll see it you'll see a ghost of it and you're trying to get just right so it'll click into place and it's like it it never really made it clear exactly how you're supposed to get that to click and i've seen a lot of people have that same problem like great game I enjoyed it quite a bit, but there was enough issues I had with the actual gameplay that it's it's hard for me to to recommend like without any ca- uh, caveats. But that's just so me. it sounds like it yeah, sounds like immortality will keep on the short list, but potentially uh, not at the top one or two spot. But we'll keep it in there for now. 
Um, any of these that we haven't talked about yet, uh, anyone feel strongly about keeping? I'm talking, for instance, Ultra Kaiju Monster Rancher. I mean, we can probably let go of Ultra Kaiju Monster Rancher. I'm the only one who's uh, play, played it here. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome like monster raising sim of a kind of well, like you know, monster. It's a monster rancher game after a new one in like so many years, and just having it be like a collab with Ultraman Kaiju. It's like it's such a, it's such a brilliant idea. And it's very fun. I just wish it wasn't on Switch because it kind of runs like ass on Switch. And yeah, but it's fun. It's fun. It's easy to lose so many hours in it. I, if it comes to another platform, like if it comes to Steam, that's a. I mean, it would be a great Steam Deck game. All right. Um, what about Sonic Frontiers? I know that we, we kind of surprise introduced this in one of our regular podcast episodes. Is like actually the new Sonic game isn't terrible. Like, how do we feel about Sonic Frontiers? So, is it? It's not terrible. Is it good enough to be one or two on this list? Uh, has anyone else played it no. besides me? I finished it. Here's your chance. Um, oh, Alex has played it's, it. <laughs> it's like a weird. It's like a weird. Um. It's almost like a really, really accomplished tech demo, and it's like, okay, now you're going to go and build the world, right? Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I... it's it's really good. It's the best 3D Sonic game since the Dreamcast era, uh, hands down, no question. It's the most interesting idea Sega has had for um, for a Sonic game in ages. I think it says a lot that Sega built a game and put in the more traditional um, boost-style Sonic levels, and even some 2D Sonic levels, almost like as a as a as a as a backup in case people didn't click. It would be like, hey, there's still some of that stuff that you liked before in here. They put that stuff in. That stuff that a lot of people loved over the last ten years, and that stuff is the boring, shitty part of the game that you can't wait to get past. Um, but I don't think it's like it's it's yeah. I mean, we I did. Add... It, I enjoyed quite we... a bit it it quite a bit, and I think the highlight for me was like the boss fights. But I agree with everything you say. It's like they're really it's... good. The, the boss fights are really good. The the boss fights are helped tremendously by how amazing the soundtrack is. Right. Um, yeah. I think we did a joke. We we do a joke awards on VG twenty four seven for the game awards night. Where we basically we basically try to get traffic of people googling the Game Awards by running an article that's called the VG Twenty Four Seven Game Awards and get people to click off Google and then all our awards are jokes and uh, and insults and we gave Sonic Frontier the award for the best game that is nevertheless slightly rubbish and that perfectly encapsulates what it is. All right, uh, we'll cross that off the list, even though for a Sonic game, which is like the big caveat, uh, surprisingly uh, competent. Um, it's, it's, what about it's top five in my heart? <laughs> so, I all right, the other two games I can, I can speak to, I you killed the Cal- Calumetation games is a really bizarre uh blend of genres, it's kind of like a mix between an adventure game and a shmup. In the in the sense that like there's like um the the premise is like you're being sent to this prison island, you have to collaborate with like uh basically a stranger, um who at any time can like blow off your head. So it's kind of like the kind of like the escape room, uh, almost zero escape esque type of premise. Um and uh, as you're uh, going through these adventure beats that are like uh, all narrative driven that goes into the backgrounds, 
of of the characters involved. Um, there you get kind of like quizzed through a shmup. So like before you go to the shmup section to like kind of confront like um your 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 captor, you're you're kind of quizzed on like oh like well like what was what was like the hotel room number of this or like how many victims were, were you know involved in this um incident uh you know based on the research that you've done throughout on the field in, in the adventure and then like depending on how on how well you answer that before you deploy that's how many lives you get for that shmup stage it's it's a, it's a pretty interesting like blend of genres i i think the cast is like it, they're they're inconsistent some i enjoyed some of the because just like there's like five to six pairs of characters that like you you rotate between between each chapter but like they're very inconsistent. Like some I really enjoyed, and some are like I can't fucking stand this. Let's get to the next chapter. So I that was that was a fun thing. I think if we're talking about like RPG for like uh, people who like uh, are like you know the best known RPG that we'd recommend to an audience that likes RPGs, like Centennial Case, I really personally love. I think the, the like just an old like a very high budget. Um, FMV game um made by hand and published by Square Enix is like that's something very very cool but like I don't like I don't think it'll get the support from like the RPG audience because I think the biggest part of the game is like when you have to do the gameplay of the game but I think the the the, the story of the presentation is fantastic because a lot of the chapter chapters is like it's like taking you to like a a very uh old time period era that like all the all the props all the costume work and like the the shot the shot style and the composition is like very respective and ir- of that era. Like they capture that feeling of that era. Um, but when it comes to like non RPG for RPG enjoyers, I think my two votes would have to be like AI, the Somnian Files, and Drainus because uh, Drainus is like a game that like you actively level up and like you have to go to like a cash shop to like. Um, uh, bolster your arsenal through it and the way yet that you gain upgrades to that is doing well in the game and it's like it's not even like a hardcore shmup it's like it's inviting enough for players to like who aren't good at shmups to like get through it so that's a few people uh i believe james and jess both very early on here kind of gave their votes for ai the something files or i the something files nirvana initiative and then josh did just as well so that's kind of running away at the top, but we haven't had a chance to speak to it. So maybe I'll hand it off back to Jess. Just, just uh, do first of all, did I interpret it right that you would say that out of this list, that's what you would place at the top? I don't, I just, I don't want to misinterpret. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, basically, you know, I played this game because I played the first one, and I want, and you know, I was excited at the thought of a second. Um, I feel like you know, like a the miss, like they paced out the story so that it's like like you know in the beginning it's hard for me to figure out exactly where the mystery is gonna go and it handles it with nuance humor and in the end like it i feel like it really hits me with the emotional beats and then also satisfies me with how it helps like uh leads the reader to piece together the story um it also you know like i think it's easier <laughs> to figure out than the last one actually because um you can essentially um in the Somniums, which is like the dream, like the dream dungeons where you need to look for clues, you could actually ask for another clue if you can't figure it out. So that's also a plus for me, who is like, I guess, bad at figuring out clues sometimes. Um, but yeah, 
I guess in that sense, it's. I feel like the mystery itself wasn't obvious. It like needed me. Like it took some time for me to figure out. And when it did, it made sense. There's also the character, the building on, um, how you meet the characters, what roles they play in the story, and what the eventual outcome, how hard it hits you, or like if you actually saw it coming. Um, I think the way that they structure the different paths too, because you need to play through multiple scenarios to piece all the clues together was also kind of ingenious and I never saw that coming. Um, and as always, the I feel like it, the ultimate ending was very satisfying for me. This game kept me up all night. Like I wanted to play as much of it as possible. <laughs> yeah, the nice thing about the Nirvana initiative is like you don't need to have necessarily played the first game to like understand and enjoy it. Like it's something that like people can just hop in and have a good time with as well, which is a pretty impressive thing to pull off in a a narrative-driven sequel like this. Um, it's, it also is very surprising because this has not, like, unlike the first game where you have, like, one, you know, very likable douchebag as the main character, they did, they went with a split protagonist uh, route uh, with this one, with one of the most popular characters of the first game growing up, and then another, another total newcomer that you just had no idea what to uh, think about Ryuki going in. Like, it's like, I don't know if I'm going to like this dude. He kind of looks plain and generic, and, like, he totally earns, like, your your respect and like uh as you play through the game as him it's like it's just, this guy is fucking insane but like he's like literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, he totally earns it he's 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 very he's such a very likable character like even despite all the odds going against him in this game um oh, it's a, also it, thematically the game is really good like yes oh sorry go for it yeah i, I was agreeing with you oh Come no on. i was gonna say um because Ryuki reminded me of like he is part of the whole meta part of the of the game's themes where it's like we're all in a simulation and they kind of like layer that really well in a way that was like, all right, I think I can respect that. Sometimes it's like kind of dumb where it's like, oh, yeah, it was like a simulation or a dream. But I feel like um, I feel like it's inserted pretty well in this case. Did you want to add on any, uh, to anything, James? Um, no, I would say that I could have some like minor mit- uh, nitpicks with the game. I feel like actually, while it is cool that you can play the game without having played the first one, I do feel like it does slightly hamper uh, uh, parts of the story it can tell and whatnot. I do think that while overall the Somniums in this game are much, much better than the first game, there's a couple of them that are noticeable stinkers, especially in the latter half of the game. But overall, like I've seen some people that have like major issues with it, but I think it's no question. This is at least as far as I'm concerned, this is like better than the first game in my eyes. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I, I agree with a, with a lot of that. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it's a very, it's a very fun game to to go through and just seeing like how how deep the rabbit hole goes. So it sounds like that we've discussed every game at least a little bit here. Uh, well, actually, we haven't really talked. The last one that we haven't really touched on much is Bayonetta 3. Uh, it sounds like it got a vote from, I believe, Jess, but then James had a nitpick for Bayonetta 3. Oh, well, I feel like I can understand if people have an issue with it. It was just my best action game of the year. So it's like, gotcha. I mean, I oh, yeah. haven't played the other two games. Like, I hear great things about immortality. Like, I can understand that winning an award for a design or whatever it how it's set up because it's really experimental but 
yeah, I'm not as strongly attached to Bayonet 3 as I am to AI. And also, I thought there was two people that voted for Dreadus, or am I wrong? Yeah, I, I, I like, I like I said, like, like it, like when I'm thinking about like for uh, best non RPG for people who like RPGs, like I don't, know, I don't know if like Centennial case will um, appeal to them. I'm just thinking about the category in itself. Uh, like, I will give Centennial case like massive props that like it, it legit has a Metal Gear Solid Four ending, like. It has a, a, a very extended epilogue scene that flips the entire premise of the game upside down. And you're like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> Wait, so so you mean that game ends by two old men like having a fist fight with each other? It gets close. It's not even the fist fight. It's like it's the it's the part of MGS4 where uh, uh, Snake is looking over the grave and then you find out old Snake is still fucking alive. Or, uh, okay, naked Snake is still alive. It's kind of like that. <laughs> I still need to get around to it, but it's yet another uh, Square Enix game that released this year that uh, I just haven't had the time to get to. Yeah. Square Enix like popped off. It's like Jesus Christ. Too many. Yeah, more on that later. So yes, I forgot Centennial Case was published by them. All right. So based on the discussion, and I, I kind of try to shift around the list as we go through it, but it sounds like we have AI, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative, kind of as a clear winner here, and it sounds like uh, a runner-up. Is is Drainus? Do I have that correct? Here's the last chance to push any of the remaining contenders up up in a slot two, or confirm that Drainus is the correct runner up choice. I think I think Drainus is something that like a lot of people who love who like RPGs will enjoy because it's a, it's a genre mix up, but they have the like RPG element mechanics that that, that are familiar to them. Like it, you get the, you get the feeling of getting more powerful from just like kind of leveling up your arsenal through it. It's very fun. All right, and so for our last category, this is the best non-RPG games we want to commend that aren't in our main list for 2022, and we have the winner being AI, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative, followed by the runner-up of Drainus. And then here we are. We finally have all of our categories done. I'll do one real quick recap here, and that is our category award winners for 2022 best remaster or re-release tactics ogre reborn best writing and storytelling xenoblade chronicles 3 best artwork elden ring best music triangle strategy best design and immersion astalibra revision best ongoing support final fantasy 14 endwalker and best non-rpg AI, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative. All right. And with that, we move into the last major section of our end of the year podcast. And that is, of course, determining our RPG of the year 2022. Now, obviously, at the time that we record this, anyone listening to this can pull up the page and know exactly what we picked. But the reason why we record this is so that you can learn in recorded time how we came up with the results. As I speak into the microphone now, I do not know what will win. I do not know what's going to get into the top 10. The way that we organize this hasn't changed for the last couple of years. And how that works is that I am going to read through a list of approximately 50 games. These are all games that have been nominated, not because we think that they're going to win, but games that we could potentially see 
arriving in the top 10. So this is not every RPG that's came out this year. It's not even every RPG that we've covered this year, but it's all the RPGs that there is potentially enough backing to sneak into the top 10, maybe. So I'm going to read the, the whole list, and then our job is to pick out which of these RPGs could land in the top 10, and then from those top 10, we're going to pick a top 5, and then from those top 5, we are going to pick an overall winner. So this is the same format that it's been for at least since 2019, potentially longer. Uh, so not not anything that's changed there. It's a good format that allows us to highlight a lot of great games this year while still picking uh, the best of the best and then obviously an overall winner. Any questions? Nope, sounds good. All right, so give me a moment here and I'm going to read through the list of RPGs in consideration for RPG of the Year 2022. In alphabetical order, we have Anno Mutationem, Asteragos, Curse of the Stars, Astalibra, Revision, Atelier Sophie II, The Alchemist of the Mysterious Dream, Citizen Sleeper, Coromon, Digimon Survive, Echoes of Mana, Iodin Chronicle Rising, Elden Ring, Expeditions Rome, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes, Front Mission First Remake, Gotham Knights, Guild Wars II End of Dragons, Harvestella, Horizon Forbidden West, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, Jack Move, Little Noah Scion of Paradise, Live Alive, Lost Ark, Lost Idolans, Made in Abyss Binary Star Falling into Darkness, Monarch, Monochromobius Rights and Wrongs Forgotten, Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, Octopath Traveler Champions of the Continent, Pentiment, Pokemon Legends Arceus, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, Relayer, RPG Time, The Legend of Right, Rune Factory 5, Salt and Sacrifice, SD Gundam Battle Alliance, Soul Hackers 2, Star Ocean The Divine Force, Steel Rising, Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin, Symphony of War The Nephilim Saga, Temtem, The Diofield Chronicle, The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero, Triangle Strategy, Valkyrie Elysium, Vampire Survivors, Voice of Cards, The Forsaken Maiden, Voice of Cards, The Beasts of Burden, Weird West, and Xenoblade Chronicles 3. That is quite a list uh, of all sizes, of all of all publisher types, big and small. And a lot of these we have mentioned before because they've been in our category nominations. And a lot of these, uh, more than I you know anticipated before I started reading that list, are games that very clearly came out this year and many even had great reception, but we're listing for the first time here in this uh, recording. All right. So I think that obviously as we go through that list, there are some games that are very clearly going to be contenders and then some games that are very clearly not quite going to make the cut. So the way that we did this in previous years is that we'll kind of go round robin across the uh, proverbial room here and pick a title that we clearly say that we promote into contention or that we demote out of the running and we just do that until we've got two pools of games uh basically those that are going to be under further consideration and then those that are no longer uh, in consideration uh does that make sense yep yes all right so i'm just going to go in the order that is in uh, alphabetical based on our uh, chat room here and just give alex the first go of picking a game to either promote into consideration or demote out of the running Okay, let's just put Elden Ring up there now, and then. All right, that and there are, there'll be some uh, obvious ones like that uh, that we can do kind of without questions asked. Uh, Josh, 
Um, we, we can uh, move Lost Ark down, demote Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. I, I had my fun with Lost Ark. I put 200 hours into it. I was like, uh, like I, I tried my best to really like it, and I did like it for a good chunk of that time, but the, the end of the game stuff was just, I didn't like it. It was like a lot of like spending hours and hours to hopefully get a chance to upgrade your stuff, and it could break, and it was... I was, and I don't know the best way to put this, but I, this is really all it comes down to if Lost Ark. I was enjoying that game up until the moment I was reminded it was a Korean free-to-play MMO. Yeah. It's, uh, I tried, but I, I think after, it reminded me, I think it finally solidified, I, I can't do MMOs anymore. <laughs> all right, uh, Jess, you get the next choice. Reiterate. This is one uh, that's a shoe in, or uh, you can you can pick or... one. Yeah, either direction. Hmm. Well, I feel like Xenoblade should definitely be there. Yeah, that's a pretty makes sense. One. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna knock one out of the list that we've only mentioned just now, and that is Guild Wars Two: End of Dragons. Uh, I am the only person here that keeps up with this game, and I do think that. This expansion that released earlier this year is kind of writing the ship for this MMO, uh, but it's merely good and not great. So it's not a top 10. I do think that it is something that has proven that this game still has some staying power and is moving in the right direction, but it's merely good. So I'm, I gave it its tiny little 60 seconds in the spotlight, but it's out of the running. Two for two MMOs. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Adam. Uh, cut out Monarch. I do oh. think, very quickly, I think Monarch, there are some good ideas just buried under a, not a, a lot of really bad execution. Like, if you're a glass half full guy, there's something, there's some okay things to find in there, but it doesn't really stand up. I'll leave it at that. All right, James. Gonna be a mold breaker here of MMORPGs and Walker uh, send it to the running. All right, uh, we'll go back through the list again. Back to Alex. Should we do it by two this time? Because there's there's still a lot that we keep on running. Sure, on sure. Pick two this time. Uh, so maybe we do one up, one down. So I will send. Um, I will send Pokemon Legends Arceus up, and I will send Pokemon Scarlet and Violet down. Ooh, I like this. This okay. is kind of spicy, or maybe not so spicy. This is very mild. <laughs> <laughs> all right obviously scarlet and violet we've had we haven't had a ton of opportunities to speak to but uh maybe james's six want, score on those sites kind of speaks to it oh no not scarlet and violet <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the end because we can revisit it like when we're when we're bumping stuff up and down if there's something that people see that's on the bottom there where they're like actually now i'm looking at the top i think x belongs yeah. more than y yeah but for the now way- the way I see Pokemon Scarlet and Violet is that in a just world, it wouldn't have even released this year because it clearly should have been next year's holiday game and Arceus should have had its spot just to polish up things a little bit more. Yeah. To be completely frank, the Pokemon Company International did not need to release two mainline Pokemon games within the same calendar year. That's ridiculous. Well, I think in fairness, the one thing I will say there is I think it's clear that what happened there was that Arceus slipped and 
Scarlet and Violet released on the date that it was always supposed to. However, I can't believe they didn't make the decision to delay Scarlet and Violet. But hey-ho, here we are. And this is their punishment. All I have to say about that is, when Alex said, this is the end, this isn't the end, it just reminded me of Xenoblade 3. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Josh, we're up to, or we're doing two decisions, up or down. Or one um, up, one down. Up to you. Put up Asta Libra, uh, put down Digimon Survive. Hmm. Does anyone feel strongly enough about Digimon Survive to try to veto that? Unfortunately, All Digimon right. did not survive. Seems not. Uh, let me remind you, when Digimon Survive launched on PC at launch day, no one could actually play the game because it would crash on because of a video encoding error. And people had to like, tinker with their own video encoder settings if they, uh, to, to get past it. it was you go my machine. <laughs> All right, uh, Jess, you, know, you get to move, move two of these. Uh, let's see. Uh... I'm going to remove Temtem and Okay. Uh, I'll move up Exocolonist. Maybe I'll go for Coromon next. I don't know. The the indie monster tamers. They they weren't doing it for me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Temtem of, of of the two indie monster tamers on this list, I think probably I like Coromon more than Temtem. Temtem's not that indie either, really. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of money behind that game, but um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't, th- I don't think Temtem makes the top. And I'm, I'm the person on this recording who has played the most Temtem. Yeah, Temtem is kind of a strange just, one. Uh... Well, it sounds like both the people that have played it don't feel that strongly about it. It's been out in early uh... access and playable for several years, but only just now re- released in 1.0 this year. Yeah, I mean, the progression is really slow. I remember I was like, I'm 10 hours in, and I've only beaten one gym and evolved one mo- one monster. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, you can beat the original Pokemon game in 10 hours. <laughs> All right, I guess it's my turn. So I will um, I will move up Pentiment into the, uh, in the running. And then uh, I'm looking at the list and trying to look at ones that are kind of difficult or oddball choices and i'm looking at lost idolins i believe the only person that's played this is scott who isn't it doesn't have the chance to defend it here but also scott didn't feel that strongly about it let me remind myself uh what he scored it on the site because i don't believe it was very strong seven out of ten so i'm gonna go ahead and just punt lost idolins now just so we don't have to think about it later Maybe if more people played it, we'd have some different opinions on it. But just, again, reality of the situation is that no one's here to defend it. And the one person who has played it wrote up that they didn't feel that strongly about it. So I'm punting it. All right. Uh, over to Adam. A similar punt for RPG time. Legend of Right. Paige, mm-hmm. who's one of our contributors, reviewed this and I assume nominated it. But she also only scored it a 7. And... She said it's kind of like style over substance and like it's got like this sketchbook style and, you know, it's got a very cute aesthetic, but like as like a game, as an RPG, it just wasn't very strong. So, and there's no one else, I don't think anyone else here has played it. So unfortunately we can't really speak more to it than what Paige has written up. 
I'll also punt out uh, Asteragos. I played this. I actually think this is an okay game. Like, kind of like a first project, kind of like a Souls Light RPG. And honestly, I would recommend it, just with a lot of caveats. And I just don't think it's top 10 material. I'll leave it at that. All right, James. I am going to punt um, Monochrome Mobius, Rights and Wrongs Forgotten. I've already alluded to uh, not enjoying that game nearly as much as I was hoping I would, and I'm the only person that can speak to it, so no point keeping it on the list. Um, <clears throat> put uh, Sunbreak in the uh, running, I guess. Back to uh, Alex. Let's lose Gotham Knights. It's crap. Um, and <laughs> you know what? Let's also lose Fire Emblem Warriors Free Hopes. It's just not good enough, in my opinion. It's better than Gotham Knights, though. I mean, Gotham Knights is terrible. But um, Fire Emblem Free Hopes is a definite improvement over the previous Fire Emblem Warriors game. Uh, but the crucial thing which makes me put it down into the uh, d- eliminated bracket in this is it's not as good as Hyrule Warriors 2 is. Or mm. even Hyrule Warriors 1, probably. So it sounds like maybe Hyrule Warriors 3 will finally get it right. <laughs> All right, Mom. All right, uh, back to Josh. I'm gonna um, put. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I said sure Josh. Josh, Josh. Is that Josh? Okay. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll put both Citizen Sleeper and Triangle Strategy up. Mm-hmm. All right now, back to Jess. Um, I'm gonna put Karamon and Rune Factory Five down. Oh, down. Okay. Actually, to be honest, I forgot Rune Factory 5 released. Granted, it's not my type of game. I just, we didn't talk about it before now. And most of you are kind of soft on it. Like, I okay. feel like, especially on Switch, it had performance issues. And on PC, it's like the game's better, but still, like, from a structural standpoint, people, yeah. from what I seem, generally preferred for. From what I, basically how I'd sum it up is it was fine, it wasn't great. Um, kind of some missing context here and there. And also, yeah, the performance issue wasn't as good. And um, the locations didn't have as much personality, kind of bland town. Um, characters were fine, but some people had nitpicks here and there. But yeah. And I, I can't speak for him, obviously, but Chow has had opportunity on the regular Tetracast to speak to Rune Factory 5. And I feel like he would be agree with this decision. He He was very tepid on it. So I get the next pair of decisions, uh, a game we haven't talked about yet, Expeditions Rome. I'm going to put it up. It is a game that I thought surprised me. I played it on a whim and I thought it did a lot of things really well. So I'll speak to that more later when we're paring down that upper list, but I'll push it up for now. And then I'm going to push down Aiden Chronicle Rising. Uh, obviously, this was kind of a, a kind of an appetizer game in the first place, but it's not a very good one. I don't think it's it's OK, but it's very bland. And didn't feel that strongly. It's not top 10 material. So I was going to push it down. Uh, over to Adam. Uh, 
consider Horizon, push that up, and okay. push Steel Rising down. Steel Rising, it's okay. Just not more than that. Right, over to James. Stranger of Paradise up, Star Ocean down. Star oh, Ocean Star down. Ocean. Oh, man. Uh, anyone I'm disagree? looking at that list and I enjoyed Star Ocean. There's no way it's making the top 10. Oh, well, I haven't played it. So if someone wants to disagree, now's your chance. Oh, no. This, no, is, the, this, this is the this is the this is the this is the first chance where I feel like maybe I disagree. Brian, we got to band together. <laughs> we got to do it for our boy Raymond. <laughs> I'm just looking at the list, though, on games that still haven't moved up. And it's like Star Ocean surprised me. It's oh. this is the hardest cut yet, but it's not oh. going to make top ten. Dang. Considering list for now and cut it later. <laughs> Dang. The thing that made me do it is I saw that Live Alive was still in that like long list, and it's like, oh, that's that's a game that I'd be shocked if it doesn't make top ten. But Star Ocean, there's mm, yeah, no, oh. not gonna happen. Uh I'll put it at the top of the out of the running list. <laughs> Let's go. Like the first one out. Okay. First All right. One out. Uh, back to Alex. Get rid of both those voice of cards games. I just, it, it's fine. I feel like the way they've um, released, like so many of those in quick succession feels really grimy. Um Mm-hmm. And I'm still salty that people paid more attention to that than Dungeon Encounters, so fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> right, Josh. Uh, oh, um, ooh, uh, move Live Alive up, uh, put Jack Move down. Right, Jack Move was a game that you had a few nice things to say about on the podcast. Yeah, it's okay, uh, but I don't think uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice small RPG, but it's not like crazy good compared to like what we're looking at here. It's fine. Over to Jess. Yeah, like out of these, I know that, um, well, Harvestella and Soul Hackers 2 were fine, but I'm not sure if they'd make I consider them top 10 material. I feel like I'm wondering if I should put them up or down right now. Uh, let's see. For the record, I think Brian and I are the only people that have played Harvest Snow and neither of us have finished it. So it's like, even if we feel like it's a good game, it's like, I don't think either of us have played enough to really be able to make that argument for that game. All right, then let's put that down and Soul Hackers 2 out. So the, those that have finished Soul Hackers 2, do we feel strongly enough about it to push it up? Um, I mean, like, I don't feel like it's... I, I was just wondering. I don't know how it compares to the others. I was like, but you oh, think it might be like fringe top ten? Fine. We'll see. Well, we can always talk about it later, right? It's fine. All right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Harvestella like again. Too early to put it out. All right. So we'll put Soul Hackers two up for now. It might be a fringe top ten. Harvestella, like James has said, I've played a portion of it, and I do think that it is better than I thought it would be. But I would feel kind of grimy saying like. 
oh, I haven't beat it yet, but I'm sure it'll be great by the time I am. And therefore, it's going to be in the top 10. Because even what I played now, it's fringe top 10. It's not like it's amazing experience yeah. the first 20 hours or so. It, it has surprised me. So I might put it like kind of with Star Ocean. <laughs> you Dude, know, the running section. 60 hours in okay. You don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, surprisingly good. I'm glad that I, re- I decided to at least start it. Uh, but um, out of the running. So I know that I can push out uh, Weird West. I put this on the list because it is probably the most different, the most different game that I've played this year. It's like an isometric, almost like Baldur's Gate style RPG where you choose locations on a map and uh, interact in like little vignettes in an overarching story. But on top of that, you change characters. So you kind of have a different perspective as you go through the game. But honestly, Live Alive from 1994 does the concept of it better of the different perspectives. And Weird West has a lot of gameplay issues that makes it very tedious to play, even if the narrative idea is a good concept. So interesting. I'm glad I played it, but it's like a it's like a six out of ten, seven out of ten game. It's it's fine and different and kind of unique, but don't feel that strongly about it. Um, I'm also going to think I'm going to push out Symphony of War, the Nephilim saga. This is an indie game that was pretty highly regarded, very clearly built in the vein of a Fire Emblem-like, and there's a lot of indie games in this space. It does a few interesting things with the way that it almost has like uh, ad- Advanced Wars-type unions, where each unit is not a union, not a unit, but like a battalion of different Ogre types of... Any, any, any other oh, oh, the Orga... Gotcha. Yeah. But it, its story is honestly quite bad. The story has like comically evil, like this cult, they wear hoods, they have red eyes, they worship a demon god, they're bad guys. Like there's no nuance. Uh, and sometimes that can be good, but this is just really bland here. So it was fine. I'm, I'm okay. I'm I actually, I would say I was glad I played it, but you know what? Maybe I'm not so sure. I was really kind of lukewarm on it. So I'm pushing it down. Adam, anything left on the list here that you uh, know well enough to push up or down? I think there's at least one. Deal field up, Valkyrie Elysium down. What the Valkyrie Elysium story is so bad it drowns out any other redeeming part of that game. Anyone else feel strongly otherwise about Valkyrie Elysium? Because it's a game that's a pretty high profile game that we haven't talked about on this podcast uh, it's, it's, quite it's yet. It's solar beating feature is the feel of combat. Like the battle system, like pretty, pretty fun. It's just a lot of the other elements of the game. Like it's very, it's fun to play, but when you're thinking about other factors of the game, it, it, it's it's lacking. It's lacking yeah. for sure. I feel like there's a lot of uh, RPGs that came out this year that were solid, like seven out of tens, and there's like a block of them. Valkyrie mm-hmm. yeah. is definitely one of those. Um, is it my turn now? I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to. This is this is one that feels weird because I feel like a lot of us are just kind of avoiding it, even though it's. Like, if we're going by our own rules, this is almost a, sure, a shoe-in for the top ten. Uh, bring up Trails from Zero. It's yeah, Trails from Zero. Is... I feel like most of the people here that have played it, played it years ago. So it doesn't feel new. But we have to, like, think about it from the perspective of it is new for this for this list. Gotta think of it like it just came out yesterday. And um, knock down... Uh, Josh, did you play any of the Octopath mobile game? I played a little bit of it, but I, w- I wouldn't put it up there. It's just like, okay, yeah. then let's knock it down. 
they, they kind of done a lot of crummy things to the global version too anyway <laughs> oh checking uh that it's like man that's fucked up All right, so for the remaining parts of the list that we haven't decided either way, I think it might be best just to go top to bottom and see how we feel about them as a group. Uh, remaining on the list, not decided either way, we got Anno Mutation M. I believe the only two that played this were Josh and Paige, and Paige yeah. isn't here. You, you, so. you can push it down. Uh, it's, it's not it's not fun. Like, it's interesting at like the opening hours, then it becomes quickly like not really that interesting and not fun to play. All right, we have Atelier Sophie 2, The Alchemist of the Mysterious Dream. This is another one that Paige has played. Uh, did she also review it? Yep. Let me see. And then how? what did she score it? An 8 out of 10. So better than how she felt about, um, what was it? Temtem? RPG time or whatever, yeah. Oh, yeah, RPG or that one, but... <laughs> No one's heard it here. We have to. Yeah, yeah we have to vote. Kind of. I haven't played it yet, so it's oh, like oh. goodbye. Uh, Atelier. We apologize, Atelier well, fans. We can't we'll see you everything. next year for Rise of Three. We, we, we tell we, we tell people you, if you want to represent something, you, you got to be here. Yeah, and that's just that's just kind of the nature of the business. Like the our decision is going to be influenced strongly by who is here to deliberate and defend or attack any of the games on this list, and that's just. That's part of the the decision making process. Uh, Echo is a mana. This is the uh, the mobile game for in the mana series you, that were released you, you this can year. Move it down. It's it's not that great, honestly. I, I played a good bit of it for like uh, like two weeks, and I'm like, ah. Uh. All right, and this this next one on the list is probably the most unfortunate release timing in terms of our decision making, and that is Front Mission First Remake it came out literally yeah. on the last day of November. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I play. I played enough of it because I played Front Mission before, and like, I I still prefer the the SNES version over the remake, which I guess speaks volumes. I guess um, if it get, if it comes to another platform that can like run it smoothly and be more responsive, um, it'll be fun, way more fun. Right now, I just, as it is on the Switch, it's like it's it's this, uh, this is forever entertainment, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. It, it, I feel like with with remakes. That's like the monkey's paw. It, it it like it curls and it's like you get a remake for one of your favorite games. It's being done by Forever Entertainment and a Switch exclusive <laughs> for a number of months. Yeah, there is a Discord feels- group. There is a chat that I am in with some some other people, various industry people, some some devs and some Twitter influencers and people like that. And that is a running joke. Is the, in fact the running joke specifically is Chrono Trigger remake by Forever Entertainment. <laughs> oh jeez, oh, that doesn't feel good. I do think this front mission remake is fine though. By the way, for it's, it's fine. What it is. Yeah, but like, but it's just it's it's like so weird, right? Because like when I look, I remember like the SNES version, SNES version, and then I see footage of it, like. Yeah, I remember it running very smoothly, and like this one is like this shit literally goes down to fucking two to three FPS and some like flashback sequences in it. I'm like, what? Like, like uh, the silhouette of a plane flying by a forest of trees. Why is the frame rate fucking dying at that? So we have six more games to push up or down, and some of these only have one defender. Either way, uh, Little Noah, Scion of Paradise. I know James has played this because he talked to it on the. Uh, on our main Tetracast. I think it's solid. I'm going to tentatively say, well, now, 
I'm the only person that's played it. I think it's good. I'm not necessarily sure if it'll be top 10 material. And even if I did, there, there's no way I'm going to be able to argue that. So just send it down. Here's your chance. I mean, I you can I, argue for it if you... <laughs> I. It's a very cute roguelike. It's a lot of fun. It's... <sighs> I enjoyed it a lot, but I'm looking at the rest of those games in the running, and I do not think I can make a good argument that it is better than, like, half of that list to get into the top ten. All right. We'll push down Little Noah. Uh, Made in Abyss, Binary Star Falling Into Darkness. You can put it down. Yeah, we kind of spoke to it a little bit in the uh, design section. But it has a good concept, but the execution is okay. That's the way that I understood, uh, interpreted the discussion on that. Uh, relayer. You can put it down as well. It's 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 decent, but it's not, it doesn't hang with uh, some of the other games up there. All right, Salt and Sacrifice. Is this the one that James played, or is this one that was nominated by a person huh? that's not here? Did you did you play this? I, I forget. No. No, okay. I'm, I must be thinking of something else. It. Yeah. All right. It might have been nominated by a page or by a Quinton. Um, so, kind of by default, if no one here had, can defend it, we push that down. Two left. SD Gundam Battle Alliance. It was fun co-op experience, but it's uh, it's going down. Last one. Vampire Survivors. Uh, this has to go up, man. Up, like. Up, up. Up. All right. I guess my question of Vampire Survivors is: it's an RPG. I didn't know that. Okay. There are RPG like level up mechanics, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you call like like that story narrative side an RPG. That's the thing about it. I mean, it's the usual dodge of it's a hard genre to define anyway. We cast a wide net. So many games have RPG elements, even if they're ostensibly not RPGs. It's more art than science, I suppose. Is kind of the uh, always the answer to that. All right. Well, I think we might have made our job now a little bit easier. We'll see because we pushed down. It looks like about twice as many as we pushed up. So we'll have a shorter list to work from from here going forward. So and in the running, we went through the whole list of 50 games and we have remaining Elden. And this is in no order, by the way. We have Elden Ring, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Final Fantasy 14 and Walker, Pokemon Legends Arceus. Estelibra Revision, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, Pentiment, Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, Citizen Sleeper, Triangle Strategy, Expeditions Rome, Horizon Forbidden West, Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy Origin, Live Alive, Slackers 2, The Deal Field Chronicle, The Trails from Zero, and Vampire Survivors. So we've pared it down from a list of about 50 games to a list of 18. Our job now is to pick a top 10. So now we just have to discuss as a group, kind of in the same vein that we were before, any obvious top 10s, which I feel like a lot of these are obvious top 10s. It might be easier to pick out stragglers that we're glad that we were able to survive one round of cuts, but may, might not be quite top 10 material. We've got to lose eight. So we'll call right? it. So, yeah, we got to lose eight. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, um, I think we could call some I think we could call some obvious ones right yeah. now. I don't yeah. think Soul Hackers 2 makes it. 
Yeah, I was going to say that. I was that. looking at Soul Hackers think- as well. Also, Adam, how strongly do you feel about Horizon? I think Horizon is a top 10, I will say, by the way. Yeah, it looks like Adam stepped it's, out for a second. It's it's by the skin of it. Well, anyway, anyway, I mean, you know, there's some obvious ones while we wait for Adam to come back. Like, there isn't a universe that exists where Elden Ring is not in the top 10. Yeah, there's um, not a universe that exists where Elden Ring's not in the top five. I, I'm going to say that now. Like, God. Well, I, so yeah. I, I mean, I, I also pushed up Xenoblade Chronicles 3 as kind of an obvious top 10. The same. Yeah, um... I mean, uh, the, the what, what are what are the real chances of the of the games that uh, only one person has played? I mean, I guess I guess I might as well. Uh, well it depends everyone. on depends on how strong the argument is. You know, we've had people argue stuff into the top five. I think we've had people argue stuff into the top three before. Yeah. Um, as of right now, since uh, Chow's no longer here, I'm the only person to play, that's played Endwalker, but I. Something tells me nobody's going to argue against that being in the top 10. I understand how good it is. Um, it it, it kind of depends on the arguments for other games, but yeah, it's uh, it's a hard one to argue against. Um, so I, to, to, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to try to answer Josh's musing about games that have one defender. And I look at this list and it looks like those three games are I Was a Teenage, Exocolonist, Expeditions Rome, and vampire survivors so expeditions rome oh yeah citizen sleeper as well and and then and then since chow stepped up i'm like i I mean adam has played up to chapter two but asked the libras technically Mm. you know since chow stepped out you know expeditions rome there is more than one person by the way because there's also me Mm. Um, i haven't spoke about it up until this point but i really like that game an enormous deal um obviously i like XCOM. And there is a there's a there's a similarity there, and I also like Rome, um, just in general. So you mentioned right. you mentioned XCOM, and I just realized not a single person on RPG site has played the new Mario Plus Rabbits. It's an RPG, and apparently pretty good. <laughs> Oops, I don't think it really is an RPG though. In the same way that XCOM is sort of on the fringe. Um, but Expeditions Rome, I kind of want to talk to this. I, I want to put it into the top 10 for now. It might end up being our this year's number 11 or something like that. But so how Expeditions Rome works is it is a round based isometric strategy game set, obviously, in ancient Rome. And you have a party of, I believe, six clear main characters and they are assigned classes it's a class-based game and then there's a little bit of class specialization think like fire emblem sacred stones where they start as a class but you can kind of tier them in a few different directions uh and then you kind of have generic units that you can recruit from a from a from a list that you can then use to make your group mostly archers which are i think are overpowered in the game or vanguard or defenders i forget uh the exact because a lot of the class names are things like Centurion or Hoplite or things like that, where um, they're, they're kind of tethered to the, the era that the game's set in. Uh, the game has a really strong political narrative that is really compelling, especially yes. in the terms of its antagonist. So uh, the antagonist, I'm actually blanking on his name right now, but it's one of the ancient consuls of Rome. Uh, and 
he is a sort of character that is a schemer and you're kind of forced to uneasily ally yourself with him. He is not physically strong, but he is the sort of person that manipulates the law and his allegiances to get what he wants. And the narrative of this game is set in the way that you realize that in specific moments in time, this game takes place over three like major periods of time over the course of maybe two decades. Um, like it's like the third pontiff war, which I haven't learned uh, much about until I played this game. And you realize for the sake of your standing in Rome that you have to ally with them, even though it feels disgusting, but you realize that it is the right thing to do. And by the end of this game, there are, this game is an RPG through and through, not in just in terms of the strategy and the like stat boosting aspect of it, but even in terms of, like a branching narrative, uh, for instance, the, sec- the middle arc of this game takes place in Egypt and you're working with Cleopatra and you can kind of decide whether you ally with her or you- whether you use her. Um, in the third arc of the game, near the very end, you decide whether you go along with this console uh, antagonist or you finally stand up against him. But if you do, you just stood up against a console of Rome, so you're excommunicated effectively. And it's a sort of game where we always talk about how games like Divine Force have a very kind of boring antagonist. Or even like in Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Zed is kind of a whatever antagonist. You're fighting more against the concept of like stagnation. Where in Expeditions Rome, at the end of the game, I made a decision for my character. Because you, you create a character that then you roleplay as with, along with your party members. So it's very much a Western RPG in that front. I decided to basically go against the state and fight this guy because... He was such an asshole. And because of that, in the epilogue of the game, my character could no longer live in Rome. However, because I had allied with Cleopatra in the second arc, I was able to find refuge there. So I this game surprised me in a lot of ways. and I do feel like it belongs in the top 10. I, I, all I can say is I watched you play a lot of this. I haven't played it myself. So, you know, it's the next best thing, I guess. And it seems like it's really, really solid based on all the things really you said nice. and also just how to play it. So, Yeah, I will vouch. for. I haven't finished it, but I would vouch for um, I would vouch for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the name of the character uh, was uh, Lurko is the uh, the antagonist. Uh, triangle strategy, you know one... I think, is an obvious move up. See, I, see, for me, that's a move down. Triangle strategy. I just, I just, I just, I love the democracy. Uh, the um, I don't know. I like. <laughs> I just. You sound so distraught. It's been a year for 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 strategy RPGs, right? Um, and I just feel like. Not one of them has really, really grabbed me, and um, and I think if I'm looking at this list, I'm like, well, Live Alive is far more deserving than Triangle. I really like the vote stuff, the democracy stuff, um, but it's so slow, and the story is boring in, for a lot of the time. Oh no, I, I, I like the story. <laughs> it's such a it's 
such a slow burn. It's such. A I, slow I personally burn. think Triangle Strategy is top five. Like personally, for me, Oof. I think it's solid all around. Yeah, I don't think it's like stellar in any one pointed category, but all around. Like I, I do agree that the the beginning of the game is a slow burn. Like it does start off pretty slow, but it it takes time to like kind of establish the premise of what that game is about. Like, well, in which case, I think Deerfield has to go. In fact, Deerfield I rate less than Triangle anyway. To be fair, but I just don't think either of them are top ten. But Deerfield, if Triangle is Deerfield, definitely, definitely is not. I think as someone that appreciate, yeah, as someone that appreciated Dealfield for what it was, I can agree that it's not quite top ten. Any other Dealfielders? Dealfielders feel feel deal opposed. Sweep. No longer sweep. No longer sweep. Uh, I'll move Pentiment up. I guess again, that's another one that it's me and Alex primarily defending. Uh, I'll put it up for now. We'll I have see. not played it yet, but everything yeah. I've seen of it, I'm not going to argue against it. It's one of the best games of the year, hands down, in any genre. Definitely need to All get right. around to it. Perfect for Steam Deck. <laughs> How do we feel about Sunbreak? It's I, very, very competent. It's kind of my summary of it. I think that it deserves to be top 10. I think especially with the updates, they've done a good job of like bringing back some monsters that for longtime fans, they've just been missing in action for like the better half of a decade. And I, I understand that's very like niche stuff, but like something like Lucent Nargakuga, the last time you were able to hunt it was in Monster Hunter 3 Ultimate, which came out over 10 years ago. It's just been completely missing and it's back. And they've been doing a lot of stuff like that with uh, other uh, monsters and whatnot. And, I've I've really genuinely been enjoying the stuff they've been doing with um the uh risen uh, elder dragons and whatnot. But um I don't think it's top five, but I definitely think there is an argument for a top ten, especially with the updates that have drastically improved the endgame loop. So I'm looking at this list and we gotta pick six more losers, basically. I mean they're not losers because they've made it this far. But they're losers. Tough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How about Stranger of Paradise, Final Fantasy Origin? I, 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 I love that game. I think that genuinely genuinely, the story is better than people give it credit for. Uh, the fact that they managed to stick the ending as well as they did is quite frankly bonkers. Most um, meaningful fist bump in video games. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll just be honest. If if it wasn't for that DLC, I'd feel stronger about fighting for it. But I'm not sure if that dev team deserves that that fight right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, it's one of those weird ones. Like I really enjoyed the base game, didn't, didn't touch the updates, so like I, I I'm fond of it. But even 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 at even at as someone who's most fond of it, not knowing the knowledge of the post launch updates, like I I still wouldn't put it in a top ten. I'd say. Here's an easy one. Uh, and Walker, definitely top 10. All right. So we kind of have a, a bundle here of three of the indie games. Uh, we have Astral Libra Revision, Teenage Exo Colonist, and Citizen Sleeper. Based on the discussions that we've had before, 
I do believe that Astelibra Revision kind of stands out. Oops, I didn't mean to do that on the document. Astelibra Revision kind of stands out above the other two. Based, I know Chow's not here to defend it now, but we heard some discussions from him in the uh, um, categories. So again, kind of an elephant in the room. We've got these single defense of Exocolonus and Citizen Sleeper. They're probably going to burn, to be honest. Like, I, I would love to see Citizen Sleeper up there, and I could talk and talk and talk and talk about it. But at the end of the day, I'm the only one who's played it, right? So yeah, and I'll put I'll put Expedition I, I, Rome I, I, next I, I, to these I, I, as I well. Put, I would put Citizen Sleeper above Sunbreak. I would put it above Live Alive, to be honest. But I'm the only one who's played it, so. Well, if me and you have also played Sunbreak, and I'm kind of like to me, it's very competent and fine. But I wouldn't put Sunbreak it. in top ten. I, that's that's me. Mm. I I I, I, I like playing it. I played a shitload of it, you know. But for me, like I wouldn't put it in top ten. Let me clear some of these blanks. We have a better list. How about Arceus? Again, I guess that one we've 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 heard a few people very feel very strongly about Arceus in both directions. We heard Alex and myself speak more highly of it, but then Adam thought it was very boring. Josh didn't like it at all, and then and I think Chow Jess was also kind of well. Chow liked it a lot too, hmm. so it seems Actually, like we're literally split down the middle. I remember at the beginning of the year, I gave it <laughs> I gave it like an eight, so I guess it's higher than. I mean, I I think now I feel like it's also kind of like i think nowadays i would score it like lower like maybe a 7.5 or 7 but yeah i think it, it deserves some credit for like innovating in the formula I'm not sure if it's top 10 like for me i feel like it's mid <laughs> it feels like arceus is better for the concept and the execution the fact that it finally decided to shake up the genre or oh, the, the world genre, building the, the, i thought was also nice I think the story in Arceus is genuinely good and not even just like good for a Pokemon game. I think the way they handle it is it's not amazing, but it's good. All right. Uh, we I, ha- we kind of punted on this one earlier. Horizon for, for Arceus. All right. Uh, Horizon for Forbidden Arceus. West. I I guess I am I the only one who's played it here? It's I you and Alex. It. I like it plenty. Um, so here's here's my, my overall but... here's my overall thought on Horizon, Forbidden West. They took like the pointed criticisms of the original game and basically addressed every one of them in terms of like the quest design kind of sucks. Well, they improved the side quest quite a bit uh, in this version. Uh, the like the animations and like character models are really bad, and well, they 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 fixed up a lot of the animation issues. And things like melee combat was really, really awkward in the original. Melee combat's quite a lot better now. So, like, in terms of, like, comparing it to the original in that sense, it's a much better game. But it still has, like, the same design ethos in terms of, you know, the open world. It's basically like an open world, traditional open world RPG in terms of everything else about its design. It's got a lot of that AAA detritus in terms of so many things to collect and loot and whatnot. And so... In that sense, it's not very novel. I do think it's a totally fine game. It's a good game if you like, unless you just have a dis, a, a, a distaste for that sort of style. But you know, I am not going to defend it really for top ten. So, how about you, Alex? If I push this out of the top ten, do you feel strongly opposed to that? 
You go with it. I um, it is top ten for me, and I think uh, just like the first game, had it not launched next to one of the best games of the last decade, uh, people would more people would have played it and more people would remember it in a more fond way. I think it would have got an easier ride, uh, but that is what it is. <laughs> All right, we need we need to find. Four more. Man, this is tough. Uh, Vampire Survivors, we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, so I guess for Josh, between Citizen Sleeper or Vampire Survivors, which one do you feel more strongly about, or do you think they are both deserving? Alex has played Vampire Survivors also. It's not just me. Oh, oh gotcha. I've played Vampire Survivors, and, I, and it's one of the best games of the year, in my opinion. I think it's just tremendous. Well, I mean, oh, okay. you're, you're you're basically giving you an option of like, oh, do you the, the, between two of the best games of this year, which one do you do you have to like kick out? It's like no, I I, 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 know, I, I was kind of talking. <laughs> yeah, all right. It sounds like so when I was, it, it, I know it was sounding like that. I was going to set you up for choosing between Citizen Sleeper or Vampire Survivors, but one thing I did say was or both. They both stay. So it sounds like Sunbreak. People, I I feel way more strongly about Sunbreak mostly because I've been keeping up with the updates and I feel like they've been good and they've been feeding me as a longtime fan but I understand that that's very subjective and yeah I I, I don't know I'm, I, I I for for me personally it's probably top five but I know there's no way in hell I'm gonna be able to get there so yeah What about Trails from Zero? That's the last one on this list. That again is that, kind of in a weird spot because all of us that have Zero played it played it yeah. a while ago. Like Trails from Zero at like the year it was launched, you know, in Japan, like it was one of the best games of that year. When you're th- when you're putting up against 2022 games, it's a whole different story. I still know? think Trails from Zero is one of the best games that Falcom's ever made, and I think that it would actually be a disservice if it wasn't in our top ten. So for anyone listening to this. This is what this podcast is for. Like, how could so-and-so not be in the top 10? Well, look how we have still four more to cut and look how difficult this is. So any of these games that we're about to cut out of our top 10 on a different, if, it, if this argument and discussion was held on a different day, easily could. All righty. So does the, the, I does know. This become, I'm just saying, does this list become easier to do if you just cut out all the ones that only has one defender? I'm just saying. Potentially. So, or one or two. So I mean, we I have, would be okay uh, with that because it sounds fair, but yeah. So we basically we kind of have a pile of games here that people are really strongly defending, but we are there's a volume, and that that uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, well, I guess Sunbreak is kind of in that list too. <laughs> Alrighty, so I'm organizing the list here, and I'm trying to make sure that this is genuine to the discussion that we're having. I have these five games listed that have been contentious that we have to kind of pick one of them. So I know other people don't have the list in front of them. I have Trails from Zero and Astalibra Revision kind of pushed to the top because they've had multiple defenders. For those that don't have multiple defenders, we have Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, Expeditions Rome, I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, Citizen Sleeper, and Vampire Survivors. Uh, It sounds like out of this list, we've had two people feel really strongly about vampire survivors and we've had two people feel really strongly about expeditions Rome. So what that would do is that that would cut out citizen sleeper, teenage exocolonist and sunbreak again, very difficult cuts, but they're the ones that 
have one defender each, it seems like. That makes sense to me. Yeah, this is what it is. And then out of the remaining two, both me and Alex felt strongly about Expeditions Rome. But then Alex also said that Vampire Survivors is one of the best of the year. And Josh seems to feel similarly. Yeah, Vampire Survivors is fucking sick. <laughs> that, more, is like, that is, that is oh, man, so good. The more I look at Vampire Survivors and that gameplay loop, the more I'm thinking, I just don't know if it's an RP, if it's enough of an RPG. Whereas Expedition Drome is very clearly an RPG. I think that's probably my concern, is that if it comes down to between these two, Expedition Drome is really a, a truly a full fat. Yeah, for, for, if you yeah, forgot my genre like definition now to, to kick one out, then yeah, Vampire Survivors is out. I think I like them about the same amount, um, to be clear. But I think I do think Vampire Survivors is more, if you're thinking about it, in a broad sense, uh, for a much wider audience. It's one of the best games of the year. You know, it's going to get a lot of accolades, I think, this year from people more broadly. Expedition Drome, I don't think will. Um, but for me personally, they're about the same level. Um, but I do think if you're a fan of role-playing games or a fan of strategy RPGs or a fan of strategy games with an RPG bent to them, like I, I've seen Namecheck's XCOM, it's just brilliant. Oh, yeah. I, I, so the, just, to, just to be clear, Vampire Survivors is down because, you know, we finally, at the last-minute stretch, we defined what the, if this was an RPG or not after discussing it at best not RPG. In other categories, and then, and then we're also giving it to Expeditions Roman. So it's like, yeah, because it, 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 no other outlets will, you know, mention it. So we'll give it there. Just, I'm just, I'm just clarifying. That's that. That's what's happening to Vampire Survivors. I think, I think what we're saying is Vampire Survivors is still excellent and only missed the top ten by a hair. But um, for me, Expeditions like- Rome. Is is really good and and more in the spirit of what we are about, basically. Yeah, I don't think it's we're, we're not saying Vampire Survivors isn't an RPG. It's that Expeditions Rome and Vampire Survivors are both excellent it's games. It's not RPG enough to, to to make it. You can't just say well, that there's now. it's it's not it's not binary. It's not it's not one or zero. It's not RPG or not RPG. There's levels to this. There's scales. There's economies. So we're saying that one falls more squarely into the realm than the other which I think is valid and not cheating. And again, it's skin of its teeth at this point. And as the person that's played both in this very particular deliberation, Alex has the most, I guess, leverage in a way, especially under the understanding that he has clearly stated that he really enjoys both and has called vampire survivors excellent, but still puts one over the other. But if I was choosing, I would choose Expeditions because it's just got that 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 de- that depth and that breadth and 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 the narrative hooks and all that sort of stuff to it, basically. Hmm. Ooh, spicy. Alrighty, so I'm going to read down the list and see if we set this in stone here. In our top ten, we have Elden Ring, Xenoblade Chronicles Three, Live Alive, Pentiment. Triangle Strategy, Endwalker, Pokemon Legends Arceus, Astalibur Revision, Trails from Zero, Expeditions Rome, with Vampire Survivors being a by a hair 11th place, so to speak. That's where we stand. Going once, 
going twice. I mean, there, there's no point in arguing what's already like, <laughs> you know, already, already gone. We just, we just had like a 15, 20 minute argument, like about this already. Yeah. So. If, if anyone right. is raising anything now, it, it kind of undoes that. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So we have our top 10. And if you're wondering, if you're looking at the list and saying, why isn't such and such there? Well, it was a very hard cut. Like we had five of these games out of the top 10 that on another on another day, on another argument could have ended up in the top 10. So unfortunately, we can't argue. Uh, we can't do a top 15, top 10 based on the discussions made and who's present on the podcast. That all influences this final list. Our job now is to pick a top five out of this top 10. And again, I think it might be easiest to determine which ones here don't belong in the top 10. And I will clearly state that Expeditions Rome, I'm very glad that it made the top 10, but it is not a top five. So I'm going to call it a bottom five, for lack of a better, more elegant name. So in the top 10, but not in the top five. Uh, Runner-up five. Well, I was... Well, I would say, based on the discussions that we just had, um, I think Trails from Zero goes down there as well, right? Um, I think, yeah, I think in any other year it would have been a top five contender, but with this specific uh, slate of games, it's it's I, I don't see an argument being made, especially with the bulwark of uh, Elden Ring, Xenoblade, Live Alive, Pentiment, and I guess to a lesser degree, and Walker. Just there's too to many. Honest, like the top five, the top four, as it's written there, is my top four. It sounds not like Live Alive might be a bit contentious. Not necessarily in that order, but that 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 top, I like that four. Oh, I, was I guess. Say, I think. Go ahead, Jess. Oh, I was gonna say, are we in agreement that that Pokemon Legends Arceus is our bottom five? Because I feel like I think is. so. I think yeah, so, based I, on the discussion we've had. Not, yeah, but I'm willing to. Yeah, I, yeah, it's like I would personally say it would be my top five, but I there's enough like people that in here that are like eh, I'm not so sure about where it's like I'm not gonna pick my battles. Gonna mm-hmm. let that slide. Do we believe? Are we in agreement that Elden Ring and Xenoblade Chronicles Three are safe? I think so. Yes. Yeah. All right. Alrighty, so um, as to Libra Revision, we've had a few people here. Unfortunately, Chow is no longer present, but we have Adam from with a little bit, and then Josh with the with the whole gamut of this top I five. It, I would personally put it as a top five personally. Okay, that's uh, that's mm-hmm. me. And there was a lot of strong arguments for it. That's why it won our best design and immersion. So I'm I'm going to keep it in the running for now. All right. Uh, Triangle strategy. We've heard Alex believe that it doesn't belong any higher, but Josh believed that it does. I can go either way. I'm okay. I, I think I think it's one of those weird things that like I think only live alive or triangle strategy lives in the top five if we're gonna if we're gonna have any of them, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they have like it's 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 getting down to that point that like you kind of have to split hairs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm really I, I'm okay with triangle strategy being uh, bottom five in this case. Like I think I think I think it's got it, it it's proper due with best music. I'm very happy that it it, it got that, and I think I think that it can I don't think it can go any, any further. Yeah. All 
All right, and very quickly, we've got so the four that we've the four that we put into our runner-up category of five in no order. We've got Triangle Strategy, Legends Arceus, Trails from Zero, and Expeditions Rome. Elden Ring and Xenoblade Chronicles Three are safe. Astalibur Revision, I'm calling fringe safe. It has a lot of strong arguments on it. Pentiment, I know again this is one that only two people have defended, but uh, well, I don't want to say but. We have Live Alive, Pentiment, and Endwalker. Uh, Chow isn't here, but he definitely seemed to agree with me that Endwalker was phenomenal. And I do not see a world where that doesn't make top five. But I also understand that as of right now, I'm the only person that's that's uh, arguing for it. Here's what I would say, just it's not about Endwalker, but just, just about this where we're at now. I think in the event that Pentiment is not in the top five, the people who have not played Pentiment in this group will be kicking themselves when they do. Yeah, I'm not arguing to to kick uh, Pentiment. If anything, I'm arguing to kick Live Alive. Yeah, that's, that's, what I was, that's what I thought what the elephant in the room was. Does anyone feel, I know a lot of us were really impressed by Live Alive, but does Live anyone... Alive. I, my main problem with it is that as good as it is from a novelty standpoint of having like these multiple different like stories that then come together, I'll just be honest. I think the combat's kind of bad. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's sort of a, it's, it's a wonderful historical um, curiosity that really, when I look at it, I look at it and I go, this is the game that led to Chrono Trigger. Um, and it's a lovely remaster of the game that led to Chrono Trigger. But beyond that, which is one of the most important JRPGs, RPGs in general of all time, um, but beyond that, it's, it's, it's merely, it's okay, right? It's like an 8 out of 10. And I think Live Alive. that's a 5. Live Alive is at its best when it's not a turn-based art. Well, when it's not a tactical RPG. I'll just say that. Everything besides the actual combat is is fantastic. But the combat is that, like, sort of unnecessary glue that holds everything together. And honestly, if I was going to be completely real here, I'm not sure if Live Alive would be a better or worse game if it was not an RPG. That's how I feel about it. Well, that kind of makes our top five very clear out of the remaining list of 10. We move Live Alive down because Live Alive, I felt really strongly about it. And but even then, I'm like, is it in my personal top five? Maybe, but it probably slot into position four or five. So putting it in the runner up here, totally OK with because the combat is the weak point. I thought it was serviceable. I didn't think it detracted from the game, but it's not the reason why I, why I would recommend it. Uh, and a lot of it, again, is the Live Alive being like, wow, this is this would be mind blowing in 1994. In 2022, it's merely good or merely just into great. So what that leaves us in our top five, the remaining five, once we have kind of split the top 10 list into its upper half and bottom half, we've got Elden Ring. This is in no order. Elden Ring, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, Astalibra Revision, Pentiment, Endwalker. With our runner-ups being Live Alive, Triangle Strategy, Legends Arceus, Trails from Zero, and Expeditions Rome. And now we have the very last... Oh, go ahead, Josh. I think I think what we're looking at here, it's either Elden or Xenoblade for top one. I, I, I agree. I go with um, Elden. 
So I do think Pentiment is very strong, but I would probably not put Pentiment at the top of my personal list. It would probably be for me be Elden Ring. So, it's Elden Ring for me. I, I guess it's it, for me. I guess it goes down to a vote, right? Like who who's who's for Zelda and who's for Xenoblade, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking back <laughs> of the discussion that we had for best narrative, best writing for Xenoblade Chronicles Three, and there was a lot of good arguments about why that game is so special for so many people. But then we also had a similar discussion for Elden Ring for art about why that game is so special. Man, this is we we always run into this. We have a one A and a one B in terms of uh, picking a winner. I guess we haven't heard recently from Adam or Jess between these. Though I, I know well, Adam I hasn't played, played Elden Ring, Ring, so and then I don't think me. Jess has oh. either. Yeah, I haven't really played enough of it to make a comment on it's on how it it didn't really impact me in comparison to Xenoblade, which I spent a lot more time on. Okay, so we'll we'll take it. <laughs> So I guess I, I'm the one in here, right? That's like I either make it a tie or I give it a I give it a winner, right? Well, let's see. Uh, I I'm not I'm not 100 sure because uh, I guess Alex said Elden, James said, said Elden. Elden, yeah. You you said Elden. They, they both said Xenoblade, so that's two to three. The thing, the, the thing I want to say is is that is that with Elden Ring, it's I really enjoy Xenoblade, um, and I think it's excellent, and I think it's the best in the series, including Cross. Um, but I feel like all the issue, many of the issues I had with the previous games are sort of still there in really frustrating ways. The fucking UI icon vomit, the, the, and just how it, <laughs> you look at that game mid combat and you understand it because you've played 40, 50 hours of it, but it is a, just like a horrific cacophony. Um, and you know, uh, and also it is sort of this iterative um, entry entry in that franchise. I think, although the way it tries to bring together the different worlds, almost that were not worlds, but you know what I mean, not in the literal sense, but the way they they try to bring together the different worlds of those games into one game um, is really really interesting. But I just, for me, it's not on the level of um, uh, Elden Ring takes so much from so many places, and it, and you can't simply say I think that it's an evolution of of uh, of souls. It's so much from outside, and you know, uh, stuff from Breath of the Wild and stuff from Red Dead. Well, both and... these are the combination of years and years of of, of both of their development. Yeah. I will say not one or the other. It's both of them. I will say about Xenoblade 3, and this is going to be a bit of a hot take, but having had the time to sit on it, I'll, I'll be honest, I think Xenoblade 3's combat system is the the only one, um, only Xenoblade game I think that has a worse combat system is the first game. I think 2, and especially um, Cross and uh, Torna, both have, significant, have significantly better combat systems. And I think... The fact that it kind of ties into that one issue that we were talking about when it came to music, the combat, even more so than Xenoblade 2, which had a similar issue, eventually revolves around to, okay, chain attack. And once you do chain attack and you have a setup for it, it's basically the same thing every single time. 
it's basically the same thing every single time. So I had hesitated to cast my vote quite yet, but actually another we're completely nitpicking at this point because we're deciding between one and two. Xenoblade Chronicles 3, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the way that you unlock the different classes is kind of strange and you almost have to like manipulate it in order to actually get enough CP to unlock them. And yeah, that's and not a, get, and that's the other thing that I didn't even okay. I completely forgot about this until just now, but I think it's a legitimate problem with the game's inherent design. The fact that you cannot level down your character until New Game Plus means that if you actually go out of your way to try and enjoy all of the content that the game has for you, once you unlock new classes, it becomes increasingly more difficult to actually get those new classes onto new onto other characters and i think that is an inherent flaw and that is like a fairly major one that it might be a nitpick but i feel like it edge it definitely edges Elden ring over for me well not even the class specific thing but we talked about how these side stories are so integral to to enjoying the world building and the characters and i that statement is completely true with the cost of oh by the way you're going to end up over leveled when you do that <laughs> sort of thing and there's nothing so, okay. to do about that. I just want to say, like, even though I'm putting, well, I'm putting my vote for Xenoblade out of like out of default because I haven't really played Elden Ring. Um, but on the flip side, like, you know, we we can we can spend another like an hour or two here today picking Elden Ring to death. Okay, but yeah, problems. Okay, okay. Too. Like we can talk about oh, like this fucking game like could not stop stuttering <laughs> at launch. This fucking game's fucking gameplay balance was fucking shit out of the ass at launch. You know, oh. like we can we can nitpick it to death that, in that way too, and it's like, oh, but from patch patched it, so it's better now. Like, great, you know. So I mean, it's just it, it's it's nitpicking it for doing it out of a vote. Like, like I would just pick, I would pick Elden out of obligation to like, I guess to to have a definitive winner more so than like, you know, that's just how the how the cookie crumbles in terms of like the 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 staff we have right now to to pick these because if I pick Xenoblade, then it never ends, you know. And, and and I, I would it would kind of like fall to me to like nitpick like Elden to death, etc. You know what I'm saying? So it's just I was going to bring up that even yeah. though I really love it, I also you know I didn't. I know you gave it a perfect score. I did not give it a perfect score. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I I reviewed it for digital trends. So I was like, I I don't think it's perfect, but it's still you know like I really enjoyed yeah. it. So as as um. I don't know if ironic, the, as paradoxical as, as it may seem. Even though I gave it a perfect score, I'm, I'm put it to the I'm put into a position now where I probably have to get to Elden to, you know, at least we have a winner, a consensus. You know, I I really like both of these games to to death, but that that's kind of how the how the process works. Sometimes sometimes it's not uh, clean. Yeah, I mean to be fair, I don't think I'd like. Uh, well, based on my taste, I'm not sure if I'd like Elden Ring better anyway. But still, uh, I think it. I think it seems. I think it seems like Elden Ring's first. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want. I do want to hear from Adam. I know he hasn't played Elden Ring, but we we just spent a bit of time talking about shortcomings of Xenoblade. I don't know if he agrees with those, or did those affect your experience with Xenoblade just on its own or not? Uh. I'm gonna be honest. Like I really like Xenoblade, but I honestly don't care if it's one or two or three or six. <laughs> so the fact you know, that you like, feel like it's telling in itself. 
I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, so I'm, I like. I'm, I'm thinking about the games I played this year and what's my favorite. I'm yeah. like, I don't know. I might like Triangle Strategy more than Xenoblade. Hey, hey, let's go. Let's bring Triangle Strategy back. Yeah. What about what about Triangle Strategy, guys? <laughs> so the way I'm looking at it is, I I don't I hate that this has come to. Well, Josh needs to cast a deciding vote. So I'm looking. I'm in my head. I'm compartmentalizing this. Three votes for Elden Ring. Three votes for Xenoblade. We have an Elden Ring from an Alex, me, and James, and we have a Xenoblade from Jess ostensibly josh and adam and that's the process i i, I it's the, it doesn't have to ostensibly I, you, you could just slot me in in one or the other and then so i'm just looking at the the different i, I, I just yeah i just I, I can't i know i harp on but like for me i just and obviously it's it's not about this strictly speaking you know it's about about the game um, but I just Elden Ring is a game where I think um, in ten years, fifteen years, we are still to some degree going to be discussing it, and I just do not believe that's the case with Xenoblade. Or to put it another way, I've spent a lot of time recently thinking, especially uh, seeing them announce Armored Core and hearing Miyazaki say, "Oh, I've got." ideas for games even better than Elden Ring. I spent quite a bit of time wondering is it like it's that good that I'm not convinced that From can catch this lightning in a bottle again. I think they'll make games as good as Dark Souls 1, 2 and 3 again and Bloodborne but I'm, I'm not convinced that they will be able to make a game this special Again, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Whereas, Xenoblade's awesome, but I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to make a Xenoblade Chronicles 4 and it's going to be roughly the same quality as 1, 2, and 3. That's what I'd say. Which is excellent for, in my opinion, the 1, 2, and 3, it's like, excellent. that's yeah, like a 9, yeah. nine, and, a, nine and a half and a 10. <laughs> If, if, we're doing it, if, if we're doing it by that, then, then there's live alive right there. We're still talking about it. How many years later? If we're doing it by like memorability, right? Yeah, really, we really, we really weren't though. It's like live alive was, you know, a, a game that we're only talking about it because it's relevant again. Because it's come back out, but like it was a game that a very very small number of RPG nerds talked about because it was this special unique little thing and because it connected to one of the best games of all time uh, you know there was a direct lineage there and 10 years from now you're right people will still be talking about live alive but people will be talking about live alive in the same way that they did before in that it will be this relatively niche thing that is um beloved but what i'm saying is um i think there's been one of these one game of this type every discounting nintendo because nintendo beat marches to their own drum but i think outside of nintendo there's been one game of this kind every seven or eight years or so and so i think there is this club and in this club there is elden ring and the witcher 3 and skyrim and <laughs> that that's that's an incredible company. And I don't I think guess the way that... Xenoblade doesn't touch the sides on, on, on that. 
I guess the when I'm looking at Xenoblade Chronicles 3, both Adam and Jess have talked about how it's not they were able to nitpick it and then even Josh talked about the, how the soundtrack alone wasn't executed in a in a great manner. I'm I'm thinking that people don't even agree if Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is the best of its trilogy. It just seems so like I look at the three votes for Elden Ring and I look at it. Well, people always have that uh, argument over like what's their favorite of the Souls series too. Like we're, we're like we're like we're like having these weird comparisons to try to justify. I'm just saying you should just give it to Elden Ring. I don't I don't know why there's further need to justify it. Like you could whatever you say like about Elden Ring and like uh, having uh, arguments about which is the best Souls like and, or making that comparison with Xenoblade. It's like it's the same shit for both for both of them. I don't think that's well, true we, because we Elden say, Ring say, is we, uh, yeah. Elden Ring is tethered to the Souls games, but it is distinctly in a different camp. Where one, two, and three is a straightforward trilogy that have slightly but, different battle mechanics or slightly different party compositions, but not in the same you way. Cannot, you cannot that, tell me that Elden Ring has the has, has not the, is somehow super different from Souls battle mechanics outside of like the it's, battle arts which were introduced i'm, I'm talking through. i'm talking about how like dark souls 2 is almost arcadey in a sense where you have majula in the center and you just go on a zone to zone march from there to the iron keep to the what, what uh, I, i'm blanking what i what i'd say is to come back to what one thing you said brian is is that and, and as someone who is playing and completed xenoblade myself also i think that's the difference is that there's a lot in the design of Xenoblade that I can nitpick. Even though I love the game, there's things about it that drive me absolutely mental. I mean, you know, I picked on the UI earlier. I think that's the number one thing for me. I just think it's hideous. I just don't understand um, why it looks that way. And, 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 it, and it's been a problem for the whole series, and they still haven't fixed it. Um, but I could nitpick quite a lot of stuff. Whereas, to be honest... Aside from the fact that it had some performance problems and stuff at launch, I can't nitpick much about Elden Ring. If we put performance out of the equation, um, and you know, all that sort of stuff, because Xenoblade being a Switch game also <laughs> has its has its issues, uh, mostly because of the, the the how underpowered the hardware is. But when you put that stuff aside, the technical stuff, I just I think Elden Ring is 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 so perfectly pitched um yeah i think that's for me for me the difference is is that xenoblade chronicles 3 i believe is in the same court as one and two and i can tear those against each other where elden ring is in the same i don't know county as dark souls one two and three but I kind of have to judge on a different tier because it does enough differently from those games. I've already, I've already that I don't agree that Elden, that Elden should take it like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like, well, there's I mean, no I, way I, this Xenoblade no three takes it at the like. There's no way zero. Yeah, the the, the I guess the, the argument I'm trying to make is not. It's at this point, uh, these are two excellent games. That and when I look at last year's discussion, like Shin Megami Tensei five ended up being our runner up. And it's an excellent game as well. So at this point, it's just like the ranking almost doesn't to, matter. I've played and beaten both of these games fully. So well, I, I, I'm, 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 saying, I'm stating this generically, not to, not to Josh or not to Alex. This is just me uh, giving words to my own opinion between these two games. So not, not directed, just, just compartmentalizing my own thoughts. I'll be right, so, perfectly honest ahead, here. Like, I, I voted for Elden Ring, but 
the mostly because if I if I was being honest, mine would be Endwalker, but I knew there was no way in hell that I was getting it, so I just voted for what's like what would be my second best. So, well, this is the whole reason why we don't do a, a, an unordered list from one to ten because that yeah, would because even it be more becomes a nightmare. It becomes a nightmare, and and so we accept that you know it's 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 like you know if I was doing a personal list, we can you know if we go into these weeds. If I was doing a personal list, I would have had Pokemon in the top five. Um, but if I'm just, but it's just so happened for me this year, which it hasn't previous years. For me this year, it's come down to two games that I played, reviewed, and loved. But one of them I just loved so much more. Two games that I both gave five stars to on VG247 also. But one of them is just in a different... Well, or to put it another way, if VG247 did 10-point scores, which it doesn't, one of them's a 9 and one of them's a 10. And Does VG247 do half stars or no? It does not, which would be gotcha. the same as doing doing out of ten. But right, but but Xenoblade is a very would if I was scoring out of ten, Xenoblade is like a very 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 high nine. But Elden Ring is like an easy breezy ten. Like I, I, I I'm trying to think of games that I've given ten to in my lifetime, um, and you know, that's um, too. Mass Effect Two, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't um, expecting to hear that on the podcast. <laughs> if I'd ever, if I'd ever actually gotten around to finishing that Witcher review, I would have given it to Witcher. Um, uh, Persona Five, uh, Breath of the Wild, um, but I can't think of any of those off the top of my head. But like out of those, aside from probably Breath of the Wild. I would put Elden Ring above all of them. And even with Breath of the Wild, that's a pretty tight thing. This is me. This is me completely equivocating, but I've never given a 10. I would give both these games nines. That doesn't help or that doesn't help us at all. But just that's kind of where my <laughs> mindset is in terms of these two games. You but after my score on my review, you always have that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after this is about 90 minutes of deliberation, on the main list alone in a very close call that is obviously influenced by the participants, what we played when they released and all sorts of other unnamed factors. We have an RPG of the year 2022 for Elden ring with a unofficial runner up in a very close race of Xenoblade Chronicles three rounding out the top five. We've got Pentiment, Astalibra Revision, and Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker. And then rounding out the top 10, we've got Live Alive, Triangle Strategy, Pokemon Legends Arceus, Trails from Zero, and Expeditions Rome. So if you have listened to this podcast all the way through and you're wondering exactly why certain games ended up in certain places, hopefully it is very apparent that these decisions every single year are never easy Hold the discussion again, and the list looks significantly different. But I believe that all the arguments were well substantiated. We saw some games that we expected end up in places we might have expected, but then also several surprises as we do every single year. So here we are at the end of 2022. This is the last part of our recordings for our podcast this year. Uh, First of all, I want to thank the participants here on this podcast because it's been several hours. So 
We've already had to lose uh, both Chow and Scott just due to other obligations. I want to give them a shout out here. Thank them for their time that they spent on this uh, end of the year podcast. Uh, obviously, I want to thank Josh, Jess, Adam, and James for sticking out through the whole duration. And then, of course, one big thank you to uh, to Alex for obviously uh, kind of guiding all of us throughout the whole year as the uh, as kind of our site champion. And coming in late on the podcast, but sticking it out. I know it's it's a, I know I don't I don't even want to guess what time it is for you uh, across the pond right now. But I, I assume it's pretty darn late. <laughs> It's one oh, thing I am, and if you heard like if you heard no. like glasses clinking during the last like half an hour, it was me opening whiskey. <laughs> yeah, no, very very valid, and uh, thank you, thank you uh, for all of the uh, support that you've given us throughout the year, and of course for this podcast jumping in and providing uh, a lot of insight for several of the games, both in the categories as well in the uh, main list running. So it's to been, all of our listeners, really interesting podcast. Really interesting this year, I think. Yeah, this podcast always runs long, but we always have tons of nuggeted discussions here. Uh, some that last 10 minutes to decide between two games. Some that last for significantly longer than that to to choose winners. And uh, it's always a great time. And I never regret the time that I spend uh, doing this podcast every year. So for us on the recording, obviously, we're recording this about halfway through the month of December, a little bit actually earlier. So we have some time now to basically put together a lot of the features that you, the listeners, are already looking at. So we, as we record, still have to put that all together. So that's that's going to be on our docket for um, the next couple of weeks. And then as for the TetraCast itself, we're either going to return on January 7th or potentially if we decide as a group that we want an additional week off, it, we could punt to later in January and re- reconvene on the 14th. As you listen to this hey, podcast, that date... Not really. As as those listen to this podcast, that date for our TetraCast returning is not so far away. But for us, uh, we've got about a month uh, between now and then. But to, re- to reiterate, gaming since then, yeah, so, we have we have nothing to cover uh, in December or early January. Uh, and I like, like how we're going to come back and. It's not like I've been sitting here during this very podcast putting content for a game into the site for this month. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're going to have to reconvene in uh, in January and be like immediately, all right, Fire Emblem Engage, let's go, uh, which uh, it doesn't slow down. God, God bless publishers. You know, there's a few games out in January uh, and, uh, you know, we won't say what games, but um, God bless those publishers that do actually, if they've got a game out in January, send it out in December. Thank no, you. yep, Thank for you. for sure. So again, uh, we're gonna ha- we have three features up on the site at the moment that you're listening to this, and that is obviously this RPG of the Year feature uh, for 2022, our staff most anticipated, and then the results of our readers' choice poll. And it's always fun to compare how our readers feel versus how our staffs feel. So as we record, we have no idea how that's going to shake out. We have an idea. Uh, so it'll be interesting to reconvene on that as we go into the new year. Thank you so much for supporting the TetraCast. I just want to say, as an extra one, sorry. Sorry, no, no problem. One, there is by the time this goes out, the results of the Final Fantasy poll will be out, which is audience voted. So, like, many thousands of you have voted for the 35th anniversary. And so, yeah, there'll be an article on the site over the holiday period about what people's favorite Final Fantasy is, what people's first Final Fantasy was, 
what their favorite protagonist is and how some of those things inter how some of those things interact so like are you more likely to have your first as your favorite and questions like that it'll be an interesting um the results for that aren't finished yet but from what i've seen so far it'll be really interesting it's also interesting to track the results of that and good shout out for that poll as well i believe the last time we ran that poll final fantasy 15 was really new and scored pretty highly but who knows if that's gotten stronger or weaker uh, in the time since uh, we can't speak to it, but uh, when we reconvene with our first TetraCast episode of the new year, uh, maybe we'll have a chance to to look at the results of that and identify and criticize and discuss and evaluate any of the interesting outcomes from that. Thank you all so much for supporting the TetraCast through 2022. It's been a, a big year for us. We've seen a fair bit of growth, as we have mentioned back in our last previous regular episode of the TetraCast. So I won't uh, rehash that too much, but we do always really enjoy your support. And this, I know this has been several hours of deliberation on our end, but obviously several hours of listening on your end. So if you made it to the end, thank you so much. Uh, we are always happy to see the support that we get in our Discord, on our social mentions, uh, in the comments on our site. Uh, we thank you so much for supporting us. And hopefully this kind of gives you a an idea of some of the things that we discuss behind the scenes every single week as we cover these games, as we cover the news, as we review the games that we like best. Uh, and it is, I don't know, it's something that I'm, I know that we all find a lot of drive and passion in, which is why we decide to do this every single year. So for us, we've got a little bit of planning on our end to do. But for, for you guys, this is it. We're going to be closing out and I will just leave it at that. Until you hear from us next time, stay safe, take care. I'm going to wish you a, a post. Hope you all had a great holiday. Those of you listening, for those of us in the cast right now, I hope you all do have a good holiday. And we'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>